mother, father. I've done some things in my life for which I'm not very proud. And I'm sure there's been occasions where I haven't lived up to your expectations of me. I can only hope that now you understand that I've come to my crossroads. The devil himself stands before me in the form of my own flesh and blood, of my own brother, Cain. Mother, please forgive me for the sin which I'm about to commit. A sin so heinous. But it's something that must be done. And in the end, I only hope that together, as one, we can rest in peace, a family once again. And if such is not the case, I alone am willing to serve my penance. I am willing to burn in my own damnation. I am willing to look my destiny in the eye and go where the reaper leads me. Please understand, he's given me no other choice. I have to fight. Just know that I love you. Hello and welcome to episode 94 of the New Generation Project podcast, where the heroes of Hulkamania are done, the new generation is over, and we're halfway through the night that the Attitude Era truly began. It's Sunday, March 29th, 1998, and it's time to take a look at the top three matches of the WWF's biggest show of the year. It's WrestleMania 14, part two. My name is Stuart Brooks, and I'm joined today, as ever, by our very own new, new Midnight Express, the bombastic big fella, Paul Scrivens. Good evening. And the bodacious boozerweight, Adam Wikes. Hello. How are you both doing? I'm pretty good, actually. I've had a relatively relaxing day. Which is a change for you. Yeah. Well, I've done a bit of work, but I think it's because I had a better night's sleep last night than I have uh, in recent weeks. What, what do you attribute that to, Adam? The, just the street was quieter. Mm. I think as the temperature drops, the amount of students in Leicester stop coming out as much. And mm. also they're probably drinking their way through their student loans so they're not screaming on the streets as much. Okay. I sleep in the back room, so I, I don't really have this problem. Mm. Occasionally a cat. Occasionally a cat and fireworks night was quite loud, but other than that, it's all good. Mm. Mm. What about yourself, Scrivens? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good, thanks. I've been to two different Sainsbury's today, thank you both of you. <laughs> two? Is one a local? No. Right, two supermarkets? Yeah, I went to one at Hinkley and then one at Foss Park. Any particular reason for two visits to two supermarkets in the same day? We had lunch at the one at Hinkley. And dinner. And then, no, and then <laughs> the, um, the, the boys needed a nap. So I thought, you know what, I need to do some shopping, but I'm not going to do it now. I'm going to drive. The boys can have a nap in the car. And then we can do shopping when we get to the end and, and they're awake. thought it was cracking planning, actually. 
combining nap time and travel time. Yeah. Hmm. Efficient. I, you know, I've got to do shopping at somewhere. The prices are going to be the same because it's the same shop. So Was was Mrs. Scrivens not around to either do the shopping or to babysit the, the kids? She was having her hair done this morning. How long does that take? About three hours. How much hair has she got? Yeah, she haven't all taken loads, off. Loads, because it's always in the plug. <laughs> <laughs> Surely that means there's less on her head. I think, I think it keeps growing. Okay. Has she had a nice new haircut? Yeah, it's pretty good. Are you contractually obliged to say that? Oh, yeah, like, I've, the, the boys are trained to say, <laughs> I like your hair, mummy. Whenever she's had a, a visit to the hairdressers, I like your hair, mummy. I think it's a good habit to get boys into when they're young. Yeah, you, you can't give an honest response. <laughs> well, no, no, it does look good. Okay. Oh, she, she, she might not be listening. I was going to say, she's not listening you know, right now. You, you can tell the truth. I'm sure she'll go back and listen. I mean, she claims not to listen to the show, but I can't believe that for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else interesting been going on since we last recorded? How's your back? My back? I was a bit worried that some excess weight in your bag may have put a strain on your back. Oh, yeah. Something did interesting did happen. Some cunt had put a plate in my bag (laughs) at some point in in an incredibly cruel prank, (laughs) which it marginally increased the weight of it. However, it was... (laughs) Like a saucer, <laughs> so it didn't increase the weight by that much. A, a big plate would cost more, and Adam's bag is always really full anyway. So, so when I when I, when I planned my Mal Sanders inspired hijinks, I kind of knew to take that into account. Well done, and that's the highlight of your last two weeks, is it? <laughs> Pretty much, because Adam told me you had a story about bowling. Oh yeah. Don't don't go to a kid's birthday party where it's bowling. Because <laughs> okay. did did you need to actually go on one of those events in order to work that out? It might depend on who you're with. Okay, who were you with? My son. All right then. Is he a bore? No, but I knew literally nobody apart from my son, and and it wasn't the most fun I've ever had. And that's your story. Basically, kids' bowling's attention span is about three or four minutes, not an hour and 20 minutes. It, it was a bit painful. There was more to this story. There was something about lunch, I'm sure there was. Oh, yeah, we stood around watching kids eat lunch, but that was more or less it. Because <laughs> <laughs> Adam had really sold this to me as yeah. a very interesting story. When I heard it earlier in the week, I thought, this is going to blow most of his other stories out of the water. I think I was angrier earlier in the week, yeah, but now the, it's dissipated somewhat. The, the, the heat was fresh. Yeah. Why were you angry about kids eating lunch and having a short attention span for bowling? Oh, it's, it was just, uh, like, if you think it through... Like, it sounds like it might be a good idea. Oh, you know, kids or like, you know, got a bunch of four-year-old, five-year-old boys, they'll like bowling, which they will, but for a very, very short time. <laughs> and, and anything over that very, very short time is going to be absolute agony, particularly if you don't know anybody else there, which, which was my case. Did could, you, you, could you not have tried to, you know, make acquaintances with the other parents and failing that some of their children? See, pretty much everybody already knew each other and was already kind of engrossed in conversation. I kind of decided to kind of parent my child because there was a lot going on. Did you stand back from the crowd with, with, with baby Scrivens and just have a chat between yourselves? No. Okay. No, but, but I kept him on a tight leash. Not literally. Um, <laughs> it's frowned upon. But yeah, that, that's my story. What have you been up to, Stuart? Have you, have you done anything of interest? I went to see a Smackdown live house show the other night with, with Mark and Ben from Skip to the End. Yeah. 
He only saw Jinder Mahal live. But, you know, mere 48 hours after he lost the WWE title, mm. which Adam still hasn't recovered from the heartbreak of. So he's lost it to, to AJ? He has indeed, yes. Mm. So yeah, there was a triple threat main event, which was AJ Styles, Jinder Mahal and Shinsuke Nakamura. One of those is not like the others. Mm. Which one? Was it a good match, though? Yeah, it was, it was okay. It was a bit of an odd card, because you heard this story about Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn being sent home from the tour. No. no. Okay, you didn't hear that no, story. No, I, didn't, I, didn't hear I, that story. I steer clear of social media. I've heard about Chris Jericho. That's, and... Hang on, that's not true, because every morning you sit and look at tits on Twitter. Well, that's true, but that's a very specific thread of social media <laughs> that's way more entertaining than other threads. Okay, so... Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn got sent home from the tour for kind of going against creative instructions on SmackDown. They were told, you're not allowed to do the five-knuckle shuffle, and they did it? No, they were supposed to kind of stay in the ring and bump and feed for New Day, but they just buggered off to the back. Mm. So they were removed from the tour, and for whatever reason, New Day, despite being on the SmackDown brand, were on the Raw tour. What? So, yeah, it was a bit of a weird one. So kind of outside of really... AJ Styles, Randy Orton, and, and to an extent the Usos, like, no one was particularly over, I would say. Mm. That's bizarre. So Pete Dunne and Tyler Bate turned up as part of a tag match with James Drake and Trent Seven, so th- that was decent, but yeah. they were obviously not known to a portion of the crowd. But kind of the first half of the show, which was about six matches, was full of just really random and kind of pointless stuff. Aaron Corbin versus Sin Cara is three minutes of my life I'll never get back. <laughs> mm. And there was a really weird six-man tag with... Ty Dillinger and the Ascension against Mike Kanellis, Eric Rowan and Luke Harper. What? Mm. Which, yeah, just sounds like not a thing. Yeah, but but it did happen. But it did happen. So, wow. yeah, there was, it was definitely fuller and the crowd were more interested than the show I saw in April in Birmingham. Right. But yeah, you kind of definitely felt kind of Owens and Zayn and New Day not being there. If you're listening to this on day of release, then it's only one day removed since our fourth birthday. November 14th, 2013 was the day we released episode one, King of the Ring, 1993. Mm. Wow. Four years. Lot's happened in four years. A lot has happened. A lot. What's happened in the world in the last four years of significance? Trump became president. Yeah, that's pretty big. Brexit. Brexit, Brexit yeah. Leicester won the Premier League. Yes! That was a thing. Happy days. <laughs> you had a further child. I had a further child, yes. <laughs> you almost said third child there, didn't you? Yes, I did. Mm. I've acquired lots of Lego in the last four years. You have acquired lots of Lego and a new alcoholic app. Yes, I've only been on Untapped in the last two and a half years. So so that's been quite exciting. I managed to catalogue all my drinks. (laughs) (laughs) We don't lead particularly exciting lives, do we? Well, mine's fairly interesting. We'll be celebrating this by going out and having some steak on Tuesday. So Mm. by the time people hear this, we will have eaten said steak. What better celebration than meat? Twitter in. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag better celebration than meat. (laughs) See if we can make that a thing. Yeah, Middleton Steakhouse in Leicester, which is is delicious, and we're certainly not sponsored by, but happy to endorse. (laughs) Yeah, because they they do nice meat. Mm. Have you had a look over the menu? Any idea what you're going to have? Have you been there before? No, I've not been there. I went out last night, actually, to to a a poshish restaurant. Yeah. Okay. Had pasta. (laughs) <laughs> did it have granola on it no no cornflakes no uh what else did i have i had a very nice some calamari you like calamari don't mm. you they do calamari in middleton so if you want a starter you can yeah, have calamari. I, will have a, I will have calamari 
They do burgers as well. Oh. Steak burgers? Beef burgers. But you, know, you can't... Steak burger is a thing. So they Ste- could steak do burger is a thing, so they might do. They might but do. it's very nice food, and we're very much looking forward to kind of going out and having an evening, yeah. just the three of us. Lots of hijinks planned. It's quite close to the Brewdog pub. Mm, so, we could, so we could perhaps go for a beverage afterwards. Yeah. Be unlike you to be in there, Adam. Mm. Yes. We're not sponsored by Brewdog either. Sadly. Mm. But, but they have given you more discount. <laughs> <laughs> no, they've doubled my discount. <laughs> I've ordered an advent calendar from them. An advent calendar? That, yeah. That does sound pretty cool. It's basically a case of beer, mm. but with little doors that you open on top of the case on each day of December. That's with, really with, with a mystery beer inside. So did they give you that free or was that a, a buy thing? 24 beers would be quite a lot to give away for free. Yes. So how much did you pay? £56. That's one of the pricey advent calendars I've, I've come across. <laughs> I, I'm looking to spend a little less than this on my own. No, I've, I've seen a few because there's, I know, Flavourly do one as well. And they, they normally run into the 60s or 70 quids for them. Because if you think that, you know, craft ales might come in at maybe £2.53 a bottle or something, then it kind of makes sense. Although, like with all these, because it's a thing to get the these different higher calibre advent calendars nowadays you've seen some of the makeup ones yeah. which would be like 150 pounds or something or wine i saw a wine one yeah but wine. they are they're guaranteed to like have a higher value of goods in them than the price of the calendar itself so i know that you can get whiskey ones so our friend simon peswick smith's probably got one of those and you can get rum ones so there's lots of different alcohol based ones anyway we're not sponsored by brewdog but you are drinking nanny state right now I am. I'm drinking a beer that's 0.5% ABV. Really? We yeah. just had 38 of them. So it's a bit <laughs> on a final note, on advent calendars, I'll probably just get a chocolate one for about £3. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to spend around the, the, the 2 to £3 mark. <laughs> well, weirdly enough, I've overspent on advent calendars this year because I also bought the Lego one again, which was like 25 quid. <laughs> mm. Spent shit ton on advent calendars. <laughs> that is close to a hundred pounds yeah. on advent calendars. Unfortunately, I've had to cancel Christmas <laughs> because the cost of advent crippled me financially. <laughs> no, it's, it's, no, it's about eighty pounds. It's close. Granted, that's a lot to spend on advent calendars. <laughs> when normally, yes, you'd spend two or three pounds. Is it a Lego Star Wars again? One? It is. Yes. Yeah. Manami Toyota retired as well since we last recorded. Yes. Yes, you did. What was the uh, the total length of years she was wrestling for? 30 years she wrestled for. 30 years? Yeah. I started 16. Good career. Wow. Yeah. So on her retirement show on November 3rd, she wrestled in 51 matches. Wow. That, that is just brilliant. <laughs> He's about to spit out some of that 0.5% beer. It's really nice. 51? Yes. Do you, do you want a breakdown of those? Not every single one, but I've got a summary. Go on then. So... She first wrestled a four-on-one handicap match, followed by 47 one-minute time limit contests, ending with three matches against Tsukasa Fujimoto, where Fujimoto finally pinned her with the Japanese Ocean Cyclone Suplex. Mm. So amongst those participating in the 47 one-minute matches were Meiko Satomura, yeah. oh. Hiroyo Matsumoto, Mima Shimoda, Itsuki Yamazaki, one half of the Jumping Bomb Angels. Okay. Chigusa Nagayo, if you remember her from Gaia Girls. The oh, harsh instructor. Oh, uh, oh yeah. 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 Jaguar Yokota, who was a very famous female wrestler in the early 80s. Kyoko Inui and Bull Nakano. Yeah. Oh, your favourite. Who didn't even wrestle at her own retirement show, but mm. did at 
Manami Toyotas. She didn't wrestle at her own retirement show. No, it was kind of weird. They they had her kind of reenact moments from her career. So like she would get made up and they would like bring the lights on and she'd be reenacting something, but she didn't right. actually wrestle. Oh, okay. Hmm. Admittedly, in this, she wrestled for about 38 seconds, but it still counts. <laughs> mm. But again, like I saw a couple of photos of the, of the event. So the photos from the end, of, I assume the end, with all the streamers, yeah. are just mind-blowingly good. And, and kind of a couple of photos of Paul Nakano. Yeah, she she looked great. She kind of had half her face painted kind of old Paul Nakano style. And I think she'd probably sprayed in some blue mm. hairspray into her hair and stuff. And yeah, cool. yeah. very yeah. interesting. If you want to learn more about probably one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, I'd recommend checking out the latest episode of Mike Quackenbush and Bryce Remsburg's Deep Blue Something, where they have a bit of an extended chat about her mm. time in Chikara. Or our own episode we put out around this time last year when she first came to the UK, where we watched three of her classic matches and I spoke with the aforementioned Mr. Quackenbush, Dan Reed, who was bringing her to the UK, and former Power Slam editor Finn Martin. Mm. So yeah, again, if you've never watched any of her matches, then do go and check some out. Yeah. yeah. I would recommend doing both of those. So listen to that show that we did and, and Deep Blue Something. And if you go back, listen to all of the Deep Blue Somethings as well, because they're, they're great. We also need to say thank you to a couple of people before we begin today, mm. because people seem to keep sending us nice things. Yes. It's really rather lovely. Yes. So we get packages turn up with the name of the podcast on them. It's a bit like Christmas, isn't it? A little bit. I guess, yeah. In that we unbox things and we don't know what's going to be in them. So Simon Fulfit <laughs> <laughs> sent us a parcel with presents for all of us, including mm. baby Scrivens and Angolo. Yes. Which you have not unwrapped because it's their presents. Yes. So we actually still don't know what's no, in no, that. No, no, yeah, I, they'll get them in the morning. You got lots of Haribo. I've got. Um, well, we've consumed some of that now. We, we but, have consumed a bit of it. But no, no, amazing. Thank you very much. I got a Lex Luger narcissist figure. Mm. And good. Adam, He's got a cloak. What did you get? Well, he managed to source another classic issue of Playboy, <laughs> starring some WWE divas in it. Which ones? Ashley, Candice Michelle. Yep. China, yep. Sable, yep. Tory Wilson. Okay, that, that's quite I mean, a lot of WWE it's a, divas. It's a pretty good haul in there, mm. yeah. It's interesting to see what's going on in 2007 as well. What was newsworthy back then? Grindhouse had been released. What? There's also an advert <laughs> you keep showing me for Bore at the movie. It's just him, block holding a goat. <laughs> and it just says, come to Kazakhstan. <laughs> Should go back and watch that film. Yes, it is a very funny film. So thank you very much to Simon for sending us that parcel. That really is very kind. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. And Callum Payton sent us two DVDs through the post. Yes. One of them is called River of Darkness and stars Kurt Angle, Kevin Nash and Sid. Classic. <laughs> so I'm very much looking forward to watching that. <laughs> TNA films. What's the IMDb rating <laughs> from this? I haven't looked that up yet, sorry. But the other film we've been sent is The Ultimate Weapon, starring Hulk Hogan. So, so that's the one where his daughter's a stripper and he has to, like, save her. I'm not a big fan of Hulk Hogan films. I don't know if I've mentioned this before. <laughs> They're all fucking awful. However, I did look on the back of this and it said it's got infrequent nudity. So as long as that's not Hulk Hogan, we should be all right. And if it is? I'll turn it off. <laughs> But yes, also very much looking forward to watching that one. So thanks to Callum for sending that through. Thank you very mm. much. 
As revealed last episode as well, you have until November 30th to pledge $15 with us over at patreon.com slash newgenpodcast to get one of our Christmas bundles. What do you get in your bundle? What do you get in your bundle? Well, you get a hand-signed, personalised Christmas card with a match recommendation from the new generation era that we want your thoughts on. The Mm. cards have come through the post, by the way, and do look great. That they do. Mm. You get four brand new art cards by Adam Ratliff detailing key characters and moments in the show's history. You get an NGP logo sticker, two brand new badges that Adam has designed, some WWE Slam Attacks cards, and a copy of Displaced by Elizabeth Cornish that Adam plays drums on. Hmm. That's quite the parcel for 15 bucks. That is quite the parcel, yes. You also get an exclusive piece of audio, which until November 20th, you can vote for... Ooh, be kind. Between Total Bellas 2... Please. ...and an episode of The A-Team entitled Body Slam that no. stars Adam's favourite actor, Hulk Hogan. Uh. Currently, against the wishes of Paul Scrivens, <laughs> The A-Team is way out in the lead. So if you want to change that, pledge now and vote now. I might just pledge lots of times. <laughs> <laughs> I've paid $800. Dollars. We're watching Total Total Bellas too. That that'd be a bit extreme, but feel free to do it. Yeah. All that is just fifteen dollars shipped anywhere in the world. And if you want one of our NGP logo T shirts, just pledge twenty five dollars and message us with the size you need. Mm. Pledge over at www.patreon.com slash newgenpodcast by November thirtieth if you want one posted to you on December first. Whilst most of the roster and the audience were busy revelling in the pageantry of WrestleMania 14, Kevin Kelly and the Honky Tonk Man were busy doing the grunt work of manning the award-winning WWF Superstar line. As an incentive to call, Honky has promised to ask the questions that the promoters and the wrestlers don't want him to ask. Therefore, this week's challenge to you, the audience, was to tell us exactly what those questions were, and perhaps we can try and answer some of them as we go through. Hmm. The following are our favourite suggestions. John Ellis. How is Terry Funk's horse? Sick, I guess. All right tonight, because he turns up. (laughs) (laughs) Mark McDonald. Why does the WWF employ a seven-foot burnt man (laughs) who sets staff on fire, interferes in nearly every match and has magical powers? Hostile work environment, am I right? Is right. Yes, you are right. Mm. It, that's a good point, isn't it? Why do they employ him? <laughs> yeah. Let's put him on the payroll. He, he basically he, he ruined a load of equipment and killed a technician. <laughs> maybe they <laughs> keep paying him. I think maybe they're too scared to just not let him have a job. Okay, she does them struck by lightning. I wonder if they deducted anything from his pay slip that month. So it's like, you know, you get, you know, wage... Tax, national insurance, insurance. murder. Yeah. Pension, yeah. Yeah. Kane went to Vince and said, these stoppages, mate, what are they about? <laughs> well, got... you, you killed three members of staff, Kane. <laughs> I've got slightly less in my payslip this month. What's going on? My, my envelope's not as fast as it usually is. You'll <laughs> get paid in cash. <laughs> <laughs> no, is it... but, but uh, higher-profile superstars get wider checks. <laughs> Andy Bainbridge. Who invented the skip? <laughs> Zip, flip, Bobby Moore, I don't bloody know. <laughs> Here's one for you, Paul. Brendan Gordon. What was wrestling thinking? Anybody's guess. <laughs> Omar Espinosa. 
Will Lex Luger's pants ever be correctly adjusted? Now, that is an interesting one. It's unlikely, really, isn't it? I do wonder if there's a match out there, like it happened on, I don't know, like WCW Pro, where, you know, two minutes he's fiddling, and all of a sudden he just stops and goes, that's it, I've got it. Looks quite smug at the camera, carries on. Yeah, and then for the rest of the match, he's wandering around in perfect comfort. (laughs) Rustling a five-star classic. (laughs) Ben Holt. It's the bank holiday. What you doing? Who's with you? <laughs> what are you doing? Who's with you? Uh, Mrs. Scribbins uh, and Mrs. Scribbins. <laughs> oh. Is that for him or you? Well, hopefully for him. Okay. Colin O'Halloran. This is a number of questions, and I do want your answers. Does anyone actually smell what The Rock is cooking? No. What exactly was he cooking? I don't know. A storm. Did he ever finish cooking it? No. Was it nice? Probably. I reckon he's pretty good at everything he does, so yeah. Why was he more concerned about his cooking than his wrestling? Because he was a very confident wrestler. Yes, and he was less sure of his cooking. Why on earth, and this isn't one of Colin's questions, but I'm just thinking about it now... Has nobody ever commissioned a rock cooking show called Do You Smell What The Rock Is Cooking? That's a very good question. That is a very good question. That, that would be way better than cooking with Kelly. Presumably, somebody may have pitched it to him and he said, I don't really want to do it. <laughs> I'm, not, not, I'm not actually a chef. Jordan Robertshaw Jowett. If you can't teach being a G, then how did Enzo Amore get a certification in it? <laughs> mm, maybe he just took the exam. <laughs> it wasn't taught, he just passed Self-learned Rory Broadhurst Who was under El Gato's mask? Who was under El Gato's mask? Who was it, Paul? I don't know Do you not remember? Pat Tanaka hey, There you go <laughs> Gary Graham And this one I definitely do want your thoughts on Trousers or pants? Which one is more main event? Pants uh, Probably statistically pants Yeah Because I was thinking about this earlier, as you do, and these days I feel like it might be more trousers because, like, think about guys like Styles wears trousers, Rollins wears trousers, Reigns wears trousers. What does Jinder Mahal wear? He wore pants. Well, there you go then. mm, Pants all the way. I feel that helps my point rather than yours. Brock Lesnar wears pants. No, he wears shorts. Oh, yeah. They're kind of halfway. He he used to wear pants. He used to wear pants. He did used to wear pants, yes. It's a fair question, but I think we'd be going against the whole of the run of the podcast if we said anything other than pants. If someone wants to take a look at every WWE pay-per-view ever <laughs> and note down whether those participating in said main event were wearing pants or trousers and then let us know, that would be great. That is the sort of thing that you would do. I'm not doing it. Okay. Scott Cavaliero. When will we see the American males in the WWF? Well, the answer is never. You'll well, see one half of them once. See, Buff Bagwell kill a promotion. Jake Roberts. Why on earth does Scott Cavaliero love the American male so much? <laughs> that is unknown. Yeah. Not I don't clue. really know. Is he actually Buff Bagwell? Stuart Sitiver. Has Miguel Perez ever been mistaken for a bear? Possibly. Maybe a sun bear? What's a sun bear? Well, it's a bit smaller, you see. I think Miguel Perez is too small to be a black bear, and he's the wrong colour to be a brown bear or a polar bear. A sun bear's kind of black, but smaller. But it does have rather long, gangly arms. 
Does he have rather long, gangly arms? No, not really. Maybe. Oh, if he's wearing glasses, he might be a spectacled bear. <laughs> there we go. For that lesser-known Puerto Rican bear. <laughs> Puerto Rican bear. That should have been his nickname. That should have been his nickname. Or Carpet Man. <laughs> Nick Henderson. Just what exactly are the chances in percentages and fractions of Scott Steiner winning at sacrifice this Sunday? <laughs> Can you remember what the percentage chance was? Uh, 103. It's really high, isn't it? It's like a 200 and something percent. <laughs> isn't it 141 and oh, two thirds mm. chance of winning? I don't know. Well, I'm... the numbers don't lie. They spell disaster for you. William J. Lenhart. Is play an adjective? Like how long Ooh. you're taking to think about this. My my grasp of English is awful, you know this. I'm going to go yes. Adam? No. It's a verb. Okay. Evidently you and Kevin Nash both need English lessons. You know I need English You've heard me talk. Tyler, good. Did Stuart ever play Deer Hunter 2014? No, he didn't. <laughs> I'm glad we cleared that up. Why was that a question? Was that that thing that JR was advertising? Yeah, I think I did an intro of it yeah, once. she did. Ages ago. Like episode seven. <laughs> Jamie McLennan Young. What's the average wind speed velocity of an unladen swallow? <laughs> Wasn't it a European or an African one? <laughs> Shrugging your shoulders doesn't work on a podcast, mate. <laughs> no, I'm a bit lost with that reference. Monty Python, isn't it? No, I'm not really a fan. Really? Well, not necessarily really a fan. I've never really seen it. Oh, watch the Holy Grail, it's fantastic. And watch Life of Brian. Yeah. My, my dad used to like it. I remember my dad used to have lots of old videos of Monty Python. I don't think he ever watched them, but he used to have them. <laughs> it's like recorded off the telly, labelled up in very neat writing. Joe Dudley McCoy. What exactly was Ric Flair planning on doing from the top rope anyway? Good question. I think the answer is being thrown off. Did he hit anything from it once? Yeah, he did it in like a match with like Carlito or something, didn't he? Went nuts, was dead happy. <laughs> <laughs> Sean Fieldler. At WrestleMania 9, were there two doinks or only one? There was two. Mark Holmes. In algebraic terms, is double J or triple H of a higher value? Well, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> Russell Hillier. Does Chainsaw Charlie's horse ever get sick? No. I think it's... It's a bit more binary than that. It's either alive or dead. Because <laughs> he chainsawed yeah. it. <laughs> if his chainsaw's on when he gets on, it's dead. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to say that, but that's what I was thinking. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't have uh, the conscience not to say it. Dan Moles. Who is the best lord? Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Dance, or Lord of the Flies? Lord of the Dance. Lord of the Rings. Michael Flatley. I'm going to go with Lord of the Rings, yeah. yeah. Is that one each? No. No, that's two for Lord of the Rings and one for Michael Flatley. <laughs> You're Michael Flatley. I don't know of Lord of the Flies. Did you not watch it at school? No. Or listen to that Iron Maiden song called Lord I, of the Flies. I know, you know, that's a good song. I like that. Uh, I'm, I, I really do quite like the X Factor album. The Iron Maiden X Factor album, not if they've released one off the top. <laughs> Although I'd probably give that a listen. Actually, no, I do own an X Factor album. <laughs> oh, <fuck laughs> <no>. <laughs> Yeah, because there's three songs on an album that are half light, so I got it. I've never <laughs> been so disappointed in you. I love that. That's your reason for a purchase. There were three songs on an entire album that I half liked, <laughs> so I bought it. No, but I think... it was about fourteen ninety nine as no, well. No, no, this was when I was kind of really struggling for present ideas. So I don't think I bought it myself. I think someone would say, oh, what do you want? It's like... Oh, you asked for it for Christmas. 
or a birthday. <laughs> um, but I think I think it's kind of one of these things where I'd perhaps just seen an advert on the telly, which may or may not have been for, for the X Factor album. But and then, and then process. And then somebody asked me. Someone says, what do you want for, for your birthday? And you're just like, uh, uh, let's see something on the telly. Say that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Paul, that's an advert for a hearing aid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want one. <laughs> this really is the best lipstick I've ever worn. <laughs> and my, my hair's never felt smoother. Vincent Krasowskis. Has anybody got a spare battery for an Ericsson? <laughs> no. Are, are Ericsson a thing anymore? I don't know as if they are. They merged with Sony, didn't they? Did they? Oh, I yeah, Sony so. Ericsson. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Or Sven Goren, as they're sometimes named. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a question specifically aimed at Paul. Doug Ward, is nails a face or a heel? I'm still going face. And I think the more I think about it, the more I'm right. <laughs> Sean Shaw, who taught Mike Tyson how to crotch chop? No one. S- someone that couldn't crotch chop, evidently. <laughs> it's probably the answer. He's certainly not got certification bypassing an exam. <laughs> the crotch chop GCSE. Rory Broadhurst. Thanks for this one, Stuart, by the way. If Paul Scrivens was asked to read out the name of a Dragon Gate wrestler... Are you timing this, Adam? No. Okay. Mr. Kayu Kayu Naoki Tanazaki Toyonaka Dolphin. How many attempts would it take him? Did he get that about right? Well, I've never heard of the bloke, but I'm going to assume he did. <laughs> he only took one take there. I haven't edited anything out there, folks, but he just took a long time saying each word. Yes. <laughs> Do you want another go at it now? You've tried it once? Mr. Can I, can I, can I, can I, no, no, don't, because it's really hard. <laughs> Liam Hollinshead, what is the correct collective noun for a group of narcissists? Narcissi, narcissists, an express? An express, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an express. An express of narcissists. Danny Dugley, Undertaker, would you like a cucumber sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Mm. <laughs> Going to guess the answers? No. Punch you in the face. <laughs> Juan Rodriguez. What I do, but suddenly appear every every time you are near. You get the general idea. <laughs> <laughs> David Light. Where is the big hand on the clock when it's Vader time? The big hand. Yeah, twelve. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go with that. Yeah, yeah. I think it'd be on the hour. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Evans, how fat is a frog's ass? Probably not very, actually. Depends on the frog, mate. Yeah. Tom Minna, what do you think of the pedestrianisation of Norwich City Centre? <laughs> well, I think it's a very good idea. Yeah, people forget that traders need access to Dixons. I would have loved to have rang up the WWF Superstar line in 1998 <laughs> and asked the honky-tonk man, what do you think of the pedestrianisation of Norwich City Centre? 
I'd be amazed if he had an opinion on it. <laughs> well, or me too. Maybe we could recreate it for 2017 later by, I don't know, ringing Babe Station or something and asking them. <laughs> well, having lived in Norwich for, for, for a few years in my younger days, I think it would be a good idea. Norwich is not fun to drive around, I'll definitely say that. Mm. It, it's a fun place, don't you? I mean, Norwich is great. They, they used to call it Naughty Norwich. Who used to call it Naughty Norwich? People. <laughs> would that people be you? Alan Partridge. Okay. Billy McNeil. How much funk could a Scorpio flash if a Scorpio could flash funk? John Ellis. Where was Shawn Michaels' smile when he found it? Texas. I would guarantee it would have been in the last place he looked. Behind the fridge. (laughs) Found it behind the fridge. You know what I saw? So on my way to get the parking ticket that I needed here. Uh Uh-huh. On my way there and back, I saw... Two sofas, two mattresses, and a fridge freezer. <laughs> <laughs> What's that got to do with that particular yeah. question? Was there a smile amongst them? No, you, you, you mentioned behind the fridge. Oh, yeah. And I saw a fridge. <laughs> it was in the street. Has <laughs> <laughs> your fridge sorted yet, boys? No. no. Still broken. You, you guys have had like repeated fridge problems. I know a lot of people have been very kind and sent stuff into us recently. If anybody's got a fridge <laughs> um, with a freezer compartment that these boys could have, Adam needs to keep his beer cold. It is an issue. But as the weather gets colder, I can keep my beer outside. Or in our house, because it's freezing. <laughs> it's not. It's quite warm today. Richard Quarry. How on earth did the WWF manage to persuade Christina Aguilera to work a light heavyweight title match at WrestleMania? <laughs> did they find a genie in the bottle? And rub it the right way. <laughs> Presumably talking about Aladdin or something. She didn't really wrestle that much. I quite like the song "Genie in a Bottle." It's a really like it is a good song, but it's filthy. And but the, the the lyrics in it don't say if you rub me the right way, I'll wrestle in a light heavyweight title match. <laughs> they're, they're more suggestive than that, aren't they? <laughs> a little bit. I, I do think after after kind of listening to that song, you should probably scrub yourself down with Dettol. So, genie in a bottle means you're going to scrub yourself with dental. What about if you listen to Dirty? I don't. <laughs> Christian Simon. Does Paul Scrivens reckon he could beat Mark Henry in a Big Mac eating contest? Yes. I think he'd eat the first Big Mac a lot quicker, but overall would consume less. It's a possibility. That's but... almost a vote of no confidence yeah. there from him, mate. How, how many Big Macs do you reckon you could eat? Depends how long I've starved myself for. If I've, if I've not eaten for, for a good while, a few. What, six hours or something? What, if I'm not eating for six hours? Yes. That's not starving myself. Okay. <laughs> but you, you've got to get it just right, haven't you? Because you don't want your stomach to shrink back down. You. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to be honest, I'm going to go with Mark Henry in this one. Sorry. You go with him, you see where that gets you. Stu Warner. So, Mabel, King Kong Bundy has thrown a kettle over a pub. What have you done? <laughs> is, that, is that from The Office? Is that what it is? I don't know. Chris Cooley. Shaw Michaels may be Mr WrestleMania, but can he do it on a cold, rainy night in Stoke? Probably. Steve Metcalf. What are the new generation Project Podcast guys going to do next? I can answer that for you. We're going to... Finish off this recording of WrestleMania 14 Part 2. Then I'll probably sleep for a bit. 
Then I'll probably get up and edit it. I don't really know what I've got planned tomorrow, actually. Adam? Well, I'll, you know, I'll have to process it before you edit it. Thank you, everybody, for all your suggestions. Some very good questions there, and I like to think we answered them all to the best of our capabilities. <laughs> yep, apart fantastic from, stuff. Apart from the last one, which we skillfully avoided. True. Like, like politicians. WrestleCrate is the original wrestling-themed monthly subscription service. They send to you the best hand-picked wrestling goodies to your door each month in three simple steps. Step one, select your monthly plan. Step two, WrestleCrate put your box together. Step three, wait for your parcel to arrive. WrestleCrate features merchandise from some of the biggest promotions in wrestling. WWE, Progress, Fight Club Pro, Ring of Honor, Chikara, Beyond Wrestling and more. And now... If you enter the code NEWGENPODCAST at the checkout, you can receive a special bonus autograph or DVD in your first crate. Visit WrestleCrate.co.uk to sign up today and take advantage of this exclusive offer with WrestleCrate, the world's first wrestling subscription box. It's still Sunday, March the 29th, 1998, and we are live from the Fleet Centre in Boston, Massachusetts, in front of a live crowd of 19,028. We covered the breakdown of the live gate and pay-per-view figures in the last episode, so I won't go through all that again, but it is certainly worth reiterating that the overall company gross for the event was in excess of $10 million. Wow. Still wow. Good night. Yeah. Yeah. Just quickly, because we didn't mention it last time, but Adam, you and I actually visited Boston the first time we went to America. Yes, we did. Any any memories you'd like to share? They had a tea party. It told me how bad the British were. I don't get the tea party, because I know it's a thing, but I, I have no idea what it is. Go read the Wikipedia page. We got to reenact it in the Boston Harbour. You got yes. to reenact it? Yes. yes. We all got given characters in the Boston Tea Party. So who are you? I can't remember. It was like four years ago. Yeah. Who are you? Someone that was an- annoyed. Oh. The wastage of tea. <laughs> that would fit your character. Yeah. Not your character, that fits you. He was mm. method acting. Yeah. yeah. I imagine he was outraged. I remember thinking that Boston was lovely, especially their Green Line metro system. Isn't that the one everybody hated? Yeah, there's even T-shirts about people hating the Green Line. Why? Just because it was a bit older and slower, I think. Yeah. And they, they, they like the newer ones. But the subway system was definitely better than New York's, I seem to remember. And it had big fans in all the stations, so it was good. Although I did like New York's subway system. Yeah, yeah, and that's better than London, certainly. We also went to a Comic-Con while we were there, which was good. Adam bought a T-shirt that said, I love you. Yes, on a cassette tape. (laughs) We went to a bar that had, was it 100 whiskeys all the way round it? Beers, mate. Beers. Was it 100 beers? Yes, yeah, 100 draft beers around a big oval bar. And three days later, you saw him again. Hey. <laughs> no, we only had a couple in there. I remember being amazed, as, as I still am, and I don't know why, because this happens every time I go away, that I've seen Newcastle Brown Ale on draft. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen it on draft in this country. And I've been to Newcastle. <laughs> Well, I've, I've seen well, it in, in a bar in Boston ha- and in Amsterdam. Have you just seen brown ale in Newcastle, though? They don't call it Newcastle Castle, brown yeah. ale. They'll just call it's it just brown, brown, brown ale. ale. <laughs> Good point. It's a possibility, I suppose, yeah. Up next is the New Age Outlaws versus Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie for the WWF tag team titles in a dumpster match. A dumpster, a dumpster match. match? Think of it as a casket match with a dumpster. I am. It's probably a bit more practical than a casket match, 
Because I don't think it matters what size your opponent is, they will always fit in a dumpster. So you don't need to go around making a double deep, double wide dumpster to put Yokozuna in. You just put them in a regular dumpster. Mm. It's, it's one of those things that I was absolutely shocked to find out that both Cactus Jack and Terry Funk a la Chainsaw Charlie were absolutely terrified of dumpsters. <laughs> <laughs> Crippling phobia. <laughs> They should have totally done that angle. <laughs> and you could completely understand the yeah, fear yeah. of it after being yeah. shoved off a Absolutely. stage. Yeah. PTSD from dumpsters. <laughs> That's what they should have done. Mm-hmm. Post-traumatic dumpster syndrome. Mm. Or would that be? PTDS. Yeah. So, after causing the breakup of the Legion of Doom that we discussed last episode, Michael Cole attempted to catch up with the New Age Outlaws as they left the building on the February 23rd episode of Raw is War. As Jesse James and Billy Gunn placed their bags in their rental car, a chainsaw sound could be heard. Chainsaw Charlie quickly appearing to chainsaw the outlaw's car, whilst Cactus Jack smashed in the windscreen with a baseball bat. What? Yeah, I saw this. It was rather exciting. So how did he chainsaw the car? Well, the the chainsaw now isn't a functioning chainsaw. It's a a chainsaw that they play the noise of a chainsaw over, Mm. and then it's got like a spark-generating thing within the handle. So did it basically just scratch it a bit? I think maybe they thought that giving Terry Funk, it'll be visually impaired by this stocking we're going to put over your head, and then have a working chainsaw and swing it around at people. Hmm. Might have been a bad idea. Well, after that terrible accident, it was. <laughs> but this segment is great. It's fantastic, yeah. Somehow, Dog and Gun managed to escape with their lives and limbs intact. Is that the one where Road Dog appears to be drunk? Road Dog is clearly either drunk or high, yes. Yeah, and it's wandering around with a camcorder. Later in the show, during a tag team match between the Rock and Roll Express and the Headbangers, announcer Jim Ross would announce that a bout had been signed for WrestleMania, pitting the New Age Outlaws against Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie, with some sort of stipulation attached, though Ross did not know what that was at the time. On the March 2nd episode of Rory's War, Dog and Gun would appear, scheduled for a match with Skull and Eightball of the DOA, though they looked in no condition to perform, both sporting neck braces. As they made their way to the ring, their now trademark dumpster sat in the aisle. Dog claimed that they had been brutalised the previous week and they were pressing murder charges against Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie for their actions in the parking lot. That makes them sound like idiots. Yeah, you can't press a murder charge if no one's been murdered. Also, you can't be one to press murder charges against someone killing you. Yeah. Presumably he means attempted attempted murder. murder. Yes. Dog then threw to his personal camcorder footage from the incident, which showed firsthand what it looked like to have Terry Funk come at you with a chainsaw while sitting in a car as the windscreen gets smashed in with a baseball bat. Terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Harrowing. The outlaws then apologised to the crowd, saying they had a doctor's note that claimed they were unable to wrestle. Are they at school? WWF Commissioner (laughs) Sergeant Slaughter then appeared on the Titantron and ordered the pair to not only wrestle, but defend their WWF tag team titles in the upcoming bout with the DOA. Is he like the cranky PE teacher that says you're going to do it anyway even though you've not got your PE kit? Just get something out the lost and found. Yeah. When the match inevitably made its way to ringside, Cactus and Chainsaw emerged from the dumpster to a big pop, forcing Dog and Gun to bail through the crowd. Skull and Eightball didn't seem too fussed that their WWF tag team title shot had been ruined, allowing Foley and Funk to pose in the ring. That said, Funk had a chainsaw in his hand, so you'd probably just let him do what he wanted. Mm-hmm. The March 9th Roy's War would see Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie take on the Quebecers in a match that didn't spill outside of the ring. It started there and eventually made its way into the squared circle. Hmm. Following Cactus and Chainsaw picking up the victory, the Road Dog would appear on the ramp, his arm in a sling. 
Dog challenged the pair to fight him, despite the injured arm, and when Cactus left the ring to face Dog, Billy Gunn stormed the ring from behind to whack Chainsaw Charlie in the back with a chair. The second hour of the March 17th episode of Raw is War would open with a singles bout between badass Billy Gunn and Chainsaw Charlie. Whilst Funk would make his way to the ring alone, Billy would bring the road dog along with him, as well as a dumpster adorned with graffiti proclaiming it Jack's House. It would be here, whilst Road Dog cut a promo telling Funk he'd regret the day he was born, which was apparently 300 years ago, that Jim Ross revealed that the tag team titles would be contested at WrestleMania for the first time ever in a dumpster match. For some reason, Dog would keep cutting a promo as the Funk-Gun match went on, which was at once both massively distracting and mildly amusing. <laughs> when Funk took the advantage on his partner, Dog made his way into the ring to attack Funk with his tag team title belt. Chainsaw Charlie managed to fight off the double team, hitting Billy Gunn with a DDT on the title belt and assaulting a bailing road dog at ringside as Cactus Jack finally appeared. Funk then used some rope that was suspiciously at ringside to tie road dog up whilst Cactus used a winch at the top of the ramp to raise him upside down into the air. Mm. As Terry Funk fought off Billy Gunn's attempt to save the road dog, Cactus Jack grabbed a microphone and advised dog that he didn't know how to let him down. Thankfully, though, Dog didn't remain suspended from the ceiling for the rest of the broadcast. Wow. That sounds pretty cool, though. Yeah. Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie once again took on the Quebecers on the go-home March 23rd episode of Raw is War, during which Jim Ross explained the rules of the dumpster match at WrestleMania, revealing that both members of a team had to be shut inside the dumpster for the bout to be won. Shortly after the contest began, the road dog and badass Billy Gunn appeared at the top of the ramp sporting suits and ties and setting up a table with buckets of champagne. Dog and Gunn then revealed their dates, a pair of inflatable dolls dressed as Cactus and Chainsaw, whom they sat on their knees and poured champagne into their open mouths. Well, they were a very specific kind of doll dressed as Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie. Champagne drinking dolls. Well, the kind of doll that might have a permanently open mouth. Yes, the ones that drink champagne. Eventually, the pair ran into the ring and caused a disqualification, using their champagne bucket to attack their opponents at WrestleMania. Dog then threw their table into the ring before holding Terry Funk in place for Billy Gunn to come off the second rope and frame him with it. Mick Foley was then subjected to a spike pile driver on a chair from Dog and Gunn, as Chainsaw attempted to get to his feet. The New Age Outlaws held their tag team titles aloft to end the go-home segment for this feud. Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie make their entrance, with Charlie carrying his trademark chainsaw, whilst Cactus carries a chair and some sort of cane. Charlie's got no stocking on his head now. Well, Chainsaw Charlie just seems to be Terry Funk in this match. Yeah, so he's kind of just dropped that a bit, and he's just, just Funk now. Presumably he realised it was just a silly idea. Hmm. It was really hard to wrestle it. After three and a half months. Yeah. We see highlights of the dumpster off the stage angle from two months ago. When we come back from this clip, the camera is chosen to focus on a warning that adorns the dumpster. Do not play in, on, or around, or occupy this container for any purpose. Not even a wrestling match. Well, it doesn't say anything about wrestling in, on, or around it. That said, I remember going to Brighton years ago and a friend of mine telling me... (laughs) about a bloke who was a teacher that had been out drinking all night and decided to sleep in one of them, like, dumpsters on the beachfront, and then a bin lorry came in the morning and took him away and crushed him and killed him. What? There was something on the news about a similar story either early this year or last year, I think. I think that's it's still a thing that happens when people, like, sleep in those and then the biffer van comes along and uh, 
scoops them up. Yeah, so heed this warning. Yeah. And, unless you're Braun Strowman, in which case you'll probably be fine. Yes. Was he fine? Yes. The New Age Outlaws have a portion of the crowd chanting along with the Road Dogs' spiel when they make their entrance. They also seem to have a fair few signs in the crowd. These guys are getting over. Yeah. Do, do you think an awful lot of it is down to Road Dogs' introduction to them? He's basically created a big, long catchphrase type thing ripped off Michael Buffer that people quite like. Yeah, I think that's probably got a great deal to do with it. And he's clearly got some character, while as Billy Gunn still is Billy Gunn. Mm. And Michael Buffer doesn't have any character, so it's always going to be better than that. Dog's intro is brilliant. He claims that Cactus and Chainsaw are legends, and everybody knows Outlaws beat legends, so once they, as Outlaws, beat the legends, what will that make them? Dog finishes his introduction with a warning, telling the Boston crowd that this may very well be for the weak at heart, in which case, Terry Funk needs to turn his head. (laughs) Cactus and Chainsaw join the Outlaws on the outside of the ring, with Charlie taking on Billy and Cactus taking on the Road Dog. Cactus whips Dog into the dumpster and viciously runs his knee into Dog's head. Billy Good now has Mr. Ass on his pants. He does. Is that the first time this has happened? I can't recall seeing it before. But then hasn't he been wearing trousers prior to this? Hmm, so maybe he's just had a bit of a change of style. But he does have Mr. Ass now, which will obviously be his thing. His thing. I don't know when that actually starts being his thing, actually. I guess, kind of going forward from this. There's definitely an episode of Raw where I swear Road Dog refers to themselves as Mr. Dog and Mr. Ass, mm. which is presumably where the whole thing came from. So the Mr. Ass thing stuck, but Road Dog didn't take up with the just being called Mr. Dog. <laughs> no, I think he stuck with Road Dog. Jerry Lawler queries the financial record-setting nature of the event, wondering if he'll get a raise. Will he? JR doesn't have an answer for him. As Funk and Gun make it into the ring, Cactus looks to throw the road dog into the dumpster, but Dog fights back, whacking Cactus round the head with some sort of metal tray. It's very sturdy. It looks like a roasting tin. Yes. You know, in lots of these hardcore matches, they seem to have very, very thin, almost tin foil yeah. type things. This looks like a more sturdy roaster. This could, you know, handle your Christmas dinner. Yes. Cactus quickly fights back, though, and looks to somersault into Road Dog, who is propped up against the dumpster, but Dog moves, and Cactus wipes out, somersaulting into the metal bin and landing on the floor. What was he thinking there? Because even if he hits it, it's going to hurt really badly. And he's going to land at an awkward angle. On his head. (laughs) Um, It looked awkward. Yes. He had to wait there a long time for the stuff with... Billy Gunn to kind of get involved with that. Yeah, because yeah. um, Dog doesn't move, does he? I think Billy Gunn Gun does baseball him. slides him out the yeah. way. So I quite like the idea yeah. behind it, but it just looks like an incredibly painful move to do. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it was almost like the they had to set up for it and then everybody had to be in position and then Billy Gunn had to start his run to do the baseball slide. Yeah. So everything was just in place for a little bit too long. It was entertaining. But, but yeah, kudos to him for taking that bump. It looked pretty nasty and, in all honesty, was a pretty ill-advised move either way. (laughs) The road dog then joins Badass in assaulting Terry Funk, first by whipping him into the guardrail and then whipping him towards Billy, who backbody drops him into the dumpster. That was a cool little spot. The outlaws close one of the lids and turn their attention back to Mick Foley. Billy whips Cactus into the back of the dumpster before road dog hits an absolutely vicious side Russian leg sweep that sends Mm. Cactus... Back of the head first into the steel dumpster. Devastating. Mm, really, literally. Because 
Well, Road Dog doesn't even fall over, does he? He just stands up. Yeah. And essentially he just backwards throws his opponent into the bin, leading with the back of their head. And they're pretty substantial things, those dumpsters. Yeah. You know, that would be an owl. <laughs> That'd be an owie. Yeah. It would definitely hold your Christmas dinner. That's they say. Before the tag team champions can pick Foley up to shove him inside the dumpster, Terry Funk crawls out, so Dog and Gun set Jack and Charlie up, hanging headfirst into the dumpster, so they can repeatedly shut the lids on their heads, which gets a reaction from the crowd. This looks and sounds cool, mm. and with some kind of irony, is probably the softest bump so far in the match. Yeah. Yeah. It's around about this time that JR tells us that uh, at this moment, Ken Shamrock is on the superstar line. <laughs> Presumably just screaming at people. Dog then throws Cactus in the dumpster before holding Chainsaw Charlie for Billy Gunn to rip his T-shirt off and hit some vicious chops. Dog then throws Chainsaw inside the dumpster also. The outlaws close one half of the lid, but before Dog can close the second half, Cactus pops up and applies stereo mandible claws to first the Road Dog and then Billy Gunn. That's quite cool. Cactus tries to pull Road Dog inside the dumpster with him, but before Dog is all the way in, Billy Gunn leathers Cactus with a metal tray to the head. Suddenly, Terry Funk throws open the lid on his side of the dumpster and smacks Billy Gunn round the face with another metal tray. Mm. Cactus and Chainsaw leave the dumpster, yanking Road Dog out with them, as JR references Terry Funk competing at WrestleMania 2. Jerry Lawler responds, claiming that Funk is a wrestler for the ages. Ages 60 to 70. <laughs> what, is he kind of like in his 50s here, is he? Yeah. It's about the same age as Jerry Lawler. I would guess Funk's a bit older than Lawler. But not by that much. Not by a lot. Mm. Cactus and Chainsaw roll Road Dog into the ring, where Cactus hits a swinging neckbreaker and Funk hits a standing one. Like, about the only wrestling moves in this match? Mm, could be the case. Well, look, the leg sweep. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, that is into dumpster. Yeah. <laughs> Billy Gunn tries to get back into the ring, but Cactus Jack quickly tosses him to the outside. Cactus then grabs a metal tray and hits an elbow drop to Billy Gunn on the floor. Chainsaw Charlie DDT's Road Dog on another piece of metal, while Cactus Jack goes under the ring for, as JR puts it, more toys. Mm. Jack finds a ladder which pops the crowd as he throws it into the ring. The orange ladders. Why has he got a ladder? <laughs> for a laugh. Clearly. People like it, though. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. They set the ladder up to small ECW chants, and as Cactus climbs it, Billy Gunn gets back into the ring and drops Terry Funk with a low blow. Billy tries to yank Cactus off the ladder, but is unsuccessful, so climbs the opposite side of it to meet Foley at the top. Road Dog gets back to his feet and whacks Terry Funk with a metal tray, causing Funk to stagger backwards into the ladder, toppling it to one side and sending Cactus Jack and Billy Gunn from the top of the ladder over the top rope and into the dumpster to a big pop. That was a super cool spot. That was brilliant. It was very well designed. I was apprehensive about what was going to happen with this because if it's slightly off, they'll just smack into the side of the the dumpster, but it it lands absolutely spot on. It's probably quite safe. Well, it's one of those ones where I think there is a good chance that it could go quite wrong, and if it's going to go wrong, it's going to go very badly wrong. Yeah. But they did it very well. Yeah, and I quite like the setup where Funk's like whacked and just stumbles into it to knock them over. But but the the only problem that I have with it is, if one of them was on the floor, or if one of them was on the table, and you can see he's climbing the ladder to kind of go and jump and, and put them through a table or do an elbow dive or whatever, 
I'd get the logic, but he just climbs a ladder. <laughs> with with like there was no obvious kind of reason for him to do that so obviously there's no good reason anyway but if they're going to do a bit of offense it would have kind of at least give them a reason for it yeah so billy gunn's reason for climbing the ladder is to pull cactus jack down yeah but cactus jack's reason for climbing the ladder is x is mm. is so they can do that spot <laughs> basically yes let's be honest billy gunn recovers from this remarkably quickly and joins the road dog in the ring to beat up on Terry Funk. Cactus recovers also, and climbs out of the dumpster before Billy Gunn powerbombs Terry Funk off the apron and into it. Mm. Now, this looks less safe. Because I think, with where he's being thrown, and the angle that he's at, it's essentially just going to whack his head straight into one side of the dumpster. That would hurt. Dog and Gunn then follow Cactus Jack up the aisleway, throwing him briefly into the crowd. They head behind the entranceway and it takes a few seconds for a camera to join the trio, during which we see replays of the big spots from the match so far. When we find Dog, Gun and Cactus, they are wandering down a narrow corridor, trashing everything they come across. It's amazing. Well, basically, there's what appears to be like giant bottles of soda. Well, well, before that, we get kind of the big like catering trolley mm, things, don't yeah. we? And they sort of go crashing through them, and it's all sort of great clanging and it's slashing a, noise. It's, it's a great camera shot, which is kind of one side of one of those those big tray cabinets, and then it just kind of topples towards the camera, and Mick Foley kind of flies over the top of it mm. into the camera. It looks really good. Yeah, it's very good. Referees and officials plead with the outlaws to cease their assault on Cactus, but the pair ignore their pleas choosing to instead throw Cactus into what appears to be giant bottles of Oasis. Mm. Mm. I've never seen anything like that in my life. <laughs> I wonder what the capacity of those bad boys is. What's your opinion on Oasis? The, not the band, the drink. Basically, myself and Baby Screams are big fans of the Strawberry Oasis. Okay, don't because think I've ever had that. It is like the sweetest drink you'll ever have in your life. <laughs> But surprisingly, has a lot less sugar than stuff like Ribena and Lucasade. Okay. But it, it tastes like it should have double. It's got lots of industrial-grade sweeteners in it. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, I don't know. It's, it'll have something in it. But the things that give you Alzheimer's or something. Possibly, or it might just have lots of strawberries in. I don't know. It's unlikely. Well, you've sold me on it. I am actually quite tempted to go and try it's and really, find it tomorrow. This is really nice. I'll tell you what. Don't ha- No, don't have it tomorrow. Wait till about next May, June time when we have a scorching hot day. <laughs> Get one, keep it in your fridge, crack it out when you're really warm. It's a very refreshing drink. <laughs> Sponsored by Oasis. Cactus Jack fights back after finding a chair, hitting both dog and gun round the head. Hmm. He also knocks over the remaining giant bottles of drink, exposing an empty pallet and a forklift truck. Hmm. It's one of those blue pallets as well. Adam, you've held a forklift. Do you still currently hold a forklift driver's licence? Oh, it's expired. You have to renew them every three years or so. So just tell us about the different sorts of forklifts you've driven, because I know there's different sorts. Well, I think Terry's driving a gas mm. forklift, which is one of the ones you'd use in like, big interior buildings, because obviously less fumage from them than the diesel ones you keep outside. Sometimes you might have the electric ones. Mm. You know, the, the, the gas ones were my, always my preferred ones, because yeah. the electric ones I always found a bit skittish. So, based upon his driving here, would you assume Terry Funk holds a forklift licence? He may have done 20 or 30 years ago, but his forklift driving in this is not great. Is it somewhat erratic? Somewhat. 
Then again, he's probably got a concussion from being powerbombed into a dumpster. <laughs> so it's understandable. Have you seen his back? We'll talk about yeah. his back. Yeah. Yes. Cactus grabs Billy Gunn and double-armed DDTs him on the wooden pallet as Chainsaw Charlie appears out of nowhere and sits in the forklift driver's seat. Funk lifts the forklift as Cactus tosses Road Dog onto the pallet. Funk yells, I got him, and lifts the <laughs> forklift tongs dangerously close to the ceiling. Mm. It's a bit unsteady. I, I wouldn't be happy if I was the road dog or Mr. Billy Gunn in that predicament because it looks like anything could go horribly wrong there. For example, they might just fall off about the 10 foot high that they are and be run over by a forklift. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be my major concern, I'll be honest with you. After smacking their heads on the concrete floor from falling from 10 foot. That would probably yeah. be fatal. Forklifts are quite heavy. Mm. And, and as we've established, the man driving it may well have a concussion. <laughs> I think he puts his tilt on too much too early. Me too. Yeah. Funk then drives a short distance across the backstage area where he finds another dumpster into which he unceremoniously tosses both dog and gun. They, they kind of have to toss themselves off, if you if you <laughs> pardon the expression. <laughs> no, but did you not see, like, Cactus Jack, like, grabs their feet to kind mm. of roll them off? Because I was thinking, because I was... While I was watching this, I was thinking back to my forklift training and think, you could actually do it if you took a reasonable run-up, so you'd have to get up to a few miles an hour, uh, and, and, and slam the brakes while supplying forward tilt, mm. you'd actually spill them off. Yeah. But it'd have to be quite accurate, otherwise you'd spill them just onto the concrete. I wish you'd done that. <laughs> Cactus Jack then closes both halves of the dumpster's lid, giving he and Chainsaw Charlie the win and the WWF Tag Team titles at 10 minutes and one second. Doesn't he also lower the pallet to really kind of trap them in there? Yeah, he lobs the, lowers the forks down onto the top of the dumpster. He does, during which JR yells, we don't need a crazy man driving a forklift. <laughs> yeah, some thinking about three minutes ago, uh, like that would have been good. Funk shouts and screams and bangs on the dumpster as Howard Finkel announces the winners to the crowd for a big pop. He then headbutts the dumpster <laughs> while Cactus Jack makes bang-bang actions on the floor as we cut to a short advert for Unforgiven in your house. Surreal match. But I found it really enjoyable. Like It, it, was, it was quite unsafe, but we're, we're in a period where hardcore matches aren't the norm in the company. And I thought this was... You know, this had enough big spots in it. Everyone puts in a pretty good turn. And it's quite interesting. Plus, it's got a forklift. Hmm. It's a lot of fun, isn't it? It's a very fun match. It's not particularly long, is it? Ten minutes, bang Ten minutes, on. Yeah. A fun match. That, like Adam says, there's a few very good little spots in there. I, I have some reservations over the use of a forklift in, in the match, <laughs> but actually the fact that nobody was horrendously injured, presumably by it, means that it was all right and they got away with it. It's my second favourite use of a forklift in wrestling. After, after Brock, Brock Lesnar. Lesnar. After Brock Lesnar, he bins it into a crowd because yeah. he's driving way too fast. <laughs> and it, it looks amazing. He almost he tilts it onto a couple of wheels, I think. I, yeah. I, well, my heart leapt into my mouth. Have you so ever thought, tilted if, it? If, if, yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. But if you tilt it off a ramp into a crowd, <laughs> you, you'd kill ten people easily. Have you seen... Because you occasionally get these videos on some, like, Facebook or YouTube where... It's footage from like a warehouse, and obviously somebody in the warehouse just catches like a bit of shelving wrong. Yeah. 
and, and clearly like half a million pounds worth of stock of something <laughs> fragile. <laughs> you, you, you can't be a forklift truck driver worth your salt unless you've smashed at least a bit of stuff. Yeah. And the, the problem is with forklifts, you've got to be very careful with them because they're incredibly stable front on, mm-hmm. but very, very unstable sideways. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's quite easy to tip them if you if you just drive them at a decent pace and turn the wheel pretty quickly, you will flip it over. Yeah. Someone should have told Brock Lesnar that. I mean, I, I've got a solution to that. If you're saying the very stable front on, have two fronts. Have a front on the side as well. <laughs> Ser- yeah, yeah. Good, serious good, suggestion. Good plan. I do, I've, I'd forgotten about that Brock one, because not only does he nearly crash it on his way doesn't down... He, doesn't he nearly he cl- catch some scaffolding? He, he climbs up on top of it, doesn't he? <gasps> yeah. And oh, then yeah. does like a lunatic leap off the top of the forks onto the big show. Yes. Oh, absolutely marvellous. We should do that match. Now, you know what I thought would, would actually be a potential use of the forklift? And this, this... I know it's a bad idea and it wouldn't work. I'll preface <laughs> it with that. But I, I did think of a possible use for ladder. So you know how sometimes people kind of might get their arms trapped in it, it's kind of across their back, kind of stretched outwards horizontally? Yes. Uh, like they're going to do some kind of spinning around and knocking people over. Well, actually, if if they had their arms kind of trapped like that, and then a forklift kind of like pinned them against the wall, it would kind of trap them there and they wouldn't be able to move. Because <laughs> it, it, it would be a bad idea, because obviously then it would make, them, make it really hard to get them in the dumpster. But I'm just thinking, like, as a use of a forklift and a ladder, I think it's a good one. <laughs> good thinking. They're, they're very dangerous bits of kit to be mm. using in a wrestling match. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. Yes. Do you think they actually considered or even asked Terry Funk, have you ever driven a forklift truck before? Well, <laughs> I've, I've driven a horse. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much the same. If you've got, if you got a horse with forks sticking out its face. My, my, my forklift is sick. <laughs> I nearly killed someone with a forklift truck once. Did you? Tell yeah. us. I often think that my life could have turned out very, very different because I was only about 20 or 21 at the time. And I was working a powder coating factory. And essentially, there was big metal frames that you had to put things on so they could go through painting baths and things like that. So it's pretty big. So the, the, it might be about half the size of one of our sofas, this thing. But it's essentially like a big frame with lots of chains going off because you have to hang it up um, so that it can be dunked into different like vats of stuff. And I was just driving along through this, through this warehouse this assembly line, I was going pretty fast and I was quite tired. I'd just done a night shift. And someone had clipped one of the chains properly onto the top of onto the top of the framework. So as I was driving along, it fell off and went under my wheel and flipped off basically a sofa-sized stack of metal to the left at about a hundred miles an hour. And some guy jumped out the way of it. And if he hadn't have just seen it out the corner of his eye and jumped, it would have killed him in a rather messy fashion. And I would have probably been sent to jail for manslaughter. Well, that's... Really, the story the entire podcast has been building towards. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, just one of those moments that I sometimes think back to, like a fraction of a second, like if he hadn't seen it, or if I'd have been in a slightly different position in the truck, then he would be dead, and I would have at least spent quite a while in jail. Mm. You I know. know. You know the stories you tell, Paul? Like, I think Adam may have just gazumped them. Did the guy who jumped out of the way used to play football in goal in the 60s? No, it's an old guy called Matty. He jumped out of the way and said, Fucking hell, he nearly hit me with that. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Sorry. 
Ooh. most importantly, did you later go on to capture the WWF <laughs> I'm guessing not. <laughs> no. did, did you ever trap anybody in a dumpster with a forklift truck? No. No, Should I have. I smashed loads of stuff up with one, though. But that's a, that's a story for another time. <laughs> Over the course of the last year or so, we've seen a number of matches, then, that feel like the template for what particular styles in the WWF might be going forward. I'd perhaps point to both Bret Hart versus Steve Austin at WrestleMania 13 and Bret Hart versus The Undertaker with Shawn Michaels as the guest referee at SummerSlam 97 as examples of kind of what WWF main events might look like going forward. In that vein, this very much felt like the template for what the WWF's version of Hardcore will end up like between 1999 and 2001. A kind of mixture of painful-looking spots, a variety of weapons, and a whole sprinkling of comedy. Mm. Yeah, I'd go with that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, I thought it was very entertaining. Light on the wrestling, heavy on the violence. Some of Mick Foley's bumps in this one, particularly the cannonball into the side of the dumpster, and the Russian leg sweep looked absolutely brutal yeah. and are clearly ill-advised. But on the flip side, this match did feature Terry Funk driving a forklift and screaming like a lunatic. Mm. So it yeah. gets a thumbs up from me. It didn't feel necessarily like the crowd were reacting all the way through, but they did come alive for the big moments. Yeah, I, one of my notes was that at the start of the match, the crowd were much more subdued than I thought they would be. They probably aren't really sure what they're going to get. Yeah. In this, so, th- so this type of match hasn't been established as a mainstay of the, the promotion that it will become. So they're probably expecting a casket match, mm. which have traditionally been really boring. Yeah. With the exception of The Undertaker, Shawn Michaels, which was the last one. That's that's true, but, you know, Kamala. Yeah. Karma. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you've the, got the, These sorts of things, you've got to put your opponent in a box and shut the lid. That's essentially the format. It's the same thing, only this time it's a dumpster. True. I guess this must have changed the opinions of it. What else could they do with that? What do you mean, what else could they do there with There must it? be more kind of... Receptacles. Vers- yeah, that they could do. So, so I was just thinking like a giant box of chocolates. Of course you were. <laughs> so they wheel like, out a giant chocolate box. Yeah, for Mark Henry. <laughs> yeah. So he could have a sexual chocolate box match. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? That kind of thing, yeah. Well, there that, must be other boxes. That that, that, that that would be quite good. Well, this isn't necessarily a box, is it, that generally people are put inside, whereas a coffin kind of is. What other boxes are, are people naturally put inside? Not many. Sensory deprivation chambers. Yeah, that would be a good one. Sensory deprivation chamber match. Yeah. Really thrilling. (laughs) Anyway. You'd defeat your opponent and there'd be a a, a serene, tranquil environment. Unlike the coffin, which was horrific. Anyway, speaking of big moments, being powerbombed into a dumpster from the apron felt like a pretty big moment. And don't think for a second that Terry Funk didn't pay a price for that. Mm. Is that what that big bruise is? From Funk's autobiography, More Than Just Hardcore, quote... I'm not going to try and read this all in Terry Funk's voice, by the way. We did a spot during the match where Road Dog powerbombed me into the dumpster from the ring. This meant that he would pick me up over his head and fling me forward, sending me back first over the top rope and into the dumpster below. It was a dangerous spot because there wasn't much room for error with a metal dumpster, but we thought it was worth it because we wanted to do some memorable things for the major event. It was especially dangerous because I was flying blind, so to speak, since I was going backwards. I was pretty much relying on Brian's guidance to make sure I landed inside the thing okay. Brian? Road Dog's real name. Oh, is it? 
His guidance was perfectly good, but what we didn't know was that there was a big 2x12 plank in the dumpster. What? Why? We hadn't checked the dumpster beforehand. Hell, who would think that there would be a huge plank in the dumpster we were going to use for our match? What do you mean they hadn't checked it? They just pulled it in off the streets. Had Armour Johnson been around? <laughs> yeah, he just bend his plank. <laughs> yeah. I was really angry on them. I out the company. Have it. I hit the board right on the right cheek of my ass. Immediately, a hematoma swelled up on me. It looked later like I had a blue watermelon sticking out of the side of my ass. I damn sure didn't feel like moving, but I knew I had a match to finish, so I got on out of there and kept going. Still, it was awfully painful, but that's the kind of thing that happens. To this day, I have no muscle tone to the right cheek of my ass. The whole cheek just hangs there, drooping. I have an indentation where I once had an ass cheek. Ever since then, I've been a half-assed wrestler. <laughs> End quote. It killed a buttock. Yep. Jesus. Like, considering that what you see a couple of minutes after taking that bump, it just looks horrific. It is huge, that bruise. Yeah, the, the colour's kind of... Blue. Yeah. He's basically got massive internal bleeding. Yeah. Bruce Pritchard released an episode of his show a little over a week ago focused on the New Age Outlaws, where he recalls the injury to Terry Funk in the dumpster match. Despite the huge bruise visible on Funk that would be shown on Rory's Wall the following evening, Funk no-sold the entire thing. Pritchard says that Funk outright refused any kind of medical attention, and that it was ultimately Funk's wife, Vicky, who, knowing her husband was genuinely hurt, sought Pritchard out to try and convince Funk to see her doctor. Pritchard found Funk drinking vodka and orange juice and eventually persuaded him to let a WWF doctor take a look at him. Said doctor informed Funk that there was nothing he could do for him there and then and that Funk really needed to go to the hospital. When he finally relented due to being advised that he had a massive amount of internal bleeding, Funk looked at Pritchard and said, Could you get me like six vodka and orange juice for the trip? I know those bastards are going to tell me I can't drink anymore tonight and by the time I get back, the goddamn bar may be closed. Pritchard, against what he says was his better judgment, then had his wife go and get Funk the requested six vodka and orange juices for him to drink in the ambulance on his way to the hospital. Pritchard closes the whole story, saying that even after they got back from the hospital, Funk continued to no-sell the whole thing, and that thankfully, the bar was still open. <laughs> Bloody hell. Needless to say, you know. Needless to say, Funk had the last laugh. And the last vodka and orange. And half an ass. Mm. In his first book, Mick Foley reflects on what it was like to team with Terry Funk. Quote, I don't mean to demean what Terry and I did, because in truth we had some excellent matches. With all wrestling considerations aside, I will always fondly remember my three-month union with Chainsaw, for it gave me the chance to ride the road with my hero and mentor to get inside his middle-aged and crazy mind. Terry Funk is simply everything that is right with the business. I think my fellow Florida panhandle neighbour, the road dog Jesse James, put it best when Terry Funk walked past one day and he said, I don't care what the announcers tell everybody, that's the real toughest son of a bitch in the World Wrestling Federation. End quote. Yeah, wow. Overall, this match I thought was pretty damn good fun, if a bit scary in places. A couple of final discussion points I wanted to bring up. Firstly, it occurred to me the other day that Mick Foley, not primarily remembered as a tag team wrestler, has both of his first two WrestleMania appearances in matches for the WWF tag team titles. Hmm. So his bout at WrestleMania 13, he teams with Vader against the British Bulldog and Owen Hart. And obviously here, he's with Chainsaw Charlie against Billy Gunn and the Road Dog. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, not often remembered as a tag guy, but bizarrely ends up kind of with his first two WrestleMania appearances in tag matches. I guess because soon he'll do something that eclipses 
everything that he's done before. Mm. Secondly, which will hopefully generate a bit more of a discussion, how high has the stock of Billy Gunn and the Road Dog raised in the space of a year? Whilst yes. Mick Foley was challenging for the tag titles the previous year, Billy Gunn was in a dark match against Flash Funk, and the real Double J Jesse James couldn't even make the card. Although we've never been the biggest fan of Mr. Gunn, it can't be denied that in the space of six months, he's gone from zero to hero in naught to 60. He has gone from zero to hero <laughs> to naught to 60. From jobbing on Shotgun Saturday night as a disciple of the Honky Tonk Man in October to performing in one of the top three bouts at WrestleMania in March is quite the ascent to main event status. Road Dog, we've been slightly keener on, but he has made the exact same ascent as his partner, and it's really been rather rapid. Okay, the WWF hasn't exactly been filled to the brim with great tag teams in the last year, but they've really staked their claim as the top duo in the promotion, and are certainly the single tag team most identified with like the early stages of the Attitude Era, mm. until kind of Edge and Christian, the Hardy Boys and the Dudley Boys will take the reins in kind of early 2000. Badass Billy Gunn and the Road Dog will be the WWF's top duo, which is really quite remarkable when you consider what each man was doing before they paired up. They've over-delivered on a really quite stellar level. Mm. Well, it's interesting because there is like 3,000 tag teams at the minute. <laughs> Enough to fill a 15,000-person battle royal. Yeah. It's interesting from Billy Gunn's perspective. We've seen him a lot and he's never really been that impressive. I was never big, really big on the smoking guns. I don't seem to remember either you two being particularly big on the smoking guns. They had some all right tag spots, but their promos were dire. The gimmick seemed outdated. Uh, then, obviously, Billy started shouting, which was even worse. Then he was Rockabilly, which was the worst thing ever. And now he seems to have found something that works for him. He's kind of found his niche, where he's with someone that has genuine charisma and personality. And Billy Gunn can fall into this stage because he was always quite good at just looking like a wrestler yeah. and doing some wrestling moves. And now he's he's expanded his repertoire to pointing at his ass as well. And he lets Road Dog do all the rest of the stuff to which they're most identified with. And it just works. And people like it. And they started off being those Weasley heels that people really hated. And now, as we see in the crowd, they've got quite a lot of support going on in there. And that will just go on and on really what pay-per-view is it where there's a bunch of people that have the whole of his greatest tag team champion of the world thing spiel on a massive massive sign in the top of the crowd there is one i can't remember there, which yeah, one but it's, it's absolutely huge and it's the entire thing isn't it yeah so when you reach they will reach that sort of level of popularity and we kind of we, we've seen the the start of that where they're kind of it's rolling now and they'll just keep on going yeah, I think they've done pretty well for themselves. Yeah, they've done all right. I don't think he was. We've ever thought he was necessarily the worst wrestler in the world. He's not been necessarily brilliant, but he's he's kind of pretty athletic, and there's the odd good spot that he's done. But you're right in terms of he's now with the right person. He's he's now got somebody who can do the talking. Yeah, and he's just quite good at being a bit of a slimy heel. I wonder if Bart could have done it. Yeah, if, if it had been Rockabarty. Instead of Rockabilly. Rockabarty. <laughs> and Bart Gunn had... Because they were kind of on a bit of a level. Maybe maybe Billy had slightly more charisma in the promos, but that wasn't hard. And then you just had Bart Gunn pointing at his ass and hanging around with Road Dog and doing the same things. Maybe it could have worked in that capacity as well. Or does Billy Gunn add that much to the mix? Well, and Billy Gunn could have got his head kicked in at WrestleMania 15. Possibly. <laughs> oh, but, in a parallel universe, that might have happened. 
But yeah, six months ago, these guys were essentially nothing. Couldn't even make pay-per-view. You know, we saw them face each other kind of twice, like in mid-97. And after that, they just did nothing until all of a sudden they kind of appear out of nowhere at Survivor Series and they were a heel tag team and Road Dogg's got his deal going on on the microphone. And from there, they kind of had this really kind of solid push. They've gone over the Legion of Doom repeatedly. They've moved to this feud with Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie. And okay... Mick Foley and Terry Funk aren't like an all-time great, well-known tag team. Together, they are two very well-respected names. So yeah. for kind of Billy Gunn and Road Dogg to be competing with them at WrestleMania, like that does their credibility no harm at all. Yeah. Mm. I wonder what the decision was to, you know, to turn them into what they, they actually are. And maybe it's because the tag team division was just quite stale. Mm. And there's a lot of tag teams, but... It's, there's nothing good happening, really, is there? So I wonder where the decision came from, where they just said to like Road Dogg, here, have a microphone, go and say something. Were, were these guys kind of genuine mates with Triple H, Shawn Michaels and that before they kind of formally joined DX or not? Yeah, I mean, in the same show I got the Bruce Pritchard anecdote from, he talks about the concept that it was Shawn Michaels that put them together. Okay. Right, okay. And that was kind of going to bat for them. We've seen them associated with DX yeah, on television yeah. in a kind of advisory capacity, shall we say? They're not, yeah. they're not formally in DX, but they're they on the, ta- the periphery. Yeah, they tagged with them at No Way Out and stuff, and they've been involved in a lot of angles together. So, yeah, it probably didn't hurt having Shawn Michaels saying, you should do more with these guys. Yeah. But you can't not say that they haven't kind of rolled with it. It's not like they're getting this big push and they're kind of doing nothing to warrant it, they are at least performing to a certain level where you think, I'm I'm okay with these guys being tag champions. Yeah, and I swear just uh, a huge amount is to stand to that microphone being in the hands of Road Dog as they come out. A massive proportion of what makes them so appealing is that. I wonder what would happen if they just said, Billy, you're the mouthpiece. <laughs> Your instant reaction there is to snigger. Because yeah. it just wouldn't work, would it? No, probably not. And it's really weird. There are a couple of roars where Billy Gunn does the intro and it just does not sound right. And that's definitely not a thing that kind of happens long term. They, they eventually work out what his, his niche in that is and to say, you just get the crowd to say, suck it. Road dog, you do everything else. <laughs> <laughs> Our semi-main event is The Undertaker versus Kane. Following his wrench-assisted destruction of Vader at No Way Out of Texas in your house, Kane was kept occupied on the Saturday night, February 21st episode of Raw Is War, battering Doc Hendricks, who was acknowledged openly on the show, held in Dallas, Texas, as having been fabulous freebird Michael P.S. Hayes earlier in his career. Is that the first time that's ever happened? I think they've kind of made, like, kind of small allusions to it on shows before. But never explicitly stated But it. never outright. There was, like, a video package, and they said, oh, he used to be pretty Michael sexy. P.S. Hayes. Yeah. Purely sexy. Purely sexy, not pretty sexy. The WWF even went so far as to air a Michael Cole-narrated video package that included WCCW footage and the amazing Bad Street to USA theme song. Hayes then danced his way to the ring to the song he penned in the city he was most associated with as a wrestler. As Hayes attempted to introduce the next match, the lights went out and Kane's music hit. Rather than bailing from the ring, Hayes attempted to attack Kane with his cowboy boot, which had little, okay, had no effect on Kane whatsoever. Kane then hit Hayes with a chokeslam and a tombstone to a mixture of cheers and boos. Clearly, this was an attempt to draw more heat for Kane, given the amount of babyface pops he had been receiving at the time. 
as Kane left the ring, Jim Ross wished that The Undertaker could be there to stand face to face with his younger brother, but alas, he was not. The February 23rd Roarers War would see Kane interrupt the rather random bout between Taka Michinoku and the NWA's Barry Windham. Wyndham and his NWA pals would have the good sense to leg it as Kane and his manager Paul Bearer made their way down to the ring. Taka, meanwhile, who was laid out in the ring by Wyndham, would be subjected to a huge chokeslam and a tombstone. Paul Bearer grabbed a microphone and claimed that there was now only one WWF superstar Kane was interested in, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Bearer informed Austin that Kane was challenging him to a match the following week on Raw Is War. Looking to deliver on his promise, Kane interrupted Steve Austin's interruption of D-Generation X's show opening promo on the March 2nd Raw. With Bearer telling Austin he needn't worry about WrestleMania, Kane was going to send him straight to hell. The Kane-Austin match would never get going, for reasons we'll get into later. This would leave Kane and Paul Bearer in the ring as the main event segment of the show. Bearer asked Kane to leave the ring and retrieve the ring bell, but before bringing it to Bearer, Kane grabbed a fan from ringside and gave him a bloody good kicking. In reality, it was local indie wrestler Jimmy V. With timekeeper Mark Yeaton and the ring bell bought to Paul Bearer, Bearer demanded a ten-bell salute for The Undertaker so that he could pay his respects. Demanding the audience be quiet and respect the fallen, Bearer forced Yeaton to toll the bell ten times, before demanding Kane chokeslam and tombstone the poor timekeeper, which he did with great aplomb. Bearer then said that Kane had one tombstone left to deliver, and after speculating it might be for Jim Ross or Jerry the King Lawler, Bearer demanded that someone step up to Kane. A gong then sounded and the lights went out, a purple hue covering the ring. Bearer promised Kane that the Undertaker was gone, telling Kane it's not him. As the bells got louder, a casket appeared at the top of the ramp, immediately hit by a lightning bolt. Laid atop it was the Undertaker, who sat up and faced Kane to a mega reaction. Taker looked at his younger brother and said, Welcome to hell and the demon who will lead you into eternal damnation, Kane. You've disappointed me. Is that the best effort you could put together at the Royal Rumble? Did you think that you could destroy me? Don't you know that you cannot destroy that which does not wish to perish? And you, Paul, the audacity to come out here week after week and claim responsibility for my disappearance? The fact of the matter is, on those times when I return to the world of darkness, it's of my own accord. It's a time for spiritual healing. It's a time for the truth, and I know the truth. And this trip, what I was doing, was soothing the souls of my parents because I had to explain to them why I was going to have to do the one thing I promised never to do. Paul Bearer interrupted, telling Taker that he was no longer the phenom. Kane then set off flames around his brother, the Undertaker not even flinching, walking forward and telling Kane, I will walk straight through the fires of hell to face you, Kane, and when you look into the eyes of your older brother, you will understand why I am the most feared entity in the World Wrestling Federation. You will understand why I am the Reaper of Wayward Souls, and you will understand why I am the Lord of Darkness, Kane. There's only one thought I want you to think about between now and WrestleMania 14, March 29th. I want you to remember that when we were small children and we would begin to fight, mother and father were always there to pull me off of you. Well, this time, there won't be anyone there to save you. May the hounds of hell eat your rotting soul, and you will rest in peace. The audience chanted along with Taker's catchphrase at a deafening volume as the lights went out fully and the show ended. That is an awesome bit of dialogue, isn't it? Good segment. Mm. The storyline is just outstanding. On the March 9th episode of Raw is War, Jerry the King Lawler would interview Paul Bearer alongside Kane backstage. 
Lawler would ask Bearer for his thoughts on The Undertaker's return, with Bearer quickly changing the topic, claiming that he wanted to talk about how Kane had brutalised Vader at No Way Out. When Lawler returned to the topic of The Undertaker, the locker room benches started opening and closing at will, freaking out both Lawler and Bearer, though Kane would remain unfazed, but slightly inquisitive. Similar to the possessed benches, the show seemed plagued with various transmission and lighting issues that Jim Ross apologised for, whilst Jerry Lawler seemed convinced they were related to the return of The Undertaker. Late in the second hour of the show, Kane and Paul Bearer made their way to the ring. This time, Bearer acknowledged that The Undertaker had returned, telling him that he had made a huge mistake and should have remained on the dark side with his parents instead of stepping into an inferno opposing Kane. As Bearer talked, the red lights dimmed to black and when they came back on, The Undertaker was stood behind his younger brother. Instantly, the lights went back to black and when they came back on once more, The Undertaker was gone. An angry Paul Bearer told The Undertaker that this was not a game and following WrestleMania, Kane would send him back to the dark side, never to return. The March 17th Tuesday night episode of Raw is War would be played by a number of visits by the Phoenix Suns mascot, a gorilla. To be fair, the Phoenix crowd seemed to enjoy it. What I enjoyed, though, was Kane coming out and hitting the gorilla with a chokeslam and a tombstone. <clears throat> this, though, wouldn't be Kane's final appearance on the episode, and as we discussed last episode, he interrupted the Sable-Luna confrontation, and as he was about to chokeslam a defenceless Sable, the Undertaker once again made his presence felt to a deafening pop. This time, Taker would be stood atop the Titantron to misquote Jules Winfield's speech from Pulp Fiction. Taker told Kane that at WrestleMania, Kane would know his name as the Lord of Darkness, and that now, after feeling Kane's wrath, Kane would feel his. Taker told Kane it was too late to turn back now, and that the only thing he would do was rest in peace. Taker then struck lightning upon a stood up casket at the top of the ramp, inside which an effigy of Kane was set on fire, though it did look more like the gimp from Pulp Fiction than it did Kane. Mm. It kind of had Kane's mask, but it was essentially like a bit of a scarecrow type thing. Yeah, it was very thin. I wonder if that was supposed to set a light straight away. Did it not? No, there was a a, a, a kind of a a pregnant pause, I guess you'd call it, a second or two. Okay. Where you could perhaps see too much and and see that it wasn't. (laughs) It's the kind of thing that if you went to Madame Tussauds and they said, this is Kane, you'd say, no, it isn't. There's an advert in that, that Playboy that got sent through about you can get your own Madame Tussauds waxwork made. And how much does it cost? It's about $250,000 or something like that. It's ridiculous. Paul looks generally like, I might do that. You could have a waxwork you in Madame Tussauds. No, I'd have a waxwork you. Really? I'm sure there's already have on there, Sullivan, it's fine. An eerie promo would air on the go-home March 23rd episode of Rory's War that featured The Undertaker at his parents' graveside. Taker told his mother and father that he had done some things in his life that he wasn't proud of, but that he hoped they understood what he was being forced to do to his younger brother at WrestleMania. He asked his mother for forgiveness for the sin he was about to commit. Taker said he hoped that one day the entire family would be able to rest in peace together, but that if they couldn't, he was willing to burn in his own eternal damnation. Taker told his parents that he hoped they knew that Cain had forced him to fight, but if they didn't know that, they should at least know that he loved them. Following this pre-taped promo, Kane and Paul Bearer headed to the ring, announcer Jim Ross expressing his hatred of Kane's pyro going off at ringside. Paul Bearer mocked The Undertaker for his heartfelt promo, claiming that he was sick and tired of Taker's whining. Bearer told The Undertaker that Kane had the same powers as his brother. When the crowd laughed, Bearer asked Kane for a demonstration of what he could do. 
Kane used his powers to set off lightning taboos from the crowd. Barry then turned his attention to the announce team and asked Kane which one he wanted to go. Kane then directed his lightning to the broadcast desk, though it didn't murder anyone. Bearer then asked Kane to kill a red spotlight in the arena, which he did. Bearer told The Undertaker that it was his fault that his parents were dead, it was his fault that Kane was locked up for 20 years, and it was his fault that Bearer had brought Kane to the WWF. Just like Bearer had told The Undertaker, Kane had wrought a path of destruction through the World Wrestling Federation until Taker would face him. Bearer then claimed he'd had enough and required one more demonstration of Kane's power. Kane then struck a crew member, later identified as Hunter Brown, at ringside with lightning, setting him ablaze as he ran up the ramp. Hunter Brown? Hunter Brown. He ran around kind of aimlessly. I don't know for sure how clear my thinking would be if I was on fire, but I'd like to think that I'd do something. Stop, drop and roll? Yeah, probably. Not just run around waving your arms? And then trip over. As good as this weird supernatural angle has been, and much of this has been used in Kane's highlight packages for 20 years, the live audience reacted with a weird kind of eye-rolling apathy to Kane setting someone on fire, which is not how the WWF would have you remember it. No. He doesn't often use his lightning powers again, does he? No, I don't think so. And it's mostly remembered for that amazing sign at that English pay-per-view. What happened to Kane and The Undertaker's ability to some lightning at will or something like that something like which is a really only in britain Mm. i think would you have a sign that was was that well it's ironic isn't it that they can summon lightning but their entrances both require darkness (laughs) (laughs) he said that kane's got the undertaker's powers but i consider the undertaker's greatest power to be that motion sensitive light switch (laughs) (laughs) and he doesn't seem to have that yeah the resurrection of a damned soul. The torment of a troubled past. Born of the same blood. Two brothers. Now the story must be told. Undertaker! Burn the funeral home to the ground! You killed your family, Undertaker! and blood 
I will never fight Kane. Never fight my own flesh and blood. Kane, attacking his brother. Wait a minute, he's gonna fight back. The Undertaker, the Undertaker's had enough. He oh no, he had a chance to, or he didn't do it. What must be going through his mind? What must be going through his soul? Undertaker, welcome to your worst nightmare. But in the midst of a nightmare, there was an awakening. Two brothers would reunite and fight together. It appeared as if the Crypt Keeper had lost his vile hold on Kane and the Undertaker's past. And in one glorious moment, two estranged souls became one. Kane apparently is extending his hand in some sort of bond or friendship to his older brother. And Undertaker is returning it. But the eternal flame was merely a smokescreen as Paul Bearer and Kane's wicked plot of deception was unleashed on the Phenom. Oh, no! After some brief chatter from Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler, we get a video package that goes through a lot of the build to The Undertaker vs. Kane, opening with the epic tunes of O Fortuna. It's fucking awesome, and contains about a year's worth of build, dating back as far as Paul Bearer talking about The Undertaker's secret. We see Kane's debut at Bad Blood, and subsequent destruction of both the Hell in a Cell door and his older brother. 
Kane wrecking absolutely everybody as shown, as narrator Michael Cole details that Kane's path of destruction was leading towards his brother. Kane hitting Vader around the head with the wrenches included. We are told that The Undertaker refused to fight his younger brother, despite Kane's attempts to provoke Taker into doing exactly just that. Kane's brief alliance with The Undertaker in late December, early January is shown, Cole speculating that Paul Bearer may have lost his grip over the big red monster. Alas, that was not to be, as at the Royal Rumble, Kane tombstoned his brother into a casket and set said casket on fire. Taker's return in February is then detailed, as well as Kane setting the crew member on fire. The brothers' various magical lightning powers are shown, and the promo ends, naturally, with The Undertaker telling his brother that the only thing left for him to do is rest in peace. It was pretty phenomenal, isn't it? It might be my favourite video package ever, because it's long, but there's such a wealth of stuff in there, and there's so many amazing images from all of this stuff. And you've got Paul Bearer almost acting as this narrator over the entire thing, which is way better, actually, than Michael Cole's narration, which is probably the only weak point of it. Mm. I just don't think he's got a voice with enough gravitas yeah. to pull something like this off. It's nothing to do with, you know, maybe the words that are being spoken. But the images that you've got for this are just absolutely phenomenal. And you can tell that the, the, the camera crew have done a really great job of capturing all of, like, the looks of Kane. There's loads, like, loads of close-ups of Kane's face mixed into this and all the bits where he looks like the scariest or the most supernatural or the most enigmatic and all these different like shots of him going throughout it. It's absolutely fantastic. I'd also say that the sound's pretty cool in this as well. So yeah. The, kind of any effects that are put in there and cuts and stuff, it's, it's all very, very well put together, which it should be, though, considering the the length and the seriousness of this feud. It deserves this, and, and it got it. Yeah. I've, the Whoever's in charge of the video, the video production team for the WWF have really like earned their money tonight because the opening video package was amazing for this. This is fantastic. We get the really cool like Legends one a bit later on. Like All the video packages for this event are fantastic. Yeah, this is a pretty damn long promo, but it absolutely deserves to be. We've covered pretty much every inch of this build in what I think is pretty great detail, and it's good to see that the WWF can reach almost a year into their archives to get over the storyline heading into this one. Again, it deserves it. It's perhaps a bit of a stretch, but you could almost say that this is really the destination of almost two years' worth of storylines for The Undertaker. Everything since Mankind showed up and the subsequent turn of Paul Bearer has really led into that. And in that time, he's become a completely different performer and a mm. character than he was when we first began the timeline. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, the latter aspects of the storyline are a bit out there, but doing it with these characters is just about the only time you're going to be able to get away with it and it not feel completely hokey. Yes, if Flash Funk all of a sudden got magical lightning powers, it would be totally cringeworthy. But Kane and The Undertaker, sure, why the fuck not? Well, yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised, like, Shawn Michaels didn't decide I want to do that. <laughs> I, I think my next gimmick should be I have magical lightning powers. I'm going to be a wizard like Gandalf <laughs> and I can zap people. <laughs> In real time, we've spent about 18 months looking at every aspect of this, and I'm pretty damn excited to see The Undertaker finally exact revenge on Kane. Yeah, there's a good payoff to a huge build. Do you think he'll win? <laughs> <laughs> My gut says yes. Okay. 
Back in the arena, Howard Finkel introduces one of the all-time baseball greats, the hit king, Pete Rose. He's had lots of hits. Pete gets something of a mixed reception, though it's mostly booze. Any idea why that might be? It's because he's probably from a different town to where they are. That's my guess. <laughs> and he probably did something against that town. So it'd be like it would it would be like if they decided to have WrestleMania in Leicester. Yeah. And have, I don't know, Harry Kane do some announcing. To turn up and, and verbally insult Jamie Vardy. Vardy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And just say, Leicester are rubbish. I've got loads of goals past Casper Schmeichel. I think he played the, the bulk of his career in Cincinnati. Okay. I think so. I, I, don't, really, I don't really understand much about baseball. Uh, we went around that tour around Boston Red Gardens. Yeah. Boston Red Gardens. Boston Gardens. <laughs> Is that what it's called, the Boston Red Gardens? We went round Fenway Park in Boston where the Red Sox play, yes. That's pretty much what I said, isn't it? No, no that's nothing like what you said. <laughs> but interestingly enough, there is a bar kind of, was it in the building or like opposite the building or something? Can you remember? Nearby? Did we go to a bar? Because you had to like book when you went for your time on your tour, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. So we went to a bar and do you remember we were sat in there talking to some guy and his girlfriend who tried to explain baseball to us while you and I tried to explain cricket to him? Oh, we went to the Harpoon Brewery. See, there you uh, go. So it's a brewery bar. It like set, set out a bit like kind of a Bavarian-style drinking thing where you just sat at long benches and uh, had very nice IPAs from the Harpoon Brewery. Yeah, it was good. Mm. Then we went around a tour around Fenway Park where Bruce Springsteen had played recently. Not for the Boston Red Sox. <laughs> But Pete Rose, go on then. Uh, well, I, again, I had a bit of a look over his Wikipedia page and condensed it down into about a minute's worth of dialogue. Let me guess, he had an affair with Bill Clinton. He did not have sexual relations with that man. He, well, that's what he claimed. <laughs> he presented up all night. He was in Baywatch. He's got his own range of bras. <laughs> <laughs> he was in Walker, Texas Ranger. He attended a fire that he wasn't allowed to be put out. He, he was a naked gun. <laughs> uh, he was a baseball league star. Because oh. he comes out and I think he's kind of a stand-up comic by what he's saying, but he's not. <laughs> I think he had a career from 63 to 86. So, so fairly long-standing. And then became a manager 84 to 89. So he had a crossover where he was player-manager, I'm guessing. I don't, I'm guessing he was a, a pretty big deal because he's got like, three World Series rings. I'm guessing it means he won three World Series, an MVP award, and some golden gloves. For which episode? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> WrestleMania 14 Part 2, baby. No, he's definitely getting that. Uh, and some golden gloves, which I imagine is a bit like the golden boot or something, for what? scoring the most goals in the season. Isn't golden know. gloves boxing? Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. Well, but maybe it's for catching. Yes, it would be for catching, won't it? As with everyone that turns up on this, there always seems to be a bit of controversy. <laughs> No shit. Yeah. He was investigated in 1989 for illegal betting on his own team while he was playing for them or managing them or something like that. Naughty boy. Naughty, naughty boy. I think he contested this, but it was always said, no, you've done something wrong, tough. And he was made ineligible to be part of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, that worked out for him because he's in the WWE Hall of Fame. In 2004, the first admission into the celebrity wing... Uh, he is in the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame, which he was put into in 2016. In his 2004 book, My Prison Without Bars, he does admit to betting on his team whilst playing or managing. But he only ever bet that they would win. That's fine. Not against them. 
I don't know. Basically, he did some betting laws that that weren't very favourably looked upon being illegal and all that, and then was barred from being in any Hall of Fames for the National Baseball Federation or whatever it is. <laughs> we sent to change its name to the National Baseball Entertainment. <laughs> there is a bunch of like American listeners out there right now, like cringing. Yeah. <laughs> Your explanation. I, I, I know nothing about baseball, and to be honest, even the Wikipedia page was was a bit. I just didn't understand what it was talking about. He's not in their Hall of Fame. He is in the Wrestling Hall of Fame for getting Tombstone by Kane. He was inducted by Kane. There you go. <laughs> that seems like a fair deal. Yeah. I will Tombstone you, but I'll later induct you into our Hall of Fame. <laughs> What's the, seems to be the only person with any attachment to him whatsoever in mm. the wrestling business. Because all that he does is he comes out, he says something, or he comes out dressed as a chicken or something like that, and then Kane tombstones him. JR announces that Pete will be the guest ring announcer for the upcoming match. Pete takes Fink's mic to booze and immediately gets amazing heel heat by telling the Boston crowd that the last time he was there, we, I presume whoever he played baseball for, Cincinnati, kicked Boston's ass and says that Boston won't ever win a World Series. Oh, boo. He references a few people that I've never heard of, but are presumably baseball players. Rose calls Boston the city of losers, and JR asks the king if he prepped Pete for his turn on the microphone. <laughs> Rose introduces Kane, and the lights go out to a big pop. Kane and Paul Bearer make their way to the ring, pyro exploding as they do. Lawler says that Kane is the kind of guy who will show you a hammerlock using an actual hammer. <laughs> Kane enters the ring and stares at Pete Rose as his music stops. Kane grabs Pete by the neck to a mega pop before scooping him up and hitting a tombstone to a massive, massive mm. reaction with JR selling the whole ordeal like Kane has murdered the guy. Right, I don't understand this. In You've had Kane come out and like basically murder stage crew in order to get him some heat. Yeah. But then you you have him come out and Tombstone, number one heel in the company, Pete Rose, <laughs> which just turns him into a super baby face. Yeah, yeah. this is definitely quite curious. Do, do you think they intended this to happen or not? I think they f- were fully aware that by having Pete Rose come out there and be a dickhead... And rubbish the, the, the local team. Yeah, that then having Kane come out would subsequently get him like a mega face reaction. So I, I think they entirely knew what they were doing. I just don't know why they would do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because it gets one of the, like, even kind of compared to the main event, that possibly gets about the biggest pop, I would oh, say. They, they, these are Sabre-esque reactions. They are Sabre-esque <laughs> reactions, you're not wrong. To, to be fair, to go back to your analogy, Paul, if I went to an event at the King Power Stadium where Harry Kane came out and rubbished Jamie Vardy, <laughs> should Kane then appear and tombstone Harry Kane, <laughs> I would pop for that. Yeah. So... Yeah, even yeah. if he was booked in a heel later on. It'd be even better if Harry Kane was wearing his facial appliance. <laughs> it would be. I mean, I quite like it, because Pete Rose is really good at being a dickhead. Mm. Yeah. And then Kane giving him a tombstone is is really cool. But, yeah, like you, I just don't realise why they've done it. Because it doesn't seem to fit with the character. You, well, want, it, you want this guy to seem evil, yet now you're giving him something that the crowd are going to cheer. Well, it does fit with the character, because we had him tombstoning the, the Phoenix gorilla. Suns mascot yeah. and... Michael Hayes and Wink Collins and all those other people. All those other celebrities. Wink Collins. (laughs) Let's not get into that. (laughs) So 
it, it's a precedent that he will just come out and attempt to chokeslam man tombstone whoever happens to be in the ring it's just kind of curious that they would get him to do it to someone who's just come out and managed to get the crowd to absolutely fucking hate him yeah. So, so one possible remedy for this. Let's see what you think to this. Um, <laughs> could could they have not had he does the tombstone to Pete Rose that would get lots of um, kind of a face reaction, and then presumably they could get like a few referees and the people down, and he could go mental on them as well. But we know full well from Ken Shamrock that going mental at referees makes you popular. But it, it's a bit different if it's if it's done in a menacing way rather than a kind of scary way. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's it's weird because obviously it gets a great reaction and I think it gets the reaction they want it to get. But I guess the logical way to do it would have been to have like a famous Boston Red Sox player come out and say, hey, I'm so happy to be here. Love Boston, great town, won lots of things here. Love love the baseball team, they're the best. They're definitely going to win the World Series. We have the best tea. Yes, that kind of thing. And then have Kane come out and tombstone that person would presumably get him a big heel reaction. Mm. But yeah, it's it's a bit of a curious one, but I quite like it as a moment. Yeah. Mm. yeah. The lights go out once again to another huge reaction. Instead of The Undertaker's music hitting, we hear thunder sound effects and the entranceway turns blue. Druids walk out of the entrance holding torches above their heads and O oh, Fortuna plays. This... It's fucking epic. Mm, It's pretty cool. The couple dozen druids line up in the aisleway, using their torches to form an arch. Lightning then strikes the entrance, and a gong hits to signal the arrival of the Undertaker. Taker walks down the aisle to a huge reaction, wearing a gown with a headpiece that kind of looks like a diamond round the back of his skull. The thunder effects continue, on top of Taker's music as he makes his way to the ring. Taker stands and stares at Kane from the floor before walking up the steps and bringing the lights in the arena back on to another mega reaction. This is light switch. Good entrance. Like, very good. And he's become really famous for his entrances. Is this the biggest one to date that he's had? Or is his Batman entrance a bit bigger? This is definitely bigger. So, And it will continue just to get more and more ridiculous, won't it? And does he set the precedence for really silly WrestleMania entrances? Well, this is it. I mean, my kind of notes here say it, this is a truly, truly like incredible entrance. And I think is actually quite important in the pantheon of WrestleMania. I can't think of another WrestleMania entrance prior to this that has this much effort and pageantry put into it. Yeah. Like, I mean, the, the, the Sean zipline yeah. one's pretty a big deal, but it's not as orchestrated exactly. as this. Yeah. Well, well, I've not seen it, but I, but I hear Roddy Piper had bagpipers. Was that at the first one? Possibly, but I mean, you have stuff like we saw at WrestleMania 9, but aside from Sean's zipline one, we've not really seen anything on the scale of, say, all the ones Cena gets, no. like or, in subsequent years. Or Triple H's yeah. epic Terminator-esque ones. And so so like this that. feels definitely like the first time they've gone with a really highly produced kind of effects-laden entrance, and in my opinion, is probably second in the list of The Undertaker's best WrestleMania entrances. You're going to say the ones with the hands, aren't you? Yeah, 29 with the zombie hands. Like, I think that's really cool. Uh, I didn't think that looked as good as I thought it would because I remember everybody banging on about that. And then I saw it and I thought, that's that's pretty good. I think this one's slightly better. Yeah. Yeah, I I think this is as good as it gets. Mm. Well, yes and no, it's not Rusev in a tank. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's essentially the entrance is you're going to drive in a vehicle, but that vehicle's a tank. Enough said. Mm. They should have done Terry Funk an entrance with a forklift. Yes. Yeah, that, that could have been his new thing. <laughs> could have forklift ready or something. As the Undertaker enters the ring, JR wonders what he must be thinking. Is his mind focused on the task at hand, or will he be too occupied on thoughts of his dead parents? Again, this is not like a common storyline in wrestling. No. no. Ross speculates that this could be the last match The Undertaker ever has. The bell rings, and Taker walks towards his younger brother. The pair stand nose to nose, Kane being slightly taller. Taker strikes with the right hand first, but Kane doesn't budge. A second strike doesn't move him either. Kane swings, but Taker ducks and carries on striking Kane, forcing him into a corner. Taker charges, but Kane gets a back elbow and tosses Taker into the corner. Kane swings at Taker, but Taker ducks and goes back to punches and kicks to keep Kane in the corner. Taker goes to whip Kane to the opposite corner, but Kane reverses it and charges. Taker gets a boot up and rings Kane's arm, but Kane counters with a quick clothesline taking the Undertaker down. Taker sits up immediately, though, for a pop and kicks Kane in the knee. Kane reverses an Irish whip and sends Taker into the ropes, the dead man ducking a pair of clothesline attempts. On his third rebound, Taker looks to crossbody Kane, but Kane catches him and moves him into what looks like a tombstone position. Instead of dropping to his knees, Kane runs Taker upside down into the corner, leaving his older brother hanging. Kane puts the boots to the Undertaker before choking him on the mat. Kane lifts Taker up into the corner, hitting further big right hands. Kane whips Taker hard across the ring, which Taker bumps nicely for. From the floor, Paul Bearer taunts the Undertaker, telling his former charge, I told you so. What, what do you make to this kind of start match? Do you think this was the right start to a match of this kind of epic proportions? Or these epic proportions? I feel like that's a loaded question in that you think it doesn't. So go on. One, I, I, I couldn't decide. Because it starts, it starts with the kind of stare down and punches. Yeah. And I didn't know if if this should have been one of the matches where they don't wait for the pleasantries, although I get that would spoil the entrances. So I kind of felt that this should be so personal that they can't wait to get their hands on each other. But you also, it's a big guy versus big guy match, isn't it? So I think the, I think the pacing's quite nice for it. Actually, the one thing that I would have liked to see, I think it would have been really interesting if Kane had just tombstoned him. What, like instantly? Right, right at the start. And that, that could have set a really interesting like pathway for it to go for the for Undertaker to then get back, get himself back together. But he doesn't, because it just seems really strange that he then goes and hangs him up in the corner. Yeah, totally. I think the commentators reference it as like, why didn't you just tombstone him yeah. there? It's kind of like a bit tree of woe, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. but he doesn't quite get the foot Fit, no. hooked under. And he's kind of too tall because he just like slumps down at the bottom. Yeah. yeah. It, it, was, it was an interesting start. Like, I didn't necessarily not like it because you know this match has if any match ever has it a massive big fight feel to it in all senses because mm. the build has been amazing the entrances have been great the crowd are really into it and you've got just two guys that you can't wait to see go at it Kane lifts the Undertaker up in a suplex position and drops him stomach first over the ropes Kane climbs to the top rope and dives off hitting the Undertaker on the back sending him from the ropes to the floor is that where he kind of leaps up not yet, I don't think, no. He does do that at some point, doesn't he? Soon, yeah. yeah. Taker rolls back into the ring, where Kane continues to pummel him in the corner. 
Kane brings Taker out of the corner and whips him into the ropes. Taker ducks a clothesline attempt, and when he rebounds, he leaps up onto Kane's shoulders, where Kane drops him face, or mostly knee, first to the mat. That's a really weird move, because it just looks strange. It, it does, like... I don't know if it was what they were going for. I mean, it certainly were, how it ended up was amazing, but it was almost like they might have been going for like an electric chair drop or something because he kind of nearly gets into that position. Yeah. And then I guess kind of like he's not quite in position, so maybe Kane's unsure and goes for like just plant him on his face. But like you say, it's, it doesn't quite do that either. It, it's near, it looks slightly awkward in the end. But just for Taker to get that high... Is, is something. I think that's what looks weird about it. Like with a big guy, and like facing someone like Shawn Michaels, you quite often get this spot where they end up on their shoulder and hit them a few times, and then it can go one of either ways. Mm, yeah. But seeing the Undertaker as the person that's on someone's shoulder doing that seems really strange because he's normally the guy that's holding the other person. Yeah. Up. Yeah. It, it, it's kind of all credit to his athleticism. Yeah, I thought the first part of it was really impressive, kind of agility-wise from Taker, but kind of the latter half where Kane ends up sort of dropping him on his knee, lets it down a little Mm. bit. Kane kicks Taker to the outside and follows. Kane lifts Taker up and drops him throat first over the security railing before shoving him face first into the steel steps. Kane then picks up the steps and drops them on his older brother's back whilst Paul Bearer keeps the referee distracted. Is this where you get the shots of the crowd swearing at Paul Bearer with the big foam fingers? Yes. <laughs> it's like, so you're, you're front row at WrestleMania, and rather than watching the match, you're spending your time swearing at Paul Bearer with your big foam fingers. <laughs> Unbelievable. Taker then lays over the bottom half of the steps, where Kane once again drops the top half onto him. It makes an impressive noise. He just misses it. it yeah. And it, so it's, it's very well aimed in the end. Yeah. Because he's thrown it kind of corner first. Yeah. Yeah. And it would... so it sounds amazing and it's just close enough that yeah. to most most perspectives it looks yeah. like he's just thrown it on him and it makes this awesome sound. But if he had it just hit him mm. in the small of the back with the corner of those steps that yeah. weighed 300 pounds, that would have been incredibly painful. Yeah, I kind of, I, I thought the same because I reckon there's probably about maybe a dozen or so people that are kind of quite near and can see from that angle thinking that looks terrible because he's missed. Mm. but to everybody else that will look great and it certainly sounds great yeah and I think Taker does a very good job of selling it too Kane heads back inside allowing Paul Bearer to get in a cheap shot on the Undertaker from behind before putting the boots in he really shouldn't put the boots in he's not very good at it (laughs) Jerry Lawler sells Paul Bearer's version of the backstory between the Undertaker and Kane claiming that Taker was the one who started the fire that killed their parents and that Kane has been waiting patiently for years for revenge Taker gets back up on the apron, where Kane suplexes him back into the ring. That was nice, wasn't it? That yeah. looked pretty smooth, yeah. yeah. Kane again keeps Taker in one of the corners, striking away at him, forcing the Undertaker to bring his fists up. Kane whips Taker across the ring, but Taker bounces out of the corner and tries to take Kane down with the clothesline, but Kane barely budges. JR sells that perhaps the Undertaker is trying to get Kane to punch himself out, which Lawler says may have worked for Muhammad Ali, but won't work for the Undertaker. It probably wouldn't be a bad legitimate tactic. I like it as kind of an internal storyline in the match mm, yeah. that, like, yeah, he's just trying to hang on long enough. Mm. It, it, it really does make a lot of sense, doesn't it? And it very much explains the lack of offence that the Undertaker has for exactly. the, the first probably about, I don't know, 10 minutes of this match. 
Taker ducks another pair of Kane clothesline attempts, but runs straight into a chokeslam from Kane. It gets a two count, with Kane lifting the Undertaker up before the referee can count three. Why has he done that? Well, JR thinks that Kane had the match won, but wants to destroy his brother. Kane goes on to apply a chin lock, and the crowd <laughs> rallies for Taker to make a comeback. That's where I kind of had a bit of a logic disconnect with that. I'm absolutely fine with you lifting Taker up from the chokeslam pin. Yeah. You want to punish him more, you want to destroy him more. If you're then just going to like hit tombstones or something like yeah. that to, to hurt him more. But going to a chin lock, I've just hit this totally devastating move to you, which clearly would have kept you down for the three count, but I'm just going to wear you down slowly with a mm. chin lock now. Maybe, maybe he called IRS yeah, and asked, what should I do in this match? And just thought, chin lock, mate. JR talks about The Undertaker's success at WrestleMania in the past, but makes the mistake of saying that his first appearance was beating Jake the Snake Roberts at WrestleMania 8. Was it Jimmy Snooker? At WrestleMania 7. Mm. Taker manages to make it back to his knees and hits frantic strikes to the ribs of Kane, but when Taker gets to his feet, Kane takes him down with a big clothesline. Kane hits a big elbow drop and once again goes back to the chin lock. JR sells that nobody has ever physically dominated The Undertaker like Kane is now. True story, I should think. Taker again makes it back to his feet, managing to grab Kane by the wrist and lift him up, over the ropes, where Kane falls to the outside, but lands on his feet and looks to come straight back into the ring. Taker hammers away at Kane stood on the apron, before big booting him to the floor. Kane, though, still won't go down, so The Undertaker goes airborne, diving out of the ring, looking to take Kane out. Unfortunately for Taker, Kane swipes his aerial assault out of the way and Taker goes headfirst into the Spanish announce table, destroying it. How cool was that? Yeah, it's like an awesome spot. It's straight out the corner, isn't it? But every time that someone the size of The Undertaker does this sort of stuff, it's phenomenal. It doesn't almost seem physically possible that someone that is you know, 6'10", can get enough lift to clear mm. the top turnbuckle in a rather graceful swan yeah. dive, actually, yeah. even if his, his sole purpose is to smash a table with his face. It's interesting, isn't it? Do you guys remember Daniel Bryan's debut on NXT? Where he crashes sort of kidney first onto yeah. the announce table? Because very randomly, I watched that match just before I watched these last three matches of WrestleMania. Okay. It just something kind of popped up on, on the network while I was just eating my dinner. I thought, I'll do that because I can't eat my dinner and type my notes at the same time. So I kind of watched that, which was quite a very enjoyable little match, actually. It's him um, and Chris Jericho, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, really, really nice little match. And it kind of really just kind of reminded me, yeah, they're, they're very similar spots. After a replay, Kane brings Taker back into the ring and heads to the top rope. Kane hits a clothesline from the top, reminiscent of his older brother. Kane covers and gets a two, but Taker lifts his left shoulder up. JR really sells that nobody has ever manhandled The Undertaker like Kane is now. Kane goes back to pounding away on The Undertaker with fists, Taker shielding himself from the strikes. Taker eventually fights back and manages to scoop Kane up into a tombstone position to a big pop, but Kane shifts his weight backwards and Kane drops Taker with a tombstone of his own to a reaction. It's pretty tight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really good job that Kane does just an extra shuffle where he just hotches him up a bit further. Because mm. if he hadn't, we could be looking at a rather nasty situation. Yeah. Kane keeps Taker's arm flat on the mat and covers, 
only getting a two. I quite like that he does the opposite of what Taker does with the pins. Yes. Yeah. Do you think it's slightly strange that, at least to my perception, he doesn't get massive reactions for Undertaker kicking out of Kane's pins? It, I don't think people buy that Kane no. can beat him. Yeah. Just in the way that the storyline's gone. I, I don't think he doesn't get much of a reaction where he pins him after the close on. I don't think he gets much of a reaction after he pins him after this. Yes, I very much noticed that. I, I, I don't think the crowd buy the near falls at all. Mm. Which is a shame. Yes. It's kind of one thing that, that detracts a little from yeah. the match. There's a fun moment where the referee scuttles away, falling backwards after telling Kane it was only a two. Kane does an amazing job of looking super threatening to the refs. I can't even imagine Earl Hebner giving this guy any shit. Mm. Kane goes back to relentless punches on The Undertaker in the corner, but Taker fights back with JR suggesting that Kane seems to be slowing down and fading a little bit. Taker finally manages to knock Kane down with a clothesline, which gets a reaction from both the crowd and Paul Bearer. Kane gets back up and a big boot won't put him down, so Taker hits a pretty nice choke slam to a pop. Yep. Mm. Damn you to hell, shouts Paul Bearer from the outside. <laughs> Taker signals it's time for the tombstone to a big reaction and hits it, but Kane kicks out at two, the crowd gasping when Kane gets his shoulder up. Mm. Taker hits a very nice leg drop and hits another tombstone, but again, Kane gets a shoulder up at two. And yeah, they react for the, the close falls where Taker's pinning Kane, but they just don't for the, for the, the close falls where Kane's pinning The Undertaker. Paul Bearer holds his heart on the outside, though JR claims that Bearer can't have a heart attack as he doesn't have a heart. (laughs) Taker heads to the top rope and hits a big clothesline, but Kane sits right up. Taker scoops Kane up for a third tombstone, which this time gets in the three at 17.05, though Kane does kick out slightly after the three. Hmm. Paul Bearer gets into the ring with a steel chair and knocks the referee down. Bearer puts the boots in on The Undertaker, but when Bearer goes to tell Kane to continue the assault, Taker gets up and knocks Bearer down onto his ample bottom. (laughs) Kane is the only man left in the ring on his feet. Kane grabs the steel chair and hits Taker in the back with it, before hitting a tombstone to The Undertaker onto the chair as the bell rings. The crowd react for this final tombstone, and Paul Bearer tells Kane that it's finally time to leave. JR says he's seen wars between small countries with less intensity than this, as Jerry Lawler sells that although The Undertaker won, Kane left him laying after the bout. As Kane's music hits, Taker sits up in the ring, though can't bring himself to his feet before rolling out of the ring as his own music hits. We have witnessed a war, ladies and gentlemen, a war that is far from over, says Jim Ross, as we see replays from the bout to end the segment. Really like the ending. I like the fact that it takes three tombstones to put down Kane. I like the fact that he, there's really, really good timing where he, he almost kicked out of the third one. And I like the fact that he hooks the leg for the third tombstone. Oh, yes. Yes. So it's like, oh, this, this arm crossing shit ain't working with this guy. I've actually got to try and pin him down in a meaningful way. I thought it was like really nicely done ending to it, which still leaves Kane looking really strong because he's taken more punishment than anyone else ever has at the hands of The Undertaker. It, it does, but to some extent it does kind of cross my mind, although I know about this, but where do they go from here, without sounding too buffy? Um, <laughs> in, in terms of it's taken three tombstones to put him down, so any time that they do anything from now, if it takes less than that, that's rubbish. Yeah. Does that, that, that make sense? Yeah, it, yeah. It, it pushes the bar. Yeah. 
and and raises it to a, to such a level that it's very hard to overcome that without possibly setting someone on fire. Mm. But I think that what we've seen is the logical conclusion to all the storyline that we've seen, where it builds up in the, this final match where it is quite closely run and there is a tactic running through. And I, I do quite like that as a storyline. The Undertaker's had to take a slightly different methodology with his brother and he's had to weight him down and he's had to do like a, a lot of the moves. Maybe the, the move with him getting up on the shoulders of Kane is another mm. you know, tactic. It's taken an awful amount of strength from Kane mm. to hold him up there in the first place and all the things are designed to tire his brother out so mm. that he can actually beat him in some way. So whatever whatever goes on from here, I'd put as a separate chapter. I quite like what we've seen up until this point. Okay, so so question for you: Do you think this is about as good a shape as Taker is in? Yeah, I'd argue at this point he's kind of mm. as kind of capable and agile and athletic as he ever is. Mm. Yeah, I, I kind of thought that just watching this match. I think you know particularly with the dive i know we've seen him do plenty of dives particularly after this point but like this is the best dive i think i've seen him do like it you shouldn't be able to use the word graceful for for mm. somebody that's that's nigh on seven feet flying through the air and smashes his face into a table yeah but it is it is like there isn't a better word to describe it than that mm-hmm. another question might be do you think it was right that the undertaker won this match yes and no. Okay. Because <laughs> I, I was kind of thinking, personally, obviously I knew it was a WrestleMania match, so I knew he won. And I had seen this one kind of before a long time ago. But I was kind of thinking, I'd have perhaps rather Kane had won this first yeah. one. Because this is his first real meet. I know he's had matches before, but his first big, meaningful match. And he has been this unstoppable monster. And I know he doesn't come out of this looking bad because it takes so much to put him down. But if I'm honest, I think I'd have rather he won this one. Yeah, and I totally see where you're coming from because I say yes because it's The Undertaker, it's WrestleMania, and I guess you can kind of go with he wins the first match because of everything Kane's done to him, building up to it, like he set him on fire and all this other stuff. But I can completely understand where you're coming from in the capacity of, yeah, maybe Kane should win their first match. Mm like just to give The Undertaker an even bigger kind of impetus to beat him. Yeah. And that's why I say I would put this as an end of a chapter, maybe for the Kane character uh, more as anything else in the feud, because once this character has lost a match, then he loses something. Yeah. Because he was the unbeaten thing, almost he should have eclipsed like Tatanka's fucking unbeaten streak. <laughs> You know, it should have carried on perhaps a lot longer. What you're saying is Ludwig Borger should have beaten Kane. <laughs> or, or, or do you think they could have gone to a, a bit of a smalls? A bullshit finish? I guess. Because, you, you know what? Just as a way of preserving the future, I'd let them have like this monster match where they kind of run themselves kind of both ragged, but have some way of kind of just... Right, I've got it. Have you? I've got it. Does it involve a Have the test confirmed it? It involves a tub of hot custard. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't. It involves them both getting absolutely shagged out from wrestling and then then just thinking, fuck, we've got wizard powers and having a (laughs) wizard's duel where they fire lightning bolts at each other and then it has to be kind of cancelled because Mm. the ring's on fire. Well, I did did half wonder if 
if they maybe should have put some element of the supernatural feats in the match because there's been so much of it in the build-up. And this is why it's so stupid. If I've got the power to set people on fire by summoning lightning bolts, what the fuck would a bottle of wrestling? I'd just set him on fire and win. Shall I apply a chin lock or shall I set my opponent on fire? Yeah, you'd Papa Shango in, wouldn't you? Well, Papa Shango could come out and then, like, they could have a three-way dance. Lights down, feet on fire, match yeah. over. <laughs> yeah, I kind of see where you're coming from with that, Paul. Almost like they just have this really intense brawl that ends up getting thrown out mm. and Kane doesn't lose anything from that. But I guess from their perspective, like, it takes three tombstones to put him down and even then he kicks out just after the three, which I'll get into whether you consider that or a good or, or a bad thing. Yeah, it, for me, it's that... Uh, kind of rapid ascent to there being so many finishes in each match yeah that makes storytelling that much harder mm. I like the idea of protected finishes yeah that no one kicks out of and you don't have to have them in every match mm. but once that move's happened like no one gets out of it or, but, or, but nothing ever ends up like that does it well yeah. they, I mean they do you you know, the one example I'll draw to is it's kind of a similar character, like in, in Shikara Halloween, it has mm. Never Wake Up, which as far as I know, like no one's ever kicked out of. So he, have, he has other finishes and other matches where stuff happens, but when he uses that one move, like that's it. Mm. Yeah, and I like that as a concept where you just have this, this ultimate killer move yeah. that no one gets out of. You don't have to use it all the time. You don't have to pander to the crowd and have... Seven F fives in a match, you know, you can you can keep it and use it sparsely, mm. but when it's used, no one ever kicks out of it. Yeah, do you know who really stood out to me though in this one and was perhaps the match's biggest asset? Paul Bearer. You both guessed the same person, but you're both wrong. Okay, so this is so, so well, wrong. This... Wrong in guessing your opinion. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you're not just wrong. So presumably you're not going to say either Kane or Undertaker with how you said that. Uh, well, in that case, Jim Ross. Jim Ross. Okay. He absolutely does his best to make this feel like a clash of the titans mm-hmm. and gets a number of big stories over, which was useful from an in-ring perspective, as I actually think it wasn't the most exciting bout possible. For me, it was probably about eight minutes too long. Mm. It like, was over long. I don't want to go so far as to say it exposed Kane, but it got to a certain point where it's clear that Kane just didn't have kind of the level and variety of offense to carry his end of a match this long. But that said, if part of the internal logic of the match is to wear down one of the opponents, it's got to be a relatively long match. Well, yes, but when you're choke slamming somebody and then picking them up for a, a pin and then applying a chin lock like oh, that yeah, is yeah. just completely like logic breaking. Yeah. yeah. But when you're lifting someone up from a pinfall attempt to like choke slam them again and choke slam them again and choke slam them again, I would understand that. But to do that and then just go into a chin lock is kind of like I don't know, from my perspective that looked like actually he kind of didn't know what yeah. he needed to do there. And I'm not like discrediting him because he's clearly suffered through several poor gimmicks. And has earned, you know, the place he's got in terms of like the work he's put in with the Kane character. But when he's gone from, I mean, how long was the match with Mankind? About six minutes, Vader, maybe about eight to 10. I can't quite remember. Yeah. But going from that to kind of 18 minutes where actually you're in control the majority of the match, like 
that's quite a jump in terms of what you're asking of that person to do. Yeah. Yeah. And you get this thing with it's big guy syndrome, isn't it? They don't often have incredibly varied offence. No. And if you think about early Undertaker, early Undertaker didn't have varied offence. No. Well, and, and it's like, because they don't have long matches, you know, power players, it doesn't make sense to them to have long matches. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, they hit hard and they wear out quickly. Yeah. But I think to an extent as well, like, the kick out after the three thing killed the finish. Like, they popped when Kane got pinned, but then when he gets up immediately afterwards, I don't think the crowd know quite how to react. Mm. Like, I get that they wanted to protect Kane, and they certainly did that by having him take three tombstones to finally, like, lose. But the instant kick-out thing, I think, was a bit of a tad overkill for me. Yeah. I think maybe because they they needed to do something. They they probably had this predicament of, are we going to kill off everything that we've built with this character? And so we, we want him to lose, but how are we going to preserve him being strong? And maybe it's a last-ditch effort to try and think of, well, if he, if Undertaker just beats him yeah, and it takes everything he's got and he just beats him, maybe that's enough. Yeah. But, yeah, maybe it was, it, was, it was an attempted thing that perhaps befuzzled the crowd a bit and they didn't quite know what to do with it. Mm. What the match did have going for it was the pageantry. The pre-match segment with Pete Rose and the Undertaker's entrance felt like without us being told repeatedly that they are, WrestleMania moments. Mm. Yeah, when the fuck did that become a thing? It's literally in the last, like, four or five years, I swear, that and they just like, talk about that all the time. Everyone is just banging on about making a WrestleMania moment. It doesn't feel special if everyone's trying to do it and you're constantly being told about it. Plus, for, from a fan's perspective, like, that should be up to you to decide. Yeah. Like... Surely the audience should be the ones to go, like, that moment was great. Like, Taker's entrance was great. Pete Rose getting the tombstone was great. Like, it's not a, a company or a promotion telling you. That that was a WrestleMania moment right there. Right, so, put that on your list. So, so the scripted high moments are being decided by the management. Like, you can script the high moments that you want your performance to hit, but it's kind of, I think, it should be up to the audience to go, yeah. right, you know, if we're talking top 10 WrestleMania moments, these are the ones I think, not the ones that you've, you've told, kind of told me. me to think. So, I mean, there was a lot of banging on about Zack Ryder's WrestleMania moment of winning the IC title on top of that. It's his WrestleMania moment. He's worked so hard to get this WrestleMania moment. Well, Zack Ryder, in a really weird match where he won the IC title and no one saw it coming. Mm. Like, it, does, it doesn't matter how many times you tell me that's a WrestleMania moment... It was sticking my head as a weird thing. But I'm not going to say that's one of my favourite things of WrestleMania. Do you think they could perhaps rephrase things a little bit to just be, say, if the crowd reacted particularly vigorously for something, like the Pete Rose thing? Because they do, they, they pop in a big way, and they could reference it, the crowd clearly think that this is a WrestleMania moment. Would that be... Yeah, you could, can yeah. do it kind of after oh, the fact, I think. Oh, I'd just preferred it if they just said, oh, that was good. that said though Taker's entrance and Pete Rose's tombstone are Wrestlemania moments and I (laughs) can't put over how much I love this Undertaker entrance as far as a point in time for this character it just fits him and the storyline so well which links back to my original point that Jim Ross did his best to keep this match going from a storyline perspective and definitely deserves plaudits for that 
He continued to put Kane over as an unstoppable monster and sold the Undertaker's rope-a-dope tactic that, without his observations, might have perhaps made the match feel like Taker was getting battered for about 75% of it. Yeah. The most notable action-based moments for me were Kane's scary attempt at a tombstone and <laughs> Taker's dive to the outside, which will become somewhat of a yearly tradition for him as years go by. Worth watching from the perspective of finally seeing the payoff to an almost year-long build, but I do think that if you were coming into this cold, not having gone through all the storylines like we have, you might find it a bit dull. Um, my note is is good, not spectacular. As you like, I think from watching the build, I would expect spectacular, and there's a few moments in it, but it doesn't fulfil on that whole level. But from my point of view, I did find it good and at least entertaining to watch. With your comments on, you know, Jim Ross being amazing, Jim Ross was amazing. Mm. Can you imagine, if you will, if Vince was still at the helm and all you got for the whole thing was, Kane is huge! <laughs> and, and that's all you get. So you don't get any exposition of what's happening. You just get Vince gushing around massive someone is. It would ruin it. It's interesting. It's, as far as matches go, it, it, it's not... Um, necessarily memorable as a match in ring, you know. It's it's perhaps I don't know three stars, and maybe even that's being perhaps generous of the action as a whole. But was I really excited to see this match? Yes, I was because the promo and the entrances got me absolutely hyped for this. And was I still paying attention throughout? Yes, I was. It it was decent. It it could have been better, but I think you know it's not necessarily the easiest match to deliver a real high-quality big man against big man. Because one of them, I guess, is still, although he's been doing the character for a while, he's only been doing the character in ring for a really limited amount of time. Yeah. And I think perhaps that's something that suffers, for example, in terms of the variety of his offence. I, mean, I think that speaks volumes, actually, is that you were still paying attention to an 18-minute mm. match. Because <laughs> quite often... You've missed some things because you've been asleep. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Obviously. Or seen a butterfly or something. <laughs> yeah. A shiny penny on the floor. <laughs> I can still hear the echoes cheering my name. Time has not silenced the crowd. I never did a moon song. Or walked the top rope. There were no pyrotechnics. No fancy flashing lights. We never flew through the air. We were men of courage. Men of steel. They were men without fear. I can still hear the echoes cheering my name. But today, I cheer for them. An absolutely incredible black and white promo airs that features classy Freddie Blassie, Killer Kowalski, the big cat Ernie Ladd, Pat Patterson and Gorilla Monsoon reflecting on their days in the squared circle. Blassie claims he can still hear the crowd chanting his name. Kowalski says that time has not silenced the crowd. Ladd says he never did a moonsault and Monsoon says he never walked the top rope. Patterson claims there were no pyrotechnics or flashing lights and Blassie says they never flew through the air. Patterson says they were men of steel. Blassie says they are men without fear. Lad says he can still hear the echoes cheering his name before Monsoon and Blassie close with that today they cheer for them. 
as I said before, they've earned their fucking money on this one, haven't they? Whoever's had the ideas and whoever's composed the video packages for this program have done just an amazing job. And this is fantastic way of linking the old with the new. And it turns out, and they must have cottoned onto this because Blassie then does like his cool like intro videos for other things, doesn't he? Yeah. Old guy voices sound amazing. <laughs> they just sound brilliant. Well, well, you used the word earlier, gravitas, and that's what an old man voice has. It, yeah. it has literally the voice of experience. It's got age, wisdom, yeah. mm. awesome stuff. It's, it's short, isn't it? It's like a minute long, if that. But it's amazing. It really has an impact when you watch it. Well, I thought it was odd. It, it certainly made me take notice. I wasn't necessarily sure where it was going to start off with, but it, it was definitely an interesting watch and i think the only thing for me is you you talk about it's almost like a a transitional thing kind of the old then weirdly reflecting upon the new that that only comes about right at the very end and in kind of in one sentence yeah and they could perhaps make slightly more of the new but yeah it was interesting do they do anything like this now have they have they lost using all the old stars to do really cool moving video pieces like this because they're so effective I struggle to think of anything like this now. Like, when they use kind of the older stars, I mean, you'd point to something like the segment we saw at WrestleMania with New Day and Austin and Foley and Michaels, where, like, New Day... Did they win the match with the League of Nations? I don't even know. But, like, afterwards, Austin, Michaels and... Foley come out and they have the opportunity to kind of interact with New Day, but they just end up battering them. Yeah. Like, I mean, could you imagine... And that's the use of it. Yeah, could you imagine a segment at WrestleMania 14 where, you know, DX get beaten up by Killer Kowalski and the big Katerny lad, like... It wouldn't do your new talent any good. Yeah, but, exactly. But in using them in this manner enhances your talent. I, I think this is just an absolutely incredible, like, piece of video. Yeah. Like, it's filmed and edited in the same manner as the WWF Attitude promo yeah. that we first saw at Survivor Series 1997 and is such a great, like, counterpoint to that. Like, the, the Attitude promo with the current stars was all about, like, you think I'm not tough, here's a reason why I am tough, here's what yeah. I do, here's the injuries I've had, here's what it takes for me to do what I do every night. And... Like, this is these guys saying, and I kind of disagree with you, Paul, from the perspective of, I think they're reflecting on the new the whole way through. So, like, they're saying stuff like, we didn't fly through the air, like, we never did a moonsault, I never went to the top rope. And that's just kind of highlighting what the new do now. Like, I think this is, like, just a great way to acknowledge the history of your promotion and have your legends endorse the current crop of superstars. Well, that that's kind of... You know, I think we reflected on it slightly with the opening package, or certainly my feel f- from that is that they're using the old stars to kind of give the seriousness back to the product because all of the antics, that, particularly with you know a group like DX, and although it's you know it is fun at times, um, isn't terribly serious, and putting some legitimacy back into the yeah. title, which, which I get, it, it's quite. A clever move really i think it also works yeah when positioned later in the show from the opening video package we saw because that referenced blassie lad and monsoon so mm. you kind of have that opening video package mm. just reference them very briefly and then later on in the show you get to see them and hear them talk about like their time in the ring but what they think of what they're seeing now 
like the music they use, I think as well, like really kind of tugs on your heartstrings and the entire piece has this kind of extremely melancholy yet I've got down reminiscently hopeful feel. Yeah. If that makes sense. So it's like, Mm. it's kind of sad that these guys are, are, are done and their day is over and they'll never kind of do what they did again, but they're kind of living vicariously through this new generation mm-hmm. of performers. Yeah. Did not use something very similar at the start of WrestleMania 15? I think they do, yes. Who do you... I don't know if you know, but who do you suspect was the main person that had this idea of, well, we've got all these guys, why don't we bring them in to try and do something like this? We've made so much song and dance about our new a new crop of people and our new direction that we're going. Might it be somebody like Cornex? He he wanted to get those, you know, there was those segments a little while ago where there was kind of, let's say they're in Missouri, I think, and they're honouring yeah, all of those guys. And might it be kind of similar kind of deal? Was it him and JR? Yeah, I would guess, you know, not necessarily that they put it together, but that they were perhaps in on the idea of like, yes, we should use some of these names for this. Because it's completely counterintuitive to the direction the company's been having. Mm. But how much weight does it actually add to what they're doing now? It's, yeah. it's absolutely fantastic. And I think it's perfectly positioned in the show as well, like right before the main event. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you also do need a bit of a, a break from what you've got because you've gone from this match kind of with these two big heavyweights and, you know... Although it wasn't necessarily played up in the match, the kind of the element of the, the fantastique. For these that's, two that's right. these two big supernatural monsters hurling lightning bolts at each yeah. other. Let's <laughs> and, get it back to reality, yeah. people. But overall, yeah, great stuff. Mm. Yeah, really good. It's time for our main event. Shawn Michaels versus Stone Cold Steve Austin for the WWF title. Coming out of No Way Out of Texas in Your House, the Saturday, February 21st episode of Raw is War opened with announcers Jim Ross, Michael Cole and Kevin Kelly discussing rumours that DX was contemplating filing a lawsuit against Stone Cold Steve Austin for his actions against, i.e. hitting a stunner on, China at the pay-per-view. With DX not appearing on the show, in part due to the promotion not wanting to acknowledge that Triple H had re-injured his knee, we were treated to a lengthy video package highlighting the impact that China had made in her year in the WWF, portraying her as the straw that stirs the drink within the group. The video asked the question as to whether China had finally bitten off more than she could chew in confronting Steve Austin. We would be shown China flipping Austin the bird, but not the ensuing stunner from Stone Cold, though narrator Michael Cole would acknowledge that it had happened. Austin himself would open the second hour of the show, being interviewed by Jim Ross. Ross asked Austin why he stunned China at the pay-per-view. Austin replied that JR knew the reason. Whenever you step through the ropes, your ass belonged to him. Austin told China she was lucky he'd been in such a good mood and that she got what she deserved. Austin then turned his attention to WWF champion Shawn Michaels, framing Michaels' absence as being because he was getting ready for their match at WrestleMania. Austin also addressed Mike Tyson, claiming he was going to knock Tyson's gold tooth out of his mouth and make a ring, a necklace, or whatever he damn well pleased out of it. Austin closed, saying succinctly, Austin, Tyson, Michaels, WrestleMania, shit's on. It's almost what Don King said. As Austin left the ring, Jim Ross returned to the announce booth to reveal that D-Generation X would be on the following Monday's episode of Raw is War with a major announcement relating to WrestleMania. That major announcement? Well, I'm not entirely sure what it was. 
live via satellite from Michael's house in San Antonio, DX would be shown hanging out, drinking and playing pool. Michaels immediately blew off the whole suing Austin angle from the previous week, claiming that China had taken Austin's best shot and was absolutely fine. Michaels and Helmsley then spoke about spiking the Nielsen ratings on the following week's episode of Raw in Cleveland and claimed that this would be the first WrestleMania to be X-rated. A momentous announcement, as promised. A lengthy video package highlighting Stone Cold's road to WrestleMania would air later in the show, spotlighting Austin's big moments, dating as far back as the 316 promo at King of the Ring 1996, along with all the key moments, minus any images of Bret Hart since. Appearing live for the first time in two weeks, D-Generation X would open the March 2nd episode of Raw is War. After Triple H's usual penis jokes, the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels claimed that later that night, they would make Iron Mike Tyson an offer that he could not and would not refuse. Michaels told Tyson that if he made the wrong choice, he would never forget the name D-Generation X. Michaels then turned his attention to Stone Cold Steve Austin's challenge for the WWF title at WrestleMania. Michaels hyped himself as the icon, the showstopper and the main event to big boos from the crowd. Michaels claimed that at WrestleMania, he would show the world that the toughest SOB in the WWF was not tough enough to take on the heartbreak kid. Michaels reminded Austin that he had showed him once before the closest he was going to get to the WWF title and told the rattlesnake that later in the broadcast, he would be dancing to the tune of sweet chin music and that Michaels would crack Austin's head like an egg. Glass shattered and Stone Cold headed to the ring to go face to face with Shawn Michaels, though the lights would go out before Austin could say anything or he and Michaels could get physical. After Paul Bearer spoke and he and Kane left, Austin hijacked the announce team, demanding someone bring him a hot dog and a beer as he was going to kick Kane's ass that night, whether the lights were turned on or not. Austin then addressed Iron Mike Tyson's special referee slash enforcer role at WrestleMania, saying that he'd knock Tyson's lights out too. Tyson, alongside Shane McMahon, was then shown arriving at the arena in a limousine as Austin left ringside. Opening the second hour of the show, WWF owner Vince McMahon welcomed WrestleMania special guest enforcer Iron Mike Tyson to the ring. Vince asked Tyson if he would be the enforcer or if someone like Steve Austin would enforce his own rules upon Tyson at WrestleMania. Before Tyson could offer any kind of response, D-Generation X's music hit and Shawn Michaels, Triple H and China made their way to the ring, immediately followed by every WWF referee and official that was in the arena. Michaels addressed Iron Mike, telling Tyson that his name was not Stone Cold Steve Austin and that he wasn't out there to disrespect him like Austin did. Michaels did say he was there, however, to call Tyson out face to face. Boy. Tyson agreed to go at it man to man there and then. The pair agreed to send their respective entourages out of the ring as an anxious Vince McMahon looked on. With the crowd at a fever pitch, Tyson and Michaels went face to face, shoving each other, Tyson challenging Michaels to punch him in the face. Michaels cocked his fist, appearing reticent to take the first shot. Before he could take a punch though, Michaels ripped off Tyson's WWF Attitude t-shirt to reveal a D-Generation X shirt. Oh, swerve. Revealing to the world that the baddest man on the planet had joined their group. Announcer Jim Ross questioned how Tyson could now perform the guest enforcer role at WrestleMania impartially as a member of D-Generation X. As the segment ended, Michaels grabbed a microphone to remind everyone that he was the one running the show, a disappointed Vince McMahon looking on from the top of the ramp. It's a very good point. Like, now he's done that, he should no longer be enforcer. Right. He's going to be biased. 
Here's a question for you. What is an enforcer? It, Someone it, to sort shit out when it goes down. Yeah, it's the same thing Chuck Norris did at Survivor Series 94. Do you not remember? Yeah. Very little. But that, that, it's a very limited role. They don't really have any... Yeah, it, it's kind power. of a wishy-washy kind of, he will be at ringside. He's not going to be the referee, because actually being a referee is quite a complex job. Mm. But he's kind of there, and he will do something in the match. It's what they could have done with uh, that Triple H Owen Hart match. Mm. So when China tried to interfere, it needed a, you know, a heavyweight boxer to punch it in the face. I'm not quite sure he should be endorsing that, Adam. But All right, then. No. Instead, they just strapped it to a, a retired military commander. <laughs> it, it would have perhaps made more sense if one of these two competitors was likely to try and avoid the confrontation in the match so he could kind of make sure that they don't escape, kind of a one-man lumberjack, if you will. That's what Chuck Norris did, wasn't it? In his stint as this, he, he prevented people from leaving the ring. But But he's there to kind of should you know, the the tensions between Michaels and Austin get out of hand, he is there to kind of calm the situation down. And they don't think the senior official will do that. But let's us, uh, let us also make this point. They are not, and I'll repeat, not a substitute referee that could count the win. No. They are an enforcer. Yes. They may have pinfall counting powers <laughs> that we haven't read the fine print of the contract. <laughs> read but, the small print on your contract. But Tyson joining DX then. I can see why they're doing it. Why are they doing it? Because Michael's... To, to make it super unlikely that Austin will be able to win because Bing. now Mike Tyson's part of DX and he's enforcing. Bingo. Stuck in the deck, yeah. 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 So when Austin eventually triumphs, it's even more of a accomplishment. Exactly. By, by logic's sake, it doesn't make any bloody sense because, well, you've just put yourself in the ring with that faction. They're involved in the match. You're out, pal. Someone call Holyfield. Get him in. What, is it like a double enforcer? No, like as an impartial enforcer. But do you know what? If they've had enough dollar and they've had enough clout, Out. like having Tyson in Michael's corner, corner. Yeah. with Holyfield in Austin's <laughs> corner, yeah. would have been fucking huge. 50 million revenue. Yeah. <laughs> Good idea. It's a shame they didn't manage that, but yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, I... I I like Tyson joining DX It's, it's cool. I, I, it gives us a chance to see some of his fantastic crotch chops. We'll, what, get, we'll get to that. But what, what do you think of the that actual segment where they kind of feign the kind of fight? Yeah, I think I, it's great. I, I like it because I'd buy that Tyson might punch him. Really? Because yeah. he's a wanker and Tyson looks pretty angry. I, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. because You just showed me that, but I didn't know that was when... He joined DX at all, and I kind of thought this might get kind of broken up by you know, you know uh, Austin's music hitting or something of that ilk. But it just seemed a bit hokey. No, it's awesome because oh, like it gives to... it gives Michaels the chance to be such a smug cunt after it. Yeah. Like you watch his face and how he's dancing around the ring after Tyson reveals the DX shirt, it, and and it's more of this kind of DX antics type thing where it's like, yeah, now we fooled you, we fooled you. Austin, there is no way now. There is absolutely no way. Even though my spine's knackered, I've got Tyson. Yeah, there you go. As DX attempted to leave the arena later in the show, Michael Cole tried to interview Mike Tyson, though mostly he ended up talking to Triple H, who referred to him as Pinhead. Tyson <laughs> did briefly manage to tell Cole that at WrestleMania, he would knock Steve Austin out. As Steve Austin made his way to the ring to face Kane to close the broadcast, he would notice Triple H at the side of the stage. 
briefly looking to confront Helmsley, Austin would turn into a sweet chin music from Shawn Michaels, officials preventing D-Generation X from any kind of further assault. Rather than heading to the ring to face Kane, Austin would head backstage to raise hell in pursuit of Michaels and company, who Jim Ross announced had left the arena. With Michaels absent from the arena on the March 9th episode of Raw is War, Triple H and China would introduce a pre-taped promo from Shawn Michaels. Michaels gloated over the ruse they pulled the previous week in acquiring the baddest man on the planet as a member of their group. Michaels wondered how this would affect his odds at WrestleMania, but didn't come to any definitive conclusion. Michaels reminded the world that he had done exactly what he said he was going to do the previous week in hitting Austin with the sweet chin music. Michaels informed Austin that he would refuse to step down at WrestleMania from the position he had worked so hard to get. Michaels reiterated his manifesto to Stone Cold. The heartbreak kid laid down for absolutely nobody and wouldn't be laying down for him in Boston. Austin would open the second hour of the show, angrily stomping to the ring unannounced. Austin informed the crowd that there was a video that he had been playing all week that was making him crotchety and demanded the producers in the truck play it for him. The clip Austin was referring to was Vince McMahon referring to Mike Tyson as the baddest man on the planet. Austin took this as a personal insult from McMahon, demanding Vince join him in the ring. If he didn't, Stone Cold was willing to sit in the ring until the end of the show, demanding that someone pass him a beer until Vince, who he referred to as a yellow bastard, answered his invitation. (laughs) Gerald Briscoe and Jack Lanza would politely request that Austin leave the ring, Stone Cold advising them that nothing else would be happening on Vince's show until McMahon answered him. Sergeant Slaughter would be the next to try and reason with Austin. No dice. Eventually, a reluctant McMahon appeared and entered the ring to face Austin. Austin told McMahon that all of his compliments for Tyson were an attempt to provoke Stone Cold. McMahon told Austin that the baddest man on the planet was just a figure of speech. Austin's response, Is this a figure of speech right here? Referring to his middle finger which he stuck in Vince's face. Disgusted, McMahon attempted to leave. Austin wouldn't let him though, telling Vince, you don't want me to be WWF champion, do you? When Vince wouldn't give Austin an answer, Austin challenged McMahon to a fight, offering Vince the first shot and ripping his jacket to provoke McMahon into either punching him or leaving the ring. Giving Vince 10 seconds to leave the ring or Stone Cold would kick his ass, McMahon opted to leave the ring. Austin closed the segment, threatening to kick Triple H's ass as Michaels wasn't in the building. Later on in the show, a lengthy video package aired summing up Iron Mike Tyson's involvement with the WWF, followed by a pre-taped interview aired with Jim Ross talking to Mike Tyson. Tyson claimed that he was initially unsure how he'd be treated by the WWF, but overall he enjoyed seeing the Royal Rumble. Tyson claimed that Austin's treatment of him had been disrespectful and that he wouldn't take that behaviour from anybody. Tyson told Ross, in fact, that Austin had pissed him off. Ross queried Tyson about his alignment with D-Generation X, asking Tyson if he could be fair and impartial in the most important WWF title bout in history. Tyson said that people hadn't treated him fairly in his life and that Ross needed to get with the real world. Fair is winning, whatever that means. As Austin promised earlier in the show, Austin would interject himself in Triple H's main event match against Savio Vega, basically stunnering everything that moved until Shawn Michaels, supposedly not in the building, appeared in the ring to once again hit his WrestleMania opponent with sweet chin music. As the show faded to black, Michaels prepared to leather Austin with a chair as Jim Ross shouted, Here we go! No! No! 
A lengthy video package on the March 17th Raw is War hyped the legacy of WrestleMania, including shots of both Hulk Hogan and Bret the Hitman Hart, before revealing its true purpose, to extol the virtues of the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels. Narrator Michael Cole described the different paths that Michaels and Stone Cold Steve Austin had taken in their careers, their home state of Texas being their only similarity. Cole described Michaels as the most decorated superstar in WWF history, and WrestleMania being the spotlight where he could best display his charisma, his flamboyance and his attitude. Michaels, in fact, Cole said, could be considered a reflection of WrestleMania itself. Michael's various great in-ring performances over the years were then spotlighted, combined with clips of his antics as part of D-Generation X. Kevin Kelly would welcome Vince McMahon to the ring in the second hour of the programme, asking the WWF owner about the unfortunate situation between McMahon and Austin the previous week. McMahon told Kelly that he didn't appreciate Austin's sign language the previous week, but did try to perhaps justify Austin's behaviour as being a reaction to the revelation of Mike Tyson joining D-Generation X the week before that. Kelly then asked McMahon why he hadn't hit Austin the previous week. McMahon's response? Because I do what I do from a professional standpoint for WWF fans all over the world. That's why. Kelly probed McMahon further, asking what that meant. McMahon offered... What that means is, I was saving the main event of WrestleMania. How could Stone Cold Steve Austin compete against Shawn Michaels for the WWF title at WrestleMania with a broken jaw? The crowd reacted, stunned at McMahon's audacity. Kelly then showed McMahon clips of Austin ordering Vince out of his own ring. How did this make McMahon feel? Vince again reiterated his belief that he does what he does for the good of WWF fans worldwide. After all, how good would it have looked were he to have taken Austin down? Kelly then reminded McMahon of a question we never really got an answer to the previous week. Did Vince want Austin as WWF champion? Vince said it really didn't matter what he thought, it mattered what the fans thought. Kelly asked the same question again. McMahon said that if Austin would listen to reason and be moulded into a respectable champion that would be fine. But Austin as he is now? Well that would be a corporate public relations nightmare. Kelly reminded Vince once again that he still hadn't answered the question. Did he want Austin as WWF champion? Kevin Kelly demanded the truth, saying the fans deserved to hear it. Vince told Kelly that he or the fans couldn't handle the truth. Still unsatisfied, Kevin Kelly asked Vince to give a simple yes or no. McMahon advised Kelly that it wasn't a simple yes or no, it was a oh hell no. And that's the bottom line, because Vince McMahon said so. McMahon then left the ring to major boos from the crowd, as Jim Ross speculated that McMahon had just poked an angry dog with a sharp stick. Mm. Mm. But did he threaten to overrule him? No. Did he threaten to overrule him? Am I missing something here? Yeah. Oh my god, like, do you not know that? Where that's from? That's Paxman, man. Following up on the Shawn Michaels video package earlier in the show, a hype video for Stone Cold then aired, detailing Austin's eight-year journey to the main event of WrestleMania, referencing his firing from WCW and his broken neck at SummerSlam 1997. A video package surmising the escalating tensions between Stone Cold Steve Austin and WWF owner Vince McMahon would open the go-home March 23rd episode of Raw is War, complete with Vince McMahon's outright declaration that he didn't want Austin to become WWF champion at WrestleMania. Austin would then stomp to the ring for an interview with Kevin Kelly. Before Kelly could reiterate McMahon's declaration, Austin told him to shut the hell up. Austin informed McMahon that he would not be moulded, that he did what he wanted, when he wanted, and that nobody could stop him. 
Austin said that the most important thing in the world to him was beating Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania, which he claimed would be the toughest match of his life due to the calibre of performer Michaels was. Kevin Kelly then informed Austin that D-Generation X, including Iron Mike Tyson, were on their way to the arena in full force, a sentiment that Austin took as a personal insult. Austin cut Kelly a break, saying that as he had the night off, he would head to the back and drink a beer to wait for DX, and McMahon to arrive. Before he could, WWF Commissioner Sergeant Slaughter informed Austin that he in fact did not have the night off, and by order of Vince McMahon, who couldn't be there, Austin would be wrestling the Intercontinental Champion Rocky Maivia later in the show. Austin agreed to give McMahon his little match, though Slaughter still advised that if he decided not to wrestle Rocky later in the show, Austin's bout at WrestleMania would become a non-title match. This angered Austin, who told Slaughter he'd already agreed to wrestle McMahon's match, so he stunned Slaughter to a big pop to end the segment. A limousine containing Shawn Michaels, Triple H, China and Iron Mike Tyson would arrive at the building later in the show before the group emerged for a promo that opened the war zone. After referring to a female plant in the crowd with DX on her breasts as a skank, Michaels addressed the recent bubbling tensions between Stone Cold Steve Austin and Vince McMahon, which he described as the world's biggest pinch fight. Michaels did say he appreciated Vince's support in terms of declaring that he didn't want Austin to be WWF champion, but requested that Vince leave his opinions at home, as he didn't care about anything Vince had to say or do. Michaels advised Austin to ignore everything except the WWF Championship, telling Austin that the only way to it was through him. Michaels mocked Austin's eight-year journey, saying that they were the same age and he'd been doing this for over 13 years and was the man in the World Wrestling Federation. Michaels then reminded Austin of the spanner in the works, Iron Mike Tyson. Michaels asked Tyson what would happen to Stone Cold if he got in Tyson's way. Tyson claimed he would knock Austin the fuck out. Michaels asked Tyson who would be leaving WrestleMania as WWF champion. You will, heartbreak, replied Tyson. And after WrestleMania, Michaels continued, who will still be the baddest man on the planet? I will, heartbreak, claimed Tyson. Michaels closed, claiming that DX would rule the WWF forever. For the first time in a few weeks, the advertised main event of Raw is War would actually go ahead, marking Austin's first actual match on Raw in months taking on The Rock. As he did in December, Austin would run through Rock's Nation lackeys D'Lo Brown, Karma Mustafa and Mark Henry en route to hitting the stunner for the clean victory. As Austin stood alone in the ring, chair in hand, D-Generation X appeared at the top of the ramp. Michaels told Austin that Sunday at WrestleMania, he would turn Austin's lights out with the sweet chin music for the last time. Austin dared Michaels to get in the ring with him, with Michaels removing his jacket and walking down the ramp, ready to fight until Triple H held the Heartbreak Kid back as the show went off the air. The final angle for this one would occur on the 26th of March at the WrestleMania Public Workout, held in the City Hall Plaza in central Boston, in front of a crowd that ranges from anywhere between 5,000 and 15,000, depending on your source. Hmm. That's a big well, range. It's a very big range. Yeah, it is a very big range. Similar to an event held in New York prior to WrestleMania 11, the workout featured a pair of matches. In this instance, Taka Michinoku beating Scott Taylor and the headbangers going over Jesus Castillo and Jose Estrada, oh. followed by D-Generation X entering for their portion of the show. 
as WWF champion Michaels began running down local sports teams to whip the crowd into a frenzy, the fans pelted the ring with garbage, resulting in Sean getting hit in the head with a battery and storming off to the back where he, as Michaels himself put it, started cutting promos on everyone. Can I just ask a question? Yeah. Who goes to a public event with a battery in their pocket? Well, maybe they had it in a camera or something. Yeah, this is the late 90s. Or or a Walkman, most likely. Or let's hope so. Yeah. Triple H, alongside impersonator Jason Sensation, covered for his DX pal until Stone Cold Steve Austin hit the ring, but was beaten down by DX, Tyson and Los Bariquas, before Shawn Michaels returned for the key part of the angle. Are Los Bariquas in DX now? He and Tyson kissing Austin on the forehead whilst he was tied up in the ropes, before mooning the crowd on his way out. The incident led to the WWF issuing Michaels with personal security guards for the remainder of the WrestleMania weekend to prevent any further incidents that might irritate the champion, who was suffering both mentally and physically going into the show. So they're very worried that he might just like throw a hissy and just refuse to compete. To be fair, if somebody threw a battery and it hit me in the head, like I wouldn't be happy. <laughs> depends, <laughs> depends what type of battery. I reckon I could lob a battery quite hard, hard enough to cause some serious damage. You can lob a Malteser hard enough to cause some serious damage. I thought so. you with that Malteser. Yeah, you did. Mm. I'm glad it wasn't a battery. True story, isn't it? Yeah. The fact that Michaels didn't wrestle a single bout between the Royal Rumble match with The Undertaker, and this one speaks to his condition. In his first book, Sean details the late January to early March period that followed him seeing a WWF doctor. Quote, I didn't want to stay in New York to get treated. I wanted to be near my family, so I went back to San Antonio. My doctor, Pablo Vasquez Sioni, also told me that it was too risky to wrestle. Sounds like a member of Los Bariquas. <laughs> it does, yes, you're right. <laughs> I told him I had to. I gave him the date for WrestleMania 14, March 29th, and said, I am wrestling, just get me there. I spent all of February rehabbing my back. I had a shiatsu massage therapist come down to San Antonio and he worked with me every day. He did his thing, but it didn't make a difference. I was in constant pain. It didn't matter whether I was lying down, standing up or sitting. I just couldn't get comfortable. The pain would start in my back and shoot down my left leg. I doped myself up all day to deaden it as much as possible. I flew in every week for TV to shoot interviews or vignettes and I became a real bear to deal with. I'd snap at the smallest things and constantly make threats about not showing up at WrestleMania. Everyone in the company was looking to the future and that meant they concentrated their time and efforts on Steve Austin. I was looking for a pat on the back, some acknowledgement that I was doing something courageous for the company, but none came. I felt neglected. It hadn't been that long ago when everything was about me and I was resentful. My way of getting back at the situation was to make life as difficult as possible for everyone. It wasn't the right thing to do, but I was immature, and that's how I handled it. End quote. Hmm. Seems fairly honest. Alongside the personal guard for Michaels that was mentioned earlier, a guard for his parents, who were in town for the event, was also hired. Michaels goes on to describe that he was given a personal dressing room for the show, which he speculates was a plan on the part of McMahon to keep him as calm as possible throughout the day and ensure that he didn't blow up and walk out at the last minute. Michael says that Vince came to see him and his father in his dressing room on the day of the show to say, Sean, on behalf of myself and the company, I want to thank you. I know this is a difficult time for you, but when it is over, you'll always have a job here. Michael's father was not impressed with the speech and threatened McMahon that if his son was hurt in the bout, then McMahon would have a problem with him. 
in the build to the match, Michael says that he spoke with Austin with regards to what they would be doing, which ended up similar to house show matches that Austin was working with Triple H, because creatively, Michaels just wasn't there. He also spoke with Mike Tyson about their post-match angle, advising Tyson to punch him low, claiming, The last thing I needed was a broken jaw. Michaels closes his discussion around the build to the match, claiming he threw down four pain pills prior to his entrance. Michaels himself speaks there a lot about the fact he was so temperamental at the time that any little thing might have caused him to deviate from the plans for the match at any second. What was the plan if that happened? Well, on screen, there would perhaps be no contingency for this eventuality, but off screen, depending on who and what you believe, The Undertaker was the one who took accountability for dealing with Michaels should his petulance flare up in the biggest moments of the biggest show of the year. Jim Cornette details this in Kayfabe Commentary's timeline of the WWF 1997. Quote, Undertaker taped his fists, sat down right at gorilla position and watched the monitor to watch Sean drop the title to Austin. And provided everything went the right way, that was all that was going to happen. End quote. Shawn Michaels and Steve Austin have both questioned the truth of Cornette's claim, but Michaels has gone on to say that The Undertaker did go around to everyone and told them, if this doesn't go down the way it should, I'm going to have a big problem and Shawn is going to have a big problem too. I'll go over there and beat the heck out of him. But he never said anything personally to me, Michaels claimed. Wow. That's cool. It seems like a really hard situation, isn't it? Because you've got someone who is genuinely hurt and would be in a fragile state and not but not just because of his like substance abuse mm-hmm. and possibly dependency yeah at this point on different painkillers and and whatever else he's taking you know recreationally but someone that's also in a very fragile state because they do have a fragile ego and they are used to being at the top and because it's the wrestling business and it's predetermined, everyone knows mm. that that is about to end. Mm. And the injury is such that, realistically, he's never going to come back. And so when you've got someone that's, that's that volatile and has been put into, like, backed into such a corner, then it could all go wrong. And what do you do with that? How, how, like, how, how do you control Shawn Michaels at this point in his career? Well, do you feel sorry for him? Because I'm listening to that thinking... Poor bloke. I know he's kind of like he's got his faults in this um, in this time period, undoubtedly. But I kind of think bigger pain as he has been to have what you love to do taken away from you, and and uh, as Adam said, his ego being as it is, and knowing that it's over effectively, his position, his ego is not going to get that validation again. No, and that's that's quite a tough thing. I, I have a, a degree of sympathy with it as well mm. uh, because no matter how he's got there and we have been critical of his antics and his politics around the company, he has provided a bedrock of dependability in a ring-based capacity for, for many years. And whether it is, it's quite likely that it's cumulative knocks and bumps that have done this to him, but it seems like one thing is just broken his career mm. and and in the wrestling business depend on whose eyes you're looking through and I, I dare say Sean would see it like this is once your usefulness is gone and once your time in the spotlight is out you're out and you're gone and that's it 
it's done for. So it must be quite a crushing thing to know that that's what's going to happen. But it's not like either that he sustains the injury in this match and then he's gone. Like yeah, he's he, got time to think. He's had two months to percolate over the idea that, like, yeah. this is it. Like, this is my last stand. Like, I've got to come out here, put over a guy as the future of the company. You know, it's not long, like, it's two years ago that it was all built around me and the boyhood dream and Vince was sure I was the guy to take over from yeah. from Hogan and from Brett and you tried Lex and you tried Diesel and they didn't work, but nope, Sean, it's you. You're the one. And now we're here less than two years later or pretty much bang on two years later. And it's over. And it's over. It's over. Yeah. Interesting about The Undertaker. So although they're talking about him being at the gorilla position and there being problems for Michaels if things don't go to plan, do you think there was a potential to do anything with that if on screen? If he tried I anything? I wouldn't have thought so. No, I don't think Taker would have like strolled out and just knocked just him out. Battered him. I, I think that possibly, because I think Sean's in a quite a, a turbulent frame of mind, if there is truth to it, Maybe the knowledge, because if people have been told it would have got back to Sean, mm. just that hint of a threat yeah, but, might but, have been just just something just to steer him back onto the path that Vince actually wants him to go down. But, but that said, as a kind of thing that could work, it was that match at the Royal Rumble with The Undertaker yeah. that caused that injury. He's got ties there. He could It could lead to a programme with Austin going forward. It wouldn't be, I don't think... The most, but, he, but he'd have to come out and shoot fight him, wouldn't he? If if it, if it came down to that, if Sean wasn't do, following uh, it, no, well, do you think he? Do you think Sean Michaels would shoot fight the Undertaker? No, well, he'd, no, he'd just get his head kicked. Well, him. that's that's it. So I think if potentially if he was deviating from the plan, if the Undertaker appeared, you know, maybe on the entrance way, do you think that might get Sean to change what he's doing? I don't think that would have been a contingency. That's just just my feeling. I yeah. don't know if, if you know anything yeah, more I about mean, it. I mean, I agree with you, Adam. And I think it's purely from the perspective of, like, we know, although they, they've got great in-ring chemistry and they've had some fantastic matches, like, at this time, it seems that Taker doesn't necessarily have a great deal of respect for Shawn Michaels, the person. And that's mm. the problem, is Shawn hasn't made any friends. Well, he's, yeah. he, he's got a couple of friends, and they're the people that keep him close, but he's alienated a lot of people. And and we didn't kind of go into great detail around it when we covered Survivor Series, but we did talk about that actually Taker was one of the guys who spoke up about what the fuck is going on with this. Yeah. Like, and no, he and Bret Hart were best friends, but even, you know, Taker realised that what happened wasn't fair. Yeah. and And that he knew that Michaels was in on it. No matter what Michael said, take a new Michaels was in on it. Yeah. So I think, and we'll kind of discuss this more after the match, but there is a great sense of irony in kind of this event coming like a mere like five months after what happened in Montreal. Mm. Mm. Interesting times. And I imagine a a massively stressful time for Vince. Yeah. Because is his guy and he's lavished all kinds of weird love on Shawn Michaels, <laughs> but he doesn't know what he's going to do. He's probably got a good idea because he's, in, in essence, he's been good to Shawn, and maybe that's the thing that's going to keep Shawn doing the right thing. But he doesn't know, yeah, what he's going to do, and there is the potential for, well, a for Shawn to just get too crippled 
and not be able to finish it. There's the there's the potential that he's just going to walk away from the match. There's the potential that he's going to try and no-sell anything that Stone Cold does. There's all sorts of weird things that is Because he's not stable at this point. And we saw a bit of his documentary earlier and he's saying he wasn't in the right place at this point in time. Mm. Are you ready? This is it. This is the WWF title match, says Jim Ross, as the Austin Tyson Michaels graphic is shown. We go to a video package that features Vince McMahon saying, the baddest man, quite a lot. <laughs> it's a good package, I like it. <laughs> Tyson's involvement with the WWF and the subsequent media coverage of it is shown, particularly focused on his altercation with Stone Cold Steve Austin and his joining of D-Generation X. Michael's getting the upper hand on Austin is shown, catching him with a pair of sweet chin music kicks. The public workout from Boston is also shown as Michael's promo from Raw is playing over the top, where he questions Tyson as to whom will come out on top at WrestleMania. To close, Tyson is asked, where next after such a big event? WrestleMania 15, responds Iron Mike. You could argue that this didn't focus anywhere near as much as it should on the dispute between Shawn Michaels and Steve Austin, but Tyson's involvement does, from a mainstream media perspective, overshadow the bout, and as there will have been a fair few people that have ordered the event to see what Tyson does, it kind of makes sense to focus on him. Yes, it does. Yeah, I I thought, though, that Austin barely gets a mention in it, though. Do you think at this point in time, Mike Tyson is bigger than the WWF? Without a doubt. So he should get all of this sort of like time? I don't think he should get... like I don't have a problem with him getting a very prominent role in it. I just think the matches between 
Shawn Michaels and Steve Austin, so you've at least got to reference it more, mm. particularly the guy that you're setting up to be the foreigner in your company. Well, I mean, when we were watching it earlier, Adam, you kind of noted that as per the graphic, it felt like Steve Austin was facing Mike Tyson mm. and Shawn Michaels was just on the side. Was the guest referee, yeah. Back in the arena, Howard Finkel announces that the following contest is for the WWF Championship. Finkel first introduces the special guest enforcer, Iron Mike Tyson, who comes out to a remixed version of the DX theme, accompanied by Pat Patterson and Tony Guerrilla. He hits his utterly abysmal crotch chops and slaps hands with fans on his way to the ring. What is it about crotch chops that Mike Tyson finds so difficult? I think to do a proper chop to the crotch, there needs to be movement in the arms and there needs to be a mild in most cases and an exaggerated in the case of Triple H, groinal thrust. <laughs> and Tyson's capable of neither moving Ty- his Ty- arms or thrusting Tyson his groin. Tyson doesn't shift his hips at all. And he doesn't bend his arms at all. And he doesn't even really make a cross or anything. It's just... <laughs> it's just you can't see this if you're listening to it, but... <laughs> But as you can tell by Paul's laughing, I'm spot on. <laughs> it's not wrong. It's but the, the problem that I have with it is, from the time that he's first done it, it's fucking awful, Mike. It's terrible. You can't do it. Who the hell said, do it more? Is this, You'll get better. You know, like action man arms? Yes. Because they've only got limited motion. That's what it is, isn't it? Yes. He's, he's only got the one hinge joint. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's maybe it. Yeah. Tyson does seem slightly <laughs> awkward because the camera focuses on him just standing in the ring for ages. And he's also, oh, he does a weird rotation as well. He's, he doesn't rotate like a natural person while he's doing it. He's kind of spinning around slightly, but in a very awkward robotic manner whilst doing <laughs> his crazy cr- chops. You, you just... look like Peter Crouch though, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Peter Crouch's robot, circa like 2007, that's what Mike Tyson's crotch shopping looks like. We see a shot of Stone Cold Steve Austin making his way through the backstage position as the heart-pounding pre-entrance music plays. I still do love that. Mm. Yeah, it's cool. Austin walks into the gorilla position and there is a few second pause before his music hits. The crowd go nuts and the rattlesnake makes his way to the ring. Tyson continues his awkward crotch chops as Austin makes his entrance. Austin stands atop the corners of the ring, soaking in the adulation of the worshipping crowd from every corner of the arena. Austin stares down Tyson, the pair trash-talking at one another. Did he get as big a reaction as you thought he would? Yeah, I think so. It's not quite sable, but it's pretty good. It's it's weird, isn't it? Because obviously we've watched it in a slightly disjointed way, so I've not watched the, the sable match on the same day, because I'd love to hear those two side by side I'd love to have like a popometer <laughs> and, uh, and just see where like see where things are on the scale like it'd be a genuinely like interesting thing that's what our next bit of merchandise needs to be the Paul Scrivens popometer <laughs> measure end, your pops at one end you've got Linda McMahon standing up out of a wheelchair which is like nuclear and on the other end you've got Rockabilly <laughs> and where does it fall kind of in the middle of on that, that scale. But, but it's yeah. interesting because like it probably is a bit bigger than Sable, but, like, it's not far off, is it? No. I, I think it's substantially bigger than Sable. I think the volume's lower. I think they've turned the mics yeah, they, down. Yeah, this might be the But thing. there are more voices, and they probably had to turn the mics down because of the volume of it. 
So even though Sables might appear louder, mm, Stone Cold's feels fuller. Yeah, okay. uh, yeah. It, it certainly gets a positive reaction. He, yes, there's very few people booing. Mm. Shawn Michaels, Triple H and China are then shown to big boos, with Helmsley sticking his finger up to the camera when he spots it. The trio make their way to Gorilla, where Michaels turns to the camera and says, this one is for you, Earl. First time without my good luck charm. That's quite sweet, I guess. Because mm. so, so it... Earl's still ill, isn't he? Yeah. 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 I'll say I did... still, it was on the last episode, wasn't yeah. it? Which is the same, same show. Day, yeah. But it feels like a long time I was going to make that point, but yeah. I didn't want to belittle you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. But you kind of just have with that. It almost feels like we're watching a separate show that could have been a month down the line. It's not. It's the same day. I know. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting to see that, but... Did, did that feel like a bit of a dig at Brett even? No, I think that was just like, I think he probably does have quite a close relationship with Earl Hebner and... Well, he does now. <laughs> <laughs> Best buds now. Well, yeah, and like, if you think, kind of, he did referee all those big kind of Shawn Michaels title matches throughout 96 and stuff, so, mm. yeah, he he might be right. This might be the first, like, title match of his that doesn't have Earl Hebner as the referee. Who is it? Jimmy Corderas? Is that the referee? I think Mike Kyoda is the referee Kyoda, for this okay. one, isn't he? JR proclaims Michaels as the greatest WWF champion of all time. The Chris Warren band begin a live performance of the DX theme, with Warren this time singing the vocals. Goes down better than their rendition of the national anthem. I think they'll do this a bit better, to be fair to them. I think it's quite good. Yeah. yeah. The volume like swoops in and out, like the mm. vol- the volumes are slightly off for it, but I think the 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 performance is quite good. I think overall, overall the effects and stuff. I know you that it is quite difficult to watch with the fast cuts in yeah, between, oh but I think it works quite well in this particular instance. I tell you what was quite interesting when we took a brief look at kind of the Shawn Michaels documentary earlier this afternoon. They do show Michaels' entrance from WrestleMania 14, but without all the DX cuts. And there's there's a bit where kind of he's walking to the aisle, isn't there? And he sort of very visibly proclaims, "I am still the fucking man." Yeah. The DX trio then make their entrance to Big Heat with their seizure-inducing quick cuts as they make their way to the ring. Michaels takes the time to go and high-five with Warren on the bandstand. Michaels gets his pyro with China posing behind him as Warren screams "Degeneration X. JR sells that Michaels is the most decorated man in WWF history and the only man to win every major title as the crowd chants for Austin. The bell rings and as Austin walks around the ring, Tyson swipes at his foot. Ross tells us that nobody has ever outperformed Shawn Michaels in a big match situation. Michael skips backwards around the ring, Lawler claiming that Michaels is confident. Ross says he's in magnificent shape. We know he isn't, but you can't go on television and say, the champion's knackered, lads. <laughs> His back's fucked. There's no chance. He can barely walk. <laughs> you laugh, but that's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be competitive. <laughs> To stop Michaels prancing around, Austin gives him the middle finger to a big pop. They go to lock up, but Michaels ducks, and when Austin turns around, Michaels hits him with a left hand. Michaels ducks another lock up to hit another left hand. Is there a thing with this match that is just covered by its wrestling, but you've got a guy that's recently broken his neck and probably shouldn't be doing anything like this, facing a guy who's got serious spinal trauma and definitely shouldn't be doing any of this thing. Mm, yeah. Only in wrestling. 
yeah. in any any other sport in, that in, you are not fit to compete. In in possibly the one of the biggest matches in the history of the sport, which <laughs> which is probably like one of the few chances to actually legitimately say that. Yeah. Mm. Well, it, it's drawn ten million dollars worth of interest. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's done all right for itself. Austin stalks Michaels, so Michaels runs out of the ring. Austin gives chase, but Michaels slides back into the ring, and when he looks to get some momentum charging at Austin, Austin floors him with a big right hand. Austin shoves Michaels face first into multiple turnbuckles before Sean once again tries to escape the ring. Austin holds on to Michaels by his tights, meaning that we get a full-on shot of the Heartbreak Kid's ass a little over a minute into the match. It'd be a shame if, if he went out without bringing out the second biggest star in the wrestling business. Well, no, Shawn Michaels' bottom. No, because a star, you see, is a luminous object. It gives off its own light, whereas Shawn Michaels' bottom only reflects light from other stars. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit more like a, a satellite, then, I guess, the moon. Yeah. Yeah, or, yeah. Or, or a black hole. That, that, mm. that absorbs light and matter out of the universe. <laughs> I don't think his butt's doing that. We know he's always loved that spot, basically. Yeah, and it, it's classic Shawn Michaels. And he's really protracted, like he wrestles for about eight minutes. With his black... <laughs> <laughs> he does it. <laughs> Hashtag, I may have exaggerated that. It's not, it's not dust of flash. His bottom is, in essence, a, a periphery player in this event. Austin, Michaels, Tyson, Michaels, bottom. <laughs> Austin kicks Michaels in the back of his knees, continually taking him down, his ass still hanging out. Michaels once again charges Austin, but Austin back body drops Michaels to the outside over the top rope Mm. where he takes out both Triple H and China before landing flat on his back. And this is the only time I'm going to say this, otherwise I'll just be repeating myself over and over again. Your back's about broken. You must have designed this match. Why are you taking bumps on your back? Stop doing it. It makes it painful to watch because we know that... You just look at his face. He's not a man that is comfortable. He he must have just said, let's just do it anyway. Yeah. I don't care anymore. Like, like he knows, to, to some extent, like, he knows he can't wrestle again anyway and he's in lots of pain. Like, what's it? Matter, I guess that can be the only thing. It matters if, like, he takes a, a a back body drop to the outside, and then he can't stand up again after it. Well, yeah, that might put a bit of a, a bit of an early end to the match. But have you met Shawn Michaels, sir, to nineteen ninety eight? But this is it, and like we'll talk about it. I think more probably when we get to the end. But can you imagine anybody else in this condition putting on this kind of performance? No, it no. is astounding, isn't it? When He's having to quaff painkillers to get through the activities of sitting down, standing <laughs> up. And now he's here and he's just going to take some absolutely killer bumps to his spine. His lower spine, which is where the bulk of the problem is. It just, it's so uncomfortable to watch. It's painful. Yeah, I mean, you're right. There definitely had to be a way to achieve the effect of kind of him taking... Triple H and China out and kind of go into the outside of the ring. There had to be a way to do it that didn't involve <laughs> landing flat on your back. Flat on your back. It's like watching, you know, Taker's knee spot that always makes oh, me go, yeah. Fah! yeah. It's like watching that over and over again. Yeah. For, for about 15 minutes. I mean, the crowd pops for it. So, yeah. <sighs> yeah. Austin joins Michaels on the outside, who has thankfully pulled his trousers up. 
Before Austin can get a hold of Michaels, Triple H attacks him from behind, throwing Austin into the guardrail. The referee has words with Helmsley, who backs into Tyson, who cocks his fist to Michaels' DX buddy. Howard Finkel announces that the referee is ordering Triple H and China to the back immediately, which naturally seems to upset Michaels. This referee is a good referee. As the pair leave, Michaels attacks Austin on the guardrail on the outside. Before Helmsley can leave, Austin attacks him from behind and throws him onto the DX band stage. (laughs) Michaels uses this opportunity to attack Austin from behind before grabbing a cymbal and nailing Austin with it. A cymbal and stand? Yeah. They're they're quite heavy, aren't they? Yes, they are. So so what sort of cymbal was it? Could you make it out? I couldn't tell. It was a crash one. Hmm. But I couldn't see the branding or anything on it. Probably about 18 inches. But you could do some serious damage, I'm right in thinking. Yeah, it, I think it. he hits him mainly with a stand, but it'd be like, I mean, it's for a professional sort of outfit. It'd be a double brace stand. It'd weigh quite a bit anyway. Yeah. Michaels then whips Austin into the dumpster, which is positioned next to the band, before the pair head back down the aisle. JR, interestingly, talks about the list of amazing athletes that Michaels has defeated and takes a snide dig at WCW, adding that they were here in their prime, claiming that Michaels owned them. Michaels rolls Austin back into the ring and heads to the top rope. When he dives off, Austin hits Michaels in the gut and takes the advantage. Austin whips Michaels into the corner, where he takes an absolute whopper version of his upside-down bump that the crowd reacts to. Yeah. Oh, gold dust. This, this for me, was the worst bump he took in the match. It, It looked horrible. Austin hits an atomic drop for a two count. Also, yeah, a move that compresses your spine. Lovely. Mm. Austin rings Michael's arm and brings him down to the canvas, but the heartbreak kid doesn't stay down for long. Michael's attempts to fight back, but Austin stun guns him over the top rope for a two count. Austin whips Michael's to the ropes, who ducks an Austin clothesline attempt. Austin turns around and looks to hit the stunner, but Michael's bails to the apron. Austin then shoves Michael's off the apron, the champion landing face first on the announce table. Made a good noise. Mm. Austin follows Michaels to the outside and shoves him face first into the steel steps before rolling him back inside. Austin hits pointed elbows to Michaels on the apron and heads back inside himself. Austin hits more elbows and covers for a pair of twos before applying a chin lock. Jerry Lawler says that Mike Tyson looks concerned on the outside. Michaels manages to drop Austin with a jawbreaker before rolling to the outside clearly in pain. Michaels grabs Austin by the legs and drags him around the ring post, but before Michaels can wrap Austin's leg, Austin yanks him face first into the ring post. Austin marches Michaels right past Mike Tyson, and the pair begin a brawl around the timekeeper's table that ends with Michaels' back body dropping Austin into the crowd. When Austin attempts to return, Michaels hits him in the face with the ring bell, which JR claims referee Mike Kyoda didn't see, but that Mike Tyson did see it. Hmm. Back in the ring, Michaels holds his back before going to work on Austin, pummeling him in the head. At this point, the WWF champion is clearly in agony and needs to use the ropes to stand, with even that looking like a real effort. Yeah. He gets to the point where he'll do something and then has to just like lean over the top rope just to give his, you know, his, his, his back a bit of respite. Even this, like Michael snapmares Austin to the mat and yells, damn it holding his lower back before pounding away at Austin. Michaels gives the crowd the double bird, which spurs Austin back to life, Stone Cold hitting Michaels with a double leg takedown and big fists before again throwing Michaels over the top rope to the outside. 
When Austin attempts to follow, Michaels grabs him by the left leg and wraps it around the ring post three times. Austin chants from the crowd as Michaels gets back into the ring. Michaels lifts Austin's knee high in the air before smashing it on the canvas and again taking a break on the ropes. Michaels continues his assault on Austin's knee, looking to apply a figure four, but Austin shoves Michaels' shoulder first into the ring post before yanking him back out by the tights for a schoolboy that gets a two count. Michaels stays on top though, going back to the knee of Austin once again. Austin rolls to the outside to escape the assault, right in front of Mike Tyson. Michaels baseball slides Austin into the announce table before Tyson rolls Austin back into the ring. Austin confronts Tyson on this, allowing Michaels to chop block him from behind, which JR sells as devastating. It is. Mm. Michaels applies a figure four leg lock to woos from the crowd, using the ropes to apply leverage. The referee counts Austin's shoulders down from this, but it only gets a two. I would have thought that doing the figure four would probably really hurt his back doing it. Probably. Michaels goes so far as to hold the top rope, getting another two count, before Austin yanks Michaels into the centre of the ring and turns the hold over to a reaction from the crowd. Michaels quickly makes the ropes, though. Both men get back to their feet, where Austin hits big fists and catapults Michaels into the turnbuckle for another roll-up that gets a two. Michaels applies a sleeper hold to cut off Austin's momentum in a sequence that ends with the referee getting trapped in Austin's attempt to shove Michaels backwards into the corner. With Mike Kyoda down in the corner, Michaels charges Austin in the opposite one, but gets dropped by Austin onto the turnbuckle. It was the one sort of move that I think Marcus is taking on his back, which was probably a bit more fortunate, because his spine was cushioned by the soft frontage of a referee, rather than the hard <laughs> turnbuckles. Yeah. Austin hits big right hands before sending Michaels into multiple corners and stomping a mud hole in the WWF champion. The crowd seemed to have stopped reacting since the referee bump, perhaps awaiting some sort of screw job finish involving either DX, Tyson or both. Yeah. Austin hits a back body drop and whips Michaels across the ring. Michaels ducks a clothesline attempt and comes back with the sloppy version of his flying forearm. Somehow, Michaels kind of kips up to a pop from the women in the crowd yeah. and heads to the top rope. God knows how he managed to do that. That's. Uh, did I tell you about me trying to do a kip up the other week? No, but go on. I couldn't do it. I just really hurt my back. Probably not as badly as John Michaels. <laughs> I don't know, you do seem to have trouble getting comfortable when sitting down. Yeah. And you were floored by cramp earlier. Yeah, I've not been popping any painkillers though. Isn't it, so. <laughs> I've got some ibuprofen in the other room if you want some. And I've got oh. some Lemsip, that's got paracetamol in it. Well, I've got some little bags of Haribo. I might, uh... That's not painkillers, that's <laughs> just sugar. <laughs> Seems, seems to have the right effect on me too. Has nobody taught you the difference between that? No. <laughs> Michaels hits his big elbow drop to Austin's sternum and signals that it's over. Wearily, Michaels <laughs> tunes up the banter booze, like even just doing that stomp. The stamps is uh, yeah. it's really hurting him, isn't it, as he's doing it. Stop tuning it up, Sean, just try for the kick. Mm. Austin makes it to his feet and Michaels launches his foot towards Stone Cold to hit sweet chin music. But Austin ducks, and when Michaels turns, Austin looks to hit the Stone Cold Stunner. Michaels shoves Austin into the ropes and tries for the superkick one more time, but Austin catches Michaels' foot, spins him around and hits the Stunner. Austin covers, and Mike Tyson gets in the ring to somewhat enthusiastically clout the three, making Stone Cold Steve Austin the new WWF champion at 2002. And then Bret Hart walks out and says, this is bullshit, <laughs> restart the match, because that was clearly a quick count. 
Somehow, I don't think he'd be doing that for sure, Michaels. No, probably not. Just putting it out there. Jerry Lawler queries what's going on here as Austin celebrates on the turnbuckles holding the WWF strap aloft. Austin demands that someone throw him an Austin 316 shirt, which he tosses to Mike Tyson. Tyson holds it up to a big pop from the crowd as Shawn Michaels starts to come around. Michaels gets to his feet and in disbelief confronts Tyson. Michaels grabs the Austin shirt and shoves Tyson in the chest. Michaels attempts to nail Tyson with a fist, but Tyson responds with one of his own, which knocks Michaels right down again. Tyson, Tyson, Tyson. Right hand. (laughs) Down goes Michaels, yells JR, as Austin and Tyson celebrate again with Michaels laid out. Austin gives Michaels the double bird one more time as we see a wide shot of the crowd. Mike Tyson lays the Austin 316 shirt over Michael's face and the pair leave the ring, confetti falling over them in the aisle. One final shot of Michael's sees him start to remove the Austin shirt from his face before we see a replay of the stunner and Tyson's shot to the heartbreak kid and a highlight package closes the broadcast with triumphant music playing. Tyson looked a bit unsure as he left. Did he? Yeah, he just... He had a strange look on his face, not like, you know, I was in on it all along and... Haha, I'm, I'm victorious. It's kind think, of very unsure. I think that Tyson's a bit overwhelmed by the whole experience. He's been in like big situations before, mm. massive situations, but the rule was always the same. You go to the ring, you punch the other guy in the face until you win. Yeah. In this, he's got to almost play a theatre part. Yes, he's not. And quite that's sure. not what he's used to yeah. doing. Yeah. No, like you, you, you just do what you do. You are who you are. Which explains, like, what he's, he's almost, he's tense. Mm. Like, when the, when the finish is coming, you can see him on the outside yeah. of the ring. He's just waiting. And as soon as it happens, he's in there like a lightning bolt mm. to count the, and he counts the, the pin a bit quick, probably, because he's just, like, he's, you know, quite hyped up because he's aware that this is quite a big thing and he's got to get it right. What do you think of the match? Painful. Like, good match. Way more in there than I would expect from a man with a broken neck and a man with a broken back. Hard to watch, but well-performed. By no means one of Sean's greatest uh, matches that we've seen. But he was always functioning with a working back, mm. and now he's not. What, so, when... it's, so, so it's good, but it's unpleasant to watch because we know how bad his back is, and his face tells us how bad his back is while he's doing it. Good sequence to finish. Liked it. I wouldn't have minded going on a little bit longer, I bet Sean would have. Yeah, I bet his back would have. Yeah, just in terms of... Because it's all so quick, isn't it? So there's no kind of... Nothing with switching music or um, stunner. Like, there's there's no teaser at all until that... There's one stunner tease early on. Yeah. Yeah, okay. But But this is not like Undertaker Kane with, you know, four finishes. No. No. But Um, then again, we are in a point where Sean is struggling to walk. So it kind of... I think it's... I think it's longer than I thought it would be, mm. considering the injury involved. I mean, what I mean by it, like, I quite liked it as a sequence. I wouldn't have minded literally just something like another move in between and then and the finisher come out a little bit out of nowhere, if you know what I mean. Right. I think it's right to have it at end after only one stunner, though. Yeah. Like, if he's going to be your main centrepiece character going forward. Yeah, he's got to have that killer finisher. Then in terms of his coronation, it shouldn't take him three attempts at hitting it to put someone down, even someone the calibre of Shawn Michaels, but especially considering Shawn Michaels isn't going to be around going forward. Yeah. Yeah. 
The match itself is decent. Steve Austin himself has described it as all right. But it is elevated, I think, by a variety of factors. Firstly, although he essentially does very little on the outside, Mike Tyson's limited participation is clearly a big deal to the WWF, its fans, and the media world as a whole. So him just being there lifts Mm. the feel of the match. Mm -hmm. Secondly, as with the previous contest... Jim Ross does a fantastic job of making the match feel special in terms of Austin's ascension, Tyson's participation and Michael's fortitude. And the final reason that this match is elevated is exactly that, Shawn Michaels. From very early on, you can both see and feel the pain written on his face. That he was in absolute agony for the two months leading into this one and was able to come out and deliver a performance like the one he does here is incredible. Nothing short of incredible. Mm. He's about to be out of action for four years, looks in complete agony almost every second of the match, and yet he's still somewhat able to do a kip-up. A fucking kip-up. I literally can't imagine anyone outside of Shawn Michaels in the condition he is in, putting in a performance of this calibre. As for the incumbent champion, there's probably, outside of Hulk Hogan, no single instance of absolute right place absolute right time for someone to be capturing the WWF title than there is with Stone Cold Steve Austin right here. He's clearly recovered about as much as he can from the neck injury he suffered just under a year ago, but perhaps most importantly, he's worked out a type of match that he can work within those limitations. Fortunately for him and the WWF, it's a style of working that the audience is absolutely on board with. It's wild, it's chaotic, and it suits the Stone Cold character even if it makes the matches feel more like street fights than they do wrestling matches. Mm. The Tyson turn is somewhat random, and I can understand if you watched it and thought, why? Well, I imagine that you, if you're going to have Tyson, you've got to have Tyson to be on the DX side to give Stone Cold the odds to overcome. Yep. You can't just have Stone Cold stun a Tyson. Yep. That's never, ever going to happen. So what do you do? From my perspective... Clearly, the WWF's involvement with Mike Tyson has to end with him leaving as a babyface. This whole involvement for him is part of a wider piece around rehabilitating his reputation with the wider media. So he can't be a villain and come out of it. Yeah, so he can go in and he can play the villain for a bit, but he has to come out of it as a good guy. Yeah, and he never goes whole hog villain, does he? He's, he's not doing the same level of stuff that Michaels and Helms have been doing no. in, the, in the in the DX thing. He's just affiliated with them. Yeah. Something that I was struck by when it, when I was kind of watching him do the count and, and, and the turn was going on, he's getting the T-shirt from Austin, is one of possibly my favourite bit of Austin, of all the time that we've watched him, is him in that initial confrontation with Tyson. Oh, yeah. And his stand-up, and, and, and just kind of how strong, and just like how he is absolutely this mega superstar that won't back down, and is absolutely on that world-class level. And the only thing that took the shine off this for me was looking back at that, when you've got this turn, it kind of takes away a bit of, from that in, in my mind. See, see, I don't think it does. That is now the baddest man on the planet endorsing Steve Austin. So he stands alongside him and he goes, Cold Stone, that's my man. <laughs> <laughs> Which also happens in the press conference afterwards, yeah. by the way. But you're right in terms of that initial confrontation when he comes down, because, as you point out, like Tyson is so massive. Yeah. But 
Austin plays the character so well that he mm. is the dominant person in there. This is yeah. my my ring and this is my sport and I can stand up to you even though you are a bigger star mm. than me and actually a more legitimate tough guy. Yeah. I mean, if the if the story was, and, and I just missed this a little bit, that, I mean, that's fine, it happens, that... <laughs> no. <laughs> well, yeah, it has been nice. So if the story is that... Tyson is almost won over by his strength of character that he feels he must join that side and that yeah. it retains the credibility of him. Yeah, that's but, it. But to me, like, it, it almost felt like it was a double cross. Austin was in a, on it from the beginning and that would then take away from it. Well, that's what, what he says in the conference, isn't it? That's what uh, Tyson says in the conference after it, saying we've had this plan from the start. It was fine and then Austin just... So I'll take it from here and just says something different. I, I think you're kind of more on the money with the... So you have the initial confrontation. Austin stands up to him. Tyson joins DX. He then sees Austin's kind of fortitude and guts and kind of sees him as, actually, this guy is on my level. And the turn is kind of a, actually, I kind of respect this guy for standing up to me. And I've hmm. got more respect for him than I have of D-Generation X. I mean, from from a more kind of wider perspective... Like, you're kind of not supposed to really question the logic of it, I don't think. <laughs> it is literally just, Tyson, you can come in, you play bad guy for a bit, but you'll leave as the good guy, and this is part of, yes, rehabilitating yeah. you and your image with the wider media. Well, that, that's absolutely fine. It, it just that I didn't necessarily get that clearly enough from how that was told, and, you know, uh, you, you guys might have, because you're, you're kind of perhaps a little bit more tuned into stuff like that, but I'm... Burden of insight. Burden of insight, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, me and me and my naive little mind. But yeah, I I think it's just there as kind of a ringing endorsement of Steve Austin, who will absolutely carry the ball going forward. Have we seen better matches? You're absolutely right that we have. But this is just an instance of having all the stars aligned in the right place at the right time. And I don't think, yeah, perhaps outside of Hulk Hogan's kind of coronation in like 1984, I don't think there's been a better instance of that in terms of having Austin at the level he is, and Tyson having the level of notoriety he has to just be there to just say, there you go, there's my endorsement, off you go. And mm. they absolutely do go off to the races with this crowning moment. Steve Austin is absolutely ready, willing and able to be the long-awaited successor to Hulk Hogan that the WWF has searched for. The fact that they have the impending McMahon-Austin conflict in their back pocket, which we discussed kind of briefly in the build, is merely the icing on the cake. Mm. But what of the heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels? He of the boyhood dream just two years prior. The man that Vince McMahon and the WWF got behind more than anyone we saw ever in the entire New Generation era. Mm, yeah, true. Well, that's it for him in the ring until the middle of 2002. Brown trunks. He will miss the entire <laughs> Attitude Era because of the back injury sustained in January. In Heartbreak and Triumph, Michaels describes the rest of his evening following the match. Quote, after it was over, I went straight to my dressing room, laid on the floor, and started icing my back. Vince came in. Are you okay? Yeah. That was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. You are a special person. Thank you. I love you. I broke down and started weeping. Ever since the doctor had told me that I was finished, I had been a very angry person. After Vince's words, all that anger momentarily disappeared. I was relieved it was over. Everything I bottled up came pouring out of me. My folks came in to check on me as well. My mom was upset because she saw me lying there in pain. 
My dad, who always tries to be a pillar of strength, just wanted to know I was okay. I said I was fine. They asked if I wanted them to stay and I said that wasn't necessary and they went back to the hotel. Steve came in and said thanks. He didn't stay long because he and Vince had a press conference. Hunter was in my room as well. He told me I did a heck of a job and then sat there. He'd often sit with me and not say anything. That was his way and I liked having him there. I laid on the floor for some time trying to gather my thoughts. It would have been nice if I could have walked up to my friends, shook their hands, said goodbye and left on a nice note but that wasn't who I was then. I started thinking about Tyson draping the Austin 316 shirt on me and my blood started boiling. Now I just wanted to get out of the building. I packed up my things and headed out with Hunter. As we were walking, we passed the room where Vince, Steve and Tyson were holding their press conference. I kicked open the door and walked in. Shane McMahon was standing nearby and he came over to me and asked what in the world I was doing. I didn't make a scene or anything, but I let him have it for a few minutes. I told him how the shirt thing was BS and how I deserved better after all I had done for the company. My career had ended on a very sour note. End quote. To paraphrase a song lyric, I kind of like to think of it as, whilst the heartbreak kid was looking down, the rattlesnake stole his thorny crown. <laughs> it's almost impossible to put yourself into the mind of Shawn Michaels at the time. He clearly had a volatile personality at the best of times, but in the space of about 10 weeks... He's gone from the centrepiece of the company to staring down the barrel of never wrestling again. As Chris Jericho puts it on the Legacy of Stone Cold Steve Austin documentary, Shawn Michaels, one of the greatest of all time, was almost a third wheel in the issues between Steve Austin and Mike Tyson. On the night itself, he'd been vehemently against the idea of having the Austin shirt draped over his face at the end of the match, feeling it to be overkill following the punch, but perhaps his real issue was what it represented – it essentially functions as his on-screen burial. To then walk into a celebrity press conference with the boss that once put so much stock in you alongside his new biggest star and the celebrity that had brought thousands and thousands of new eyes to the show you carried for so long must have been mentally excruciating. Mm. The Heartbreak and Triumph DVD shows a brief clip of Michael storming out of the conference following his confrontation with Shane McMahon. It's also worth mentioning, as the conference itself is contained on the Tag Classic DVD, that Tyson claims during questioning in the press conference that, for the right price, I'll fight a lion. <laughs> I'd like to say I'd love to see that, but I don't really want to see someone get killed. When Michaels returned in 2002, he would be, and be presented as, a very different person. But that isn't something that happens instantly. The next three years of his life will see him struggle to be away from the spotlight and the vices that he obtained in his life as a professional wrestler will not evaporate now that he is not on the road with the WWF. As Michael's questions in Heartbreak and Triumph, quote, was I a bad person because I did drugs or did I do drugs because I was a bad person? It was a never-ending cycle that brought me further and further down, end quote. And again, Adam, you and I watched a bit of that kind of chapter earlier about you know, he spends kind of the next three years in a bit of a haze. He's a complete mess uh, because, well, I guess he's built his entire like life for the last 10 years or so in this company. And for the last, you know, three or four, it's been shoved right up to the top and he's just been doing this thing and it occupies so much of your life and you listen to any podcasts or anything about any wrestlers talk about their time in the business it becomes their life mm -hmm. and it's on the road all the time it's doing this and then suddenly that's gone and you've got all this time and you've 
got a lot of personal problems and you've got a lot of drug problems and you've got a lot of time to do them now. And so he's just like he's just a complete mess for a long time after this. Well, it it must be incredibly difficult because you you go from being so busy to having nothing. It's kind of like retirement. You, you know, you've you've worked for like the last fifty years or, or or whatever you've done, and you go from doing your five days, however many hours a day, a week, mm. to nothing. Like it must be incredibly hard. And you've got to think like. I'm not 100% sure, but I think he's like 32 at this time. Mm. It's no age. Yeah, and he, and all of a sudden this thing he's done for kind of the last 15 years is gone. Mm. Yeah. And it, it it's actually quite scary, like, how little he's mentioned on the following night's Raw. Like, outside of Triple H, I don't think he's really spoken about. And this guy who, yeah, absolute centrepiece of the company for when's, such a long time. Sorry, when's when's the next time he turns up? I mean... It, it's not too long before he turns up again. He turns up sporadically, sporadically, right? like, he, and towards he, the end of the year, he's the commissioner. Yeah, but he has kind of a short run on commentary where he just crops up, you know, just as guest commentator every now and again. They clearly do try and find things for him to do, but he, he's thirty-two, and, and it's mm. kind of similar to the Brian situation now. Like he doesn't want to be the bit part player. But he doesn't want to be the SmackDown general manager. Michaels doesn't want to be the commissioner. Yeah. He wants to be the icon, the showstopper, the main event, and he can't. Mm. And these kind of flying in visits don't necessarily, I think, probably help his mental state. No, it just no. reminds him of what he's missing. Perhaps most ironic is that Michael's exit from the WWF comes a mere five months after the departure of his perennial foe, Brett the Hitman Hart. Hart and Michaels had been, as James Dixon and Justin Henry's Titan Screwed puts it, 1A and 1B for the WWF for some time, and now the promotion and Vince McMahon faced life without either of them, which just one year prior would have been unthinkable. Yeah. Like, think your top of, two guys, we're going to cut them out. Yeah. What like, do you do? Think of where we were at in kind of early 1997, you know, and just imagine a WWF without Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, mm. and now neither of them are there. I know that when I began watching wrestling again in 1999, they stood out as the two biggest departures from the company to when I thought back to when I'd last watched it in 1995. But it's so lucky that in the wings, they've got, in the last year, Austin, who's clearly ready to be the top guy, and they've also got The Rock, who is is rapidly jumping and leaping Mm. up the ladder who's nearly there to take that sort of like that spot. And you've got Triple H who's been elevated by his work with Sean. Kane. Kane's come in as this, you know, like pretty much jumped into the top level. Shamrock. Yeah. yeah. So you've, you've in the last year, you have gained these other stars. And is it by necessity yeah. that Vince had to give people more of an opportunity because he knew where things were going? As with Hart, it's extremely interesting to question where Michaels might have fit into the Attitude Era. Even if Michaels had been fully fit and continue with the company post-WrestleMania, I can't imagine any scenario where WrestleMania 14 doesn't serve as the crowning of Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah, true. Like, even if Shawn Michaels was staying and was still ready to go, like, given the way things were going and Austin's ascent and his popularity, why would you do anything other than have him win the title here? Yeah. In that instance, what then would have been in store for Shawn Michaels? Well, maybe it doesn't look too happy for Shawn Michaels if he does remain fit, actually, mm. because if we talked about his ego, he is he he believes all that stuff. 
He yeah. believes he is the main event. And unfortunately for him, Stone Cold is a bigger star. Mm. And Stone Cold has eclipsed what Shawn Michaels actually is. Maybe he can't deliver necessarily in the same type of explosive, dynamic capacity that Michaels has been able to, but it doesn't matter. His popularity has soared above that. So would Michaels be able to cope with acting as underneath Stone Cold? And pretty soon he's going to be acting as underneath The Rock. A continuation, at least for a couple of months, of his issues with Austin would have been inevitable. But long term, would Michaels' presence and his desire to protect his position within the company have prevented others ascending to main event status? Yeah. (laughs) Who'd get Marty Jannetty's? The Rock has famously not been a fan of Michaels for his actions during his time with the promotion. Does Michaels attempt to curb the rise of The Rock that we have seen since late 1997? Would he still have the clout to do it? He's still Vince's boy. Mm. Mm. He might not be, you know, the favourite toy, but he's, you know... A boy toy. He's a boy toy. He would still be Woody to Steve Austin's Mm. Buzz Lightyear. Triple H would have a quicker ascent. Well... Just one more before we get to that. Mick Foley is quickly slotted in opposite Austin. How would Sean have felt about that? How about D-Generation X and Hunter Hearst Helmsley? By the time Michaels returns, Triple H is firmly entrenched at the top of the card. But how would that have gone for him had Michaels remained? Would Michaels have been keen to elevate his pal to his level? Or would he have looked to retain Helmsley as his lackey? Helmsley would have been positioned as the Razor Ramon mm. character. Stuck in the upper, the upper mid-card feuding over the IC title, never quite capturing the the main title. Yeah, so ultimately when it came time for kind of Triple H to have his turn at the top, would Michaels have wanted to facilitate that because he's his pal? Or would Michaels have said, you're my pal, why are you trying to take my spot? Yeah, interesting. We'll we'll never know, will we? But I mean, it's interesting to speculate because it's a time of like mass flux and change. Well, there you go. And then what of the arrival of the likes of Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero? Would Michaels have been happy to see an influx of athletes of similar size to him, just as capable of having exciting in-ring matches, or would he have resented their arrival? Kurt Angle? Mm. How would he have felt about that? Would he have cleaned himself up had he remained in the WWF? Or did he need the experiences he gained in that time away from the ring that forced him to do so? I don't know, because like you say, it takes him a long time to get over these problems and turn himself into the character that comes back four years later. Would he have been able to maintain that transformation if he was still doing the constant on the road, or would he still be the same person? Perhaps even more so than the hitman, trying to work out where the Heartbreak Kid fits within the Attitude Era is a question that could generate like hours and hours of discussion. I think it's a really fascinating topic. Because in many ways, what he is, is is eternally the Attitude Era, that's kind of him isn't it as as what he's done and where he's going you do what you like and you stick your finger up and you just you see what works but is he too attitude for the attitude era and would he have worked in it big questions and speaking of heart back when we covered wrestling with shadows and brett the hitman heart's departure from the world wrestling federation we closed that chapter of our story by listing his top 10 matches from the new generation era Alongside Brett, the Heartbreak Kid has been by far the biggest and most important name in our entire timeline. Therefore, I know we've gone long, but it only seems right that I do the same for him. As with the Brett list, I've only chosen matches between King of the Ring 1993 and WrestleMania 14. All right, shall maybe me and Paul have a couple of guesses as to what we think's in there before you read them out? 
Go for it. Good friends, better enemies. That's, I'd, I'd, I'd pick that as well. I, I would say bad blood. Yeah. With the Hell in the Cell. I would say... I wonder if you'll put the Iron Man match in there because it's a match that's definitely not everybody's favourite cup of tea. But I think it is very noteworthy for what it achieves and, and certainly within his story. Mankind mind games? Yeah, oh, that's got to be in there. I would I would say that there's that tag match from 94, so him and Diesel against the kid and Razor. Oh, there's there's going to be something glaring. Well, let's, let's, let's not scrabble around. We've said a few suggestions. Let's see if he agrees with anything that we've said. So, okay, but then just pick what you think will be number one. Bad blood. Bad blood. Number 10, Shawn Michaels versus Bret the Hitman Hart. WrestleMania 12, 31st of March 1996. I didn't include this on Bret's list, but I am including it on Shawn's purely from the perspective that this was Shawn's crowning moment in the first half of his career. This was the moment the WWF crowned him as their next centrepiece. Whilst that didn't necessarily work out long term, as we've discussed today, the boyhood dream has come true for Shawn Michaels remains today one of those moments that the promotion still likes to look back on. Mm. As far as the actual match goes, it's fair to say that opinions are divided, but Hart and Michaels at least deserve credit for the stamina involved to perform such a long-form singles bout. Yeah, I think we all quite liked that match, didn't we? It, it, it certainly had its moments, and considering that Oldsworthy could be an absolute bore, it wasn't. It was. Mm. It was certainly entertaining. Number nine, Shawn Michaels versus Stone Cold Steve Austin. WrestleMania 14, 29th of March 1998. This deserves to be here purely from the perspective of realising what kind of state Shawn was in when the bout occurred. While it may not be on the same level as some of the matches that have ultimately left off the list, as we'll have covered to death by the time we reach this list, you can absolutely see the agony etched on Michael's face from very early on in the match. Whether Michaels ultimately wanted to do the right thing or not, considering he took over four years off after this bout, that speaks to how genuinely injured he was going into this one. Not many performers would have been able to go out there in Michaels' condition and give the kind of performance that he manages to put on here. Not by any stretch of the imagination one of his all-time classic performances, but it should be on the list purely for the guts involved in putting it on. Number 8. Shawn Michaels and Diesel versus Razor Ramon and the 123 Kid. Action Zone, 30th of October 1994. I really hope you remember this match, and I'm glad that you did, Paul, because we covered it like such a long time ago in our free-for-all episode. If I say it's the one where Diesel lays on the outside of the ring for some time, hopefully that rings a few bells, oh, Adam. Yeah. Yeah. I only remember things like that. That's a bit weird, isn't I it? I remember that there was an awesome tag in it, wasn't there? Yeah. That was, yeah. For all the criticism of the click and what they did to hold back other performers' careers, they were, outside of the Hart Brothers, the promotion's premier performers in an era where the roster wasn't stacked with great in-ring workers. Prior to Triple H joining the group, this match stands as the group's collective apex and a fabulous example of what each man brought to the table. If you've not watched this match in some time, if you can find it online, and it must be on Daily Motion or YouTube somewhere, go back and check it out. You won't regret it. Mm. Number seven, Shawn Michaels versus the British Bulldog, one night only. Yeah. 20th of September 1997. Okay, so the circumstances surrounding the bout were somewhat controversial to say the least, and the result might not necessarily be the right one, but this bout stands up as one of the all-time great heel performances from Michaels. I mean, it's not Pete Dunne at King of Trios, but it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. The Birmingham crowd are absolutely baying for his blood, and he plays the whole thing to the hilt. 
when it's time for Michaels to sell for Davy Boy Smith's power moves, he does, and it makes the Bulldog look absolutely on Michaels' level, even though he's not far off contending for the world title. As I said when we reviewed it, how you feel about the finish may colour how you feel about the entire match, but if you're able to separate the in-ring content from the outside controversy, you'll find a fantastic, relatively modern example of a heel generating very real heat from an audience that is firmly rooting for a babyface. Number six. Shawn Michaels versus Sid. Oh, Ah, of course, yeah. Camera to old man. Survivor Series, 17th of November 1996. I may have mentioned on a number of occasions that I'm a tad fond of Survivor Series 96, and a large part of that is the Bret Hart-Steve Austin bout that I rated quite highly on my list for the Hitman. But another big part of it is this match, the show's main event. By an absolute country fucking mile, this is Sid's best singles match, and perhaps only someone with the athleticism and charisma of Michaels could draw such an exciting bout out of the master and the ruler of the world. Sean's reaction to the Madison Square Garden crowd turning on him is fun to watch back to this day, and it's interesting to watch Michaels, at perhaps the height of his political power, lose to Sid via pinfall, Mm. albeit after some shenanigans involving Jose Lafario. Yeah. Number five. Shawn Michaels versus The Undertaker. Royal Rumble. Yeah. 18th of January 1998. This bout is the climax of the original Undertaker Michaels trilogy and shows that they've really honed their in ring chemistry. Even without the intensity that the Hell in a Cell provided back in October, they craft a thrilling match that really plays to both men's strengths. Michaels looks wily and crafty with his hit and run offense, and when it's Taker's turn to be on top, he looks dominant and powerful. Michaels, as is his lot in life, takes some incredible bumps in this one, with one rather innocuous one proving instrumental in the history of the WWF. It also manages to take one of the most ridiculous overbooked endings in the promotion's history, the finish of Taker Yokozuna at Royal Rumble 1994, and does it better, allowing it to fit in with both Taker and Michaels' storylines going forward. Not the best match in their original trilogy, we'll get to that, but one that I really rate and did really enjoy going back and watching again. Yeah, it was good, it was very good. Number four, Shawn Michaels versus Diesel. In your house, good friends, better enemies, 28th of April 1996. If it had been the Diesel in this match that was WWF champion for an entire year, it's unfathomable Mm. how different 1995 could have been. After providing the in-ring highlight of WrestleMania 11 with Diesel as a babyface and Shawn Michaels as a heel, a little over a year later, the pair were able to have an even better match with the roles reversed at the beginning of Shawn's first title reign, and it really set the tone for how important and how good the WWF title matches would be in 1996. Looking back on this list as I write the notes on the individual matches, it's interesting here, I think, that we have a run of three positions where Michaels has matches against much larger opponents that weren't exactly well-known for having classic matches at the time. In theory, the likes of Sid, Taker and Diesel should decimate someone the size of Michaels, but it's testament to how much resilience, tenacity and credibility that Michaels had with the WWF audience at the time that he would be taken seriously against each one of them. Mm. The bout is particularly memorable for the finish involving Mad Dog Vachon's false leg. But outside of that, it has aged well and shows another side of Michael's that would be displayed even better later in the year. Has got that cool table spot in that match? Yes. Yeah, which was just amazing to see at the time. Number three, Shawn Michaels versus Razor Ramon, WrestleMania 10, 
20th of March, 1994. How did we not mention that? We forgot that one, didn't we? It's quite well known. It's too well known. We couldn't see the elephant in the room. What? I'm guessing this might be a tad on the controversial side, in that it's not number one. I've also not placed the SummerSlam 1995 ladder match on the list, uh, so I guess you can kind of consider this one a joint entry. In the early 1990s, the WWF wasn't exactly known for its classic gimmick matches, but one bout changed all of that at WrestleMania 10. Yes, ladder matches may have gotten a thousand times more creative and complex over the years, but even today, this is still the bout that defines the genre. Claims that Michaels had a great match with a ladder rather than Razor are perhaps a tad overblown and unkind, but despite defeat, Michaels is certainly the star of this one, and it's his usage of the ladder in the match that sets the bar for what can be done with it. This may very well be the match that set Sean on course to become champion exactly two years later. Mm-hmm. Number two. Shawn Michaels versus Mankind. Yeah. In Your House Mind Games, 22nd of September 1996. This is one of those great one-off matches that can be enjoyed entirely unto itself without any kind of huge grudge or big feud coming before it, because there isn't one. After beating The Undertaker in the Boiler Room Brawl match at SummerSlam 1996, Mankind is named the number one contender to the WWF title and that's about it. Pitting boy toy Michaels against the deranged Mankind gave Sean the opportunity to really show he could contest a credible brawl against one of the most famous brawlers in the world. Yes, the ending is perhaps a tad less than satisfying, but the match is so good it makes up for it. Michaels showed here that he wasn't just a flamboyant, charismatic showman. He proved that he could go to war and survive. Number one. Is this going to be something really out of left field now? (laughs) Shaw Michaels versus The Undertaker. In your house, bad blood. 5th of October, 1997. Well, I'm glad. Yes. (laughs) You can put together a strong case that this is the best WWF match ever, and I won't argue with you. Some may prefer Hart Austin, or Cena Punk, or Austin Rock, but this one is a fine choice. From the second that Shawn Michaels accidentally clocks The Undertaker with a chair at SummerSlam 1997, everything between the pair builds towards something like this, as Michaels slowly but surely sheds his babyface skin, reverting to the obnoxious heel that he's clearly more comfortable portraying. The build for this one is so good and Sean is such a dick that you're totally on board with The Undertaker basically murdering him inside the cell. And get murdered he does, as Taker absolutely batters him for some time. The offence Michaels does manage to get in is built around his cunning and his ability to take advantage of opportunities. But ultimately, it's Michaels that is beaten, bloodied and thrown around both inside the ring, outside of the ring and most memorably outside and off of the cell. The ending is great as well, in that it gives Taker and Michaels reason to carry on on divergent paths. We gushed about this for the better part of an hour on our Bad Blood In Your House episode, and if you've not watched this one in a while, go back and check it out, and then listen to our review of it, because I don't (laughs) think I've enjoyed talking about a single match more than I did when we covered this one. Yeah, absolutely. Good list. Five and a half stars. (laughs) (laughs) Was that the match you gave six stars to prior to Dave Meltzer issuing <laughs> Omega and Okada with six stars? I don't know. I think but it, it was. It, it was just such a good match. Because the thing that really got me is when you were explaining the foresight in terms of giving them great reasons to split off in terms of storytelling. Because the wrestling was great. And particularly once I knew the context. Because like I said at the time when we reviewed 
Bad Blood, like had seen that match and not really fully appreciated the beauty of what was going on there. But but kind of knowing everything that uh, I'd kind of found out through through doing the show is just just a stunning, stunning match. And and Shawn Michaels has just been the most incredibly consistent performer in ring for all of his faults outside of it. He's just been a kind of, you know, highlight episode after episode. I mean, I know Adam doesn't think so, but um, <laughs> with, with not giving him a, a, a MVP. But... Genuinely a surprise that. I could have sworn they'd given him one in all the episodes that we've done, but I must have always found someone better. So, so that then... Were you to do a top ten list of Shawn Michaels matches from our era? Is that the one you would pick? And then any final sh- thoughts you want to share on the Heartbreak Kid? It'd be number one for me, and that's why I think both of us kind of predicted yeah. that would be number one in your list because it was such an outstandingly good match. Um, I, as you know, my memory's slightly sketchy. Yeah, with what I do, that I said the Good Friends Better Enemies one because I remember that sticking in my mind as just being like a really incredible match. So that's one of my favourite ones uh, that he did. And the Mind Games one sticks in my mind mm. as well. If something sticks in my mind, it's generally pretty good. Yeah. Because not a lot sticks there. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's a shame that he never had anything perhaps a little grander with Owen because that would have a chance to perhaps make it onto that list. But out of the matches that he had that were really kind of full and developed, I think that's a very fair representation that that highlights different aspects. I like the fact that Although you're right in saying that WrestleMania 14 is definitely not in the top 10 in terms of actual in-ring quality for what it represents to him and about him because, you know, he's a genuinely gutsy performer. Yeah. To do that, like like you said, nobody else I don't think in the company would have, you know, I can't, I can't think of anybody. Maybe would mankind? Yeah, this isn't saying that others yeah. wouldn't fight through injury. But yeah. Given the severity of the injury and the level of performance he's mm. able to put on, I just don't think there's anyone yeah. else that could have done that. Yeah, so absolutely, I think it's a very fair representation. I mean, interesting you mentioned the match with Owen because I did consider putting the In Your House 6 match on there mm. and stuff like the, the Jarrett match from In Your House 2 was also yeah. considered. Yeah. So th- th- there was plenty to choose from, perhaps even more so than Brett when I compiled that list. He's had mm. so many great, great matches in this timeline and... You know, we, we've been very critical of him for, for many, many reasons. Never is in ring work, though. Except when he has a bit of a strop sometimes. So, when, yeah, when he loses his temper. But outside of Brett, like, there's a reason that when, you know, I asked Sam to design us a logo when we started, that that background is Sean and Brett's faces. Mm. Like, because when you're talking the new generation era... They're the two key players. They are they? the two key players. And, yeah, there's almost a kind of Shakespearean level of tragedy. And were you to kind of plot it as, like, a great work of literature, like, it's almost like Sean is the guy who sees off his his rival and attains the keys to the kingdom. And then, you know, three months later, five months later, it burns down around him. Everything he thought he'd built and everything he thought he had is gone. Is, now, he like, uh, is he like Macbeth? Yeah. And it, then the it, Triple H's Lady Macbeth. Triple H's <laughs> Lady Macbeth, yes. Is this your Act 5? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. This is the denouement of the storyline. Like, this is it. This is the end. Mm. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> Thoughts on the show overall, then? Are we talking uh, parts one and this part, or just this part? So talk part two, and then talk as a whole. Part two? Good. Because I really enjoyed the dumpster match and the main event 
was a particularly interesting and well worked out considering the circumstances about. Slightly underwhelmed maybe by Undertaker Kane. And yeah, maybe that is it just went on a bit long, but I still think that it was good. I just don't think that it was as spectacular as people might have expected from, you know, such a built up match. As far as the show as a whole, I don't think there's anything that stinks on it. I think it's all actually pretty much on a decent level and everything is performed to a certain standard that you don't dislike any of the matches or like I don't dislike any of the matches. I think it's solid. I think we had this conversation earlier. And this isn't an outstanding in-ring WrestleMania because it's not got an outstanding five-star match knocking around on it. But if it had have, it would be seen as one of the greatest WrestleManias of all time because everything on it is pretty good. And all it's missing is just that five-star match maybe to finish it off. And perhaps if Sean's back wasn't completely cunted, then then that would have been the five-star match that was missing from it. But it still ends up being a good match. Like everything on this show, I thought was pretty good. It's it's very interesting because I felt the dumpster match was a lot of fun. It was good to see two big guys going at it in a a match with a great, I think, atmosphere and, and had a lot of spectacle about it. It didn't necessarily deliver to the highest standards in ring, but it, but it wasn't, horrible and there's there's a couple of cool spots the main event given the obvious limitations that it had possibly over delivered in one way even though if you got both of those guys at the best it would be far in excess of what we got so it's it's, it's perhaps a, a slightly difficult thing to judge because i kind of look at that main event and i think oh my god that's brilliant how did they do that but at the same ma- same time just as a match it's not the best thing in the world mm. In terms of a card overall, I think if you look at that card, I think it's a really promising card. And uh, I think Stuart mentioned in the last episode how it kind of builds. Yeah. And so you've you've got... Uh, I wasn't really a fan of the tag, like, three billion teams. Well, I consider the pay-per-view not having started until that's finished. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the light heavyweight match was a bit of a spot fest. Some of those spots were good. Some of those were less smooth, but it but it was you know okay. It started a slight, certainly a nice bit of something different yeah. on the card. Owen Triple H, although it started slowly, got better and was decent, and and certainly that was a match that I was very interested to see. The intergender tag, although I wasn't necessarily looking forward to it, definitely over delivered. And Rock Shamrock, although short match, the angle afterwards was was pretty good and and certainly exciting. Dumpster match was fun quite a hot feud you've got a really big long built-up storyline for the kind of co or semi-main event depending on how you look at it so you know it's still building and then you've got a main event with kind of like the hottest property in wrestling in terms of austin and one of the hottest properties in terms of celebrities on the planet in tyson so i think in terms of a card it's a very very well structured card i just don't necessarily think it delivers quite as I would have hoped in ring. Because I would say that WrestleMania 10 is seen as the better WrestleMania. Mm. Yep. But it's not as consistent as this. Yep. The high points are higher. Exactly. So it's, it's it has a greater dynamic range mm. uh, within it, but this one is, is very consistent in what you get, and that consistent level is pretty good, actually. Mm. Yeah. 
WrestleMania 14 is fondly remembered, and it's not because there's either a ton of great matches or an all-time classic bout contained within it. None of the matches are complete stinkers, which certainly helps, but it's about a time and a place, and pretty much everything important within this three-hour show is on point. The Tag Team Battle Royal and the Taka Aguilar match may be the only parts of the card that not necessarily hits, but then everything from there onwards hits. From Triple H and Sable to Ken Shamrock and The Rock to the New Age Outlaws, Kane, The Undertaker and Steve Austin, the company has crafted a number of characters that the crowd care about, and on this show, it used them to good effect. Previously, a lot of the criticisms we levied at the WWF have been based around undercars that dragged on or acts that the crowd didn't care about. For the most part, this wasn't the case here. As far as the three main event matches that we've discussed today, Austin Michaels is decent. The dumpster match is painful looking good fun. And whilst Kane Undertaker is perhaps the weakest of the three, it is carried by the long running storyline and some excellent storytelling from an all time great play by play announcer. Watching it back with 2017 eyes, I found the main event portion of the show very enjoyable, and in part that may very well be because it's our destination. It feels important because it is important to us, and the story that we've spent four years telling. But it's also important because it's a tangible event that you can point to and say, that's when. That's when the WWF knew what it would be about going forward, and had the pieces in position to achieve a kind of popularity that it hadn't had for years. After an almost five-year period of uncertainty and an inability to reconnect with its audience in the way that it had in the mid to late 80s, the WWF found the right attitude to assert itself and retain its position as the biggest wrestling company the world has ever seen. Mm. Match of the night in MVP, then. Mm. Well, we've only got three to choose from. I'm going to go for the dumpster match because I found it the most enjoyable. I think, in many ways, the main event is probably a bit better but was too painful to watch out of a, and which is a really odd thing to say when you've got people that are being like power bombed into skips and things like that. <laughs> and Terry but, Funk got a massive hematoma. Yeah, but it, it doesn't feel as painful as watching Shawn Michaels nearly cry from stamping his foot. <laughs> so I, I just have a, a, a point of pure enjoyment. I thought that match was great. As we pointed out, it helped to define a, a match style that would become incredibly important in the company. And Terry Funk on a forklift truck. That's in my notes. Damn right. MVP, I'm going to book my trend. And it's not just because I found out I've never given him MVP. <laughs> <laughs> it's Shawn Michaels for wrestling when I think the pain of what he's wrestling in would have put most people down to just lying there and doing nothing. It's taken 94 episodes for Adam to give Shawn Michaels an MVP. And I'm finally there. I think it's maybe it's because I've finally got an awful lot of sympathy for well, the it's, guy. It's interesting to hear the amount of empathy you've given him this mm. episode. Yeah, because I've been hypercritical of his behaviours. And I'd still stand by that. But in everything that he has sought to become, now his world's been destroyed. And no matter what his, his dodgy antics and behaviours, you have to feel sympathy for someone that's had their entire world turned upside down and everything they held as important and what defined them as a character has been stripped away. No matter how much of a cunt they've been. Exactly. And there's no doubt he has been that. I agree with Adam. Yeah, say say match of the night, the dumpster match, and purely because it's a lot of fun. The the other matches were good in that they held my interest. They, they've certainly got a real allure to them, and the big fight fearless have mentioned. 
but I didn't enjoy them as much as I didn't enjoy the dumpster match. The MVP has got to be Sean, and I do have a lot of sympathy. It's, I do feel it's hard not to give it to somebody like Austin on this particular night because of what it represents to him going forwards. But I think Austin, you know, owes him a, a real debt of gratitude for going through with that match, given the shape he was in. Because if it wasn't him passing the torch, I don't think it would have meant as much. Match of the night. If you're asking me out of these three contests, which one did I enjoy the most, then the answer is probably the dumpster match. With the exception of Shawn Michaels, Mick Foley and Terry Funk probably took more punishment than anyone else on this show, but it resulted in a fun brawl with some memorable moments. Plus, yes, it had Terry Funk driving a forklift. If we're aggregating match of the night across both halves of the show... I'd probably still stick with that overall as my favourite, as like I said, this show doesn't have a classic match on it, even though the majority of the contests are enjoyable. MVP, Shawn Michaels. I would completely understand if either of you were to have said Steve Austin or Mike Tyson as MVP. Steve Austin for it being his crowning moment, and Mike Tyson for quite literally being the most valuable person, i.e. bringing money to the event. But given everything that it took for Shawn Michaels to put in the performance that he did on this night... I have to go with him. I've perhaps been one of his biggest critics over the course of the timeline, but when he's performed in the ring, I feel like I have given him the plaudits that he deserves. And on this night, despite who he is outside of the ring, I do feel like he put on a performance that nobody other than he would have been capable of. JR also deserves a mention for his commentary performance, as he elevated pretty much everything on the show. Mm -hmm. Mullet of the night. Well, it's a no-show, really, for the second half, but I am aware that Ricky Morton must be somewhere in the vicinity because he was there an hour and a half ago, so he wins it. Yes, on a technicality, it is the same night that Ricky Morton performed. Yeah. Splendid. And on that bombshell, it's time to wrap up today's episode. But before we can go, if you've enjoyed what you've listened to today, here are the top five ways you can support the show. Number five. Give us a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash newgenerationprojectpodcast, a follow on Twitter at newgenpodcast or on Instagram at newgenpodcast and interact with us. Number four. Leave us a five-star review and some kind words on iTunes. Lots of those lately. Really appreciate all of them. Yes, we do. Some really lovely ones. Number three. Take a look at our back catalogue that's going up one by one on botchamania.com, including video episodes. Number two. Check out some of the absolutely free bonus content that we post regularly over at soundcloud.com slash newgenpodcast featuring matches from the WWE, NXT, Chikara, Michinoku Pro and All Japan Pro Wrestling. And I do want to get that King of Trios final done soon. Oh yeah, I can't, I can't, I literally can't wait to watch that. I've, I've watched that so many times. Uh, I've just been showing it to everybody that comes around. Well, see, I, if I say I, myself and Mrs. Scribbins, I've, I've got some friends that are kind of, not wrestling fans, but watched wrestling in their past and do have recollections of people like The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart. And I kind of think, if I can just get them to sit down and watch that, <laughs> I, I really want to see what their reactions are like. Because I, I think if it was me, you, you know, I've seen quite a few bits of kind of really cool wrestling that obviously you've seen me over the years, but they've been used to, or will have only seen really, WWE-style matches and I'm really intrigued to see what they make of something so different I think they'd really love it so I can't wait to show them number one and if you don't mind giving a little something back you can pledge to us over at patreon.com slash newgenpodcast as announced earlier in the show you can now amend your pledge to pick up one of our exclusive Christmas bundles 
You have until November 30th to donate at the required tier, as all parcels will be posted out on December 1st. As with the summer ones, we think you'll really get a kick out of these, so head over to Patreon now if you'd like one. Episode 95. <laughs> what? Is, is What, what? Well, I guess people are kind of wondering if there will be an episode 95. No, nah, nobody's asked. <laughs> I'm kind of wondering. <laughs> I can confirm now that there will be an episode 95, as it's kind of an addendum to the timeline. Before we do a pair of wrap-up episodes that I know a lot of people have been requesting that we do, episode 95 will see us take a look at the Raw is War the night after WrestleMania 14 to take a look at how the WWF makes the final move of the key pieces to blaze ahead with the Attitude Era in an episode we're calling Raw is War 5, Austin vs. McMahon. Hmm. Then we obviously need to have a bit of a kind of a wrap-up discussion because I think it'd be quite fun to make some lists. I like lists and ranking things. Mm. Oh, I find them really hard because I have to remember things. Yeah. That's why we go off what he says first. Okay. (laughs) You can just sort of quickly scribble down notes. So we'll do things like favourite match, favourite card, favourite wrestler. Mm. And we'll have to try and find a way to kind of incorporate some fan opinions into that as well. Okay, That's definitely one that people have really been asking for us to do. And one project I know that will take a bit of time, but I'm keen to do it. And again, it's just been requested a ton. And I know you really want this Mm. is a kind of moments episode. I absolutely want that. And and I think we, we could kind of gleam some really fun clips from different shows. And if people happen to know where certain lesser known moments that they really want in that list are, please do let me know. Cause like, I know where Ken Shamrock eating dog food is. I know where <laughs> Pat Tanaka in a mask is. I know where Bunkhouse Bob Monkhouse is, but there might be some other moments that we've forgotten and that people out there really, you know, it stands in their mind as great moments. They really remember very fondly. So do let me know on Facebook mm. or Twitter if you want them included on that list. Mm. Mm. Anything that stands out to you, Adam? Or can you not remember anything beyond the last couple of weeks? I I think your forklift story might make it in. Yeah. (laughs) The time Adam almost killed someone with a forklift. (laughs) Adam's funny story. It wasn't deliberate. 94 episodes. No, actually, no. What episode was WrestleMania 9? That was like 92. Your story about riding an ostrich, that got over. (laughs) (laughs) That'll definitely make the list. So it just basically, um, you know, travelling on certain vehicles, <laughs> whether that vehicle be a large bird or a forklift truck, it seems to be. Uh, yeah, you are basically the Steve Austin of the podcast. We'll get you. A, <laughs> we'll get you a cement mixer, yeah. a zamboni, <laughs> a beer truck. If Steve Austin had a road into Raw on an ostrich, it would have had a slightly different feel. I'd love to just see you on an ostrich, chuck you a couple of beers and for you to pour them down the ostrich's throat. I'm not sure if ostrich I'm, I'm joking, because that, that, I'm, I'm sure ostriches don't drink. They beer. do drink. Well, not beer. Well, I don't know. <laughs> you, you probably have a bit of an issue persuading it to drink a beer. Mm. Well, beer could get caught. It'd You'd have, have to, to pour it into a glass, wouldn't you? A bowl. Yeah. <laughs> or it'd have to shove its head directly up and open its beak and then you just pour it down its throat. <laughs> Yeah, let, let's stop this conversation. In many ways, I'm, uh, uh, I'm worried about the RSPCA getting in touch. An ostrich's uh, head and neck's a bit like a yard of ale. <laughs> Man charged with force-feeding beer to ostrich. Drunk ostrich causes a riot. <laughs> Any moments that stand out for you, Paul, that you'd like to see on the list? Uh, I mean, one of my favourites is just just how funny I've I found the... Hulk Baywatch, Hogan. Baywatch Thunder Empire. Yeah. Just... I've never laughed as hard 
as that. And it's, and it's such a man us. going in a straight line on a jet ski. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> I love that. I think the Undertaker is not a homo sign. Okay. That, that, I just remember that we were just in stitches about. There's, there's been a lot of good stuff. There's, I think there's been like a lot of good things. And if you consider how many episodes there's been, there's, you know, I'm sure there's like a little bit here in one episode and then there in another episode. I'm sure there's, you know, lots of, lots of things that people can suggest to us. Sexy boy Jose Lothario. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that still makes me smile. Oh, um, Kane, the, the, the big sexy snake or whatever it was. <laughs> What episode is it? I'm pretty sure it's one of the New Generation games, so someone listen to those and tell us, where you get asked, if you had to be the middle part of a human centipede, who would you have on the back and front ends? I seem to remember that being a fascinating discussion. Mm. I'm sure that never actually happened. I'm pretty sure it did. I'm pretty sure that made recording tape. Anyway, thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this whopper of a discussion about WrestleMania 14. It's a bloody good job we did this in two parts. Otherwise, this would have literally been ten hours. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Stuart Brooks. I'll say goodbye. I'm Adam Weiss. Goodbye. Yes, Paul Scrivens. I guess I'll see you again now. Was there an after I left? Every night in my dreams I see you I feel you That is how I know you Go on Far across the distance And spaces between us you have come to show you go on near far Wherever you are, I've been 
that my heart does go on. I think it's pretty good. <laughs> Have you seen Catch Me If You Can and actually watch that? <laughs> right, we said this one was only going to be an hour. We've done 51 minutes, so let's wrap it up quick. <laughs> Three minutes of match. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, two minutes of match. We've got match if they're not an MVP today. <laughs> Have I done 51 minutes on that? That's my cracking stories. <laughs> yeah, there's 10 minutes of Scriven's tangents. And, it... a, few, and a few about my cosines. <laughs> 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 oh, some good uh, trigonometry-based humour. I was <laughs> 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 oh, so proud. <laughs> yeah, are you done? No. <laughs> yeah, I've got to give him five minutes for this now. Oh, you have another one of his heart attacks. No. You- have you seen that episode of The Simpsons where they, they judge his fatness by smacking his belly? Yes. And seeing how long it wobbles for. It's the wobble test. Well, that happens to me when I'm laughing now. If I laugh a lot, it keeps on going after I finish laughing. <laughs> I think that's a sign, isn't it? For what? For weight loss. <laughs> Slimmer's World. Insert advert here. That's what I want for this Christmas. What, the first three months of Slimming World or something? Well, no, just no, just whatever was just on then. Like, if he, if he, if he does an advert for WrestleGrade, it'd be WrestleGrade. Because <laughs> the other option is I was going to do one for Slimming World. <laughs> Possibly. 
Put in an advert for Slimming World there. Where in the world, Slimming World? Is that their jingle? That's PC World. <laughs> yeah. Dif- <laughs> different things, mate. What, 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 what one's, one's about weight loss, the other one's primarily selling computers. Yeah. Where in the world, Slimming World? Oh no, they could they could combine. They could they could fix your computer while you run around on a treadmill. <laughs> well, just run on. You wouldn't run around on a treadmill. That'd be ridiculous. You just run on the treadmill. No need to go around anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking about cosines again. 